Chapter 4. Prices and Consumption 1. Money Prices We have seen the enormous importance of the money prices of goods in an economy of indirect exchange, the money income of the producer or laborer and the psychic income of the consumer depend on the configuration of these prices. How are they determined? In this investigation, we may draw extensively from almost all of the discussion in Chapter 2. There we saw how the prices of one good in terms of others are determined under conditions of direct exchange. The reason for devoting so much consideration to a state of affairs that can have only a very limited existence was that a similar analysis can be applied to conditions of indirect exchange. In a society of barter, the markets that established prices, assuming that the system could operate, were innumerable markets of one good for every other good, with the establishment of a money economy, the number of markets needed is immeasurably reduced. A large variety of goods exchange against the money commodity, and the money commodity exchanges for a large variety of goods. Every single market, then, with the exception of isolated instances of barter, includes the money commodity as one of the two elements. Aside from loans and claims, which will be considered later, the following types of exchange are made against money. Old consumer goods against money. New consumer goods and services against money. Capital goods against money. Labor services against money. Land factors against money. For durable goods, each unit may be sold in toto, or it may be hired out for its services over a certain period of time. Now we remember from Chapter 2 that the price of one good in terms of another is the amount of the other good divided by the amount of the first good in the exchange. If, in a certain exchange, 150 barrels of fish exchanged for three horses, then the price of horses in terms of fish, the fish price of horses, was 50 barrels of fish per horse in that exchange. Now suppose that in a money economy, three horses exchange for 15 ounces of gold, money, the money price of horses in this exchange is 5 ounces per horse. The money price of a good in an exchange, therefore, is the quantity of units of gold divided by the quantity of units of the good, yielding a numerical ratio. To illustrate how money prices may be computed for any exchange, suppose that the following exchanges are made. 15 ounces of gold for 3 horses. 5 ounces of gold for 100 barrels of fish, 1 eighth ounce of gold for 2 dozen eggs, 24 ounces of gold for 8 hours of X's labor. The money prices of these various exchanges were 15 ounces of gold for 3 horses equals 5 ounces per horse, 5 ounces of gold for 100 barrels of fish equals 1 ounce of gold for 20 barrels of fish, or 1 twentieth ounce of gold for 1 barrel of fish. 1 eighth ounce of gold for 2 dozen eggs equals 1 sixteenth ounce of gold for 1 dozen.
24 ounces of gold for 8 hours of X's labor equals 3 ounces of gold for 1 hour of X's labor. It is evident that with money being used for all exchanges, money prices serve as a common denominator of all exchange ratios. Thus, with the money prices now under discussion, anyone can calculate that if one horse exchanges for five ounces and one barrel of fish exchanges for one-twentieth of an ounce, then one horse can indirectly exchange for one hundred barrels of fish, or for eighty dozen eggs, or for one and two-thirds hours of X's labor, etc., Instead of a myriad of isolated markets for each good and every other good, each good exchanges for money, and the exchange ratios between every good and every other good can easily be estimated by observing their money prices. Here it must be emphasized that these exchange ratios are only hypothetical and can be computed at all only because of the exchanges against money. It is only through the use of money that we can hypothetically estimate these barter ratios, and it is only by intermediate exchanges against money that one good can finally be exchanged for the other at the hypothetical ratio. The exceptions are direct exchanges that might be made between two goods on the basis of their hypothetical exchange ratios on the market. These exchanges, however, are relatively isolated and unimportant and depend on the money prices of the two goods. Many writers have erred in believing that money can somehow be abstracted from the formation of money prices and that analysis can accurately describe affairs as if exchanges really took place by way of barter. With money and money prices pervading all exchanges, there can be no abstraction from money in analyzing the formation of prices in an economy of indirect exchange. Just as in the case of direct exchange, there will always be a tendency on the market for one money price to be established for each good. We have seen that the basic rule is that each seller tries to sell his good for the highest attainable money price, and each buyer tries to buy the good for the lowest attainable money price. The actions of the buyers and sellers will always and rapidly tend to establish one price on the market at any given time. If the ruling market price for 100 barrels of fish, for example, is 5 ounces, that is, if sellers and buyers believe that they can sell and buy the fish they desire for 5 ounces per 100 barrels, then no buyer will pay 6 ounces, and no seller will accept 4 ounces for the fish. Such action will obtain for all goods on the market, establishing the rule that, for the entire market society, every homogeneous good will tend to be bought and sold at one particular money price at any given time. What, then, are the forces that determine at what point this uniform money price for each good tends to be set? 
we shall soon see that, as demonstrated in chapter 2, the determinants are the individual value scales, expressed through demand and supply schedules. We must remember that in the course of determining the fish price of horses in the direct exchange of fish as against horses, at the same time there was also determined the horse price of fish. In the exchanges of a money economy, what is the goods price of money, and how is it determined? Let us consider the foregoing list of typical exchanges against money. These exchanges established the money prices of four different goods on the market. Now let us reverse the process and divide the quantities of goods by the quantity of money in the exchange. This gives us one-fifth horse per ounce of gold, twenty barrels of fish per ounce of gold, sixteen dozen eggs per ounce of gold, and one-third hour of X's labor per ounce of gold. This sort of list, or array, goes on and on for each of the myriad exchanges of goods against money. The inverse of the money price of any good gives us the goods price of money in terms of that particular good. Money, in a sense, is the only good that remains, as far as its prices are concerned, in the same state that every good was in a regime of barter. In barter, every good had only its ruling market price in terms of every other good, fish price of eggs, horse price of movies, etc. In a money economy, every good except money now has one market price in terms of money. Money, on the other hand, still has an almost infinite array of goods prices that establish the goods price of money. The entire array considered together yields us the general goods price of money. For if we consider the whole array of goods prices, we know what one ounce of money will buy in terms of any desired combination of goods. That is, we know what that ounce's worth of money, which figures so largely in consumers' decisions, will be. Alternatively, we may say that the money price of any good discloses what its purchasing power on the market will be. Suppose a man possesses 200 barrels of fish. He estimates that the ruling market price for fish is 6 ounces per 100 barrels, and that therefore he can sell the 200 barrels for 12 ounces. The purchasing power of 100 barrels on the market is 6 ounces of money. Similarly, the purchasing power of a horse may be 5 ounces, etc., the purchasing power of a stock of any good is equal to the amount of money it can buy on the market, and is therefore directly determined by the money price that it can obtain. As a matter of fact, the purchasing power of a unit of any quantity of a good is equal to its money price. If the market money price of a dozen eggs, the unit, is one-eighth ounce of gold, then the purchasing power of the dozen eggs is also one-eighth of an ounce. Similarly, the purchasing power of a horse was five ounces, of an hour of X's labor, 
three ounces, etc. For every good except money, then, the purchasing power of its unit is identical to the money price that it can obtain on the market. What is the purchasing power of the monetary unit? Obviously, the purchasing power of, for example, an ounce of gold can be considered only in relation to all the goods that the ounce could purchase or help to purchase. The purchasing power of the monetary unit consists of an array of all the particular goods prices in the society in terms of the unit. Many writers interpret the purchasing power of the monetary unit as being some sort of price level, a measurable entity consisting of some sort of average of all goods combined. The major classical economists did not take this fallacious position. As Jacob Viner writes, when they speak of the value of money or of the level of prices without explicit qualification, they mean the array of prices of both commodities and services in all its particularity and without conscious implication of any kind of statistical average. It consists of a huge array of the type above, one-fifth horse per ounce, 20 barrels of fish per ounce, 16 dozen eggs per ounce, etc. It is evident that the money commodity and the determinants of its purchasing power introduce a complication in the demand and supply schedules of Chapter 2 that must be worked out. There cannot be a mere duplication of the demand and supply schedules of barter conditions, since the demand and supply situation for money is a unique one. Before investigating the price of money and its determinants, we must first take a long detour and investigate the determination of the money prices of all the other goods in the economy. 2. Determination of Money Prices Let us first take a typical good and analyze the determinants of its money price on the market. Here the listener is referred back to the more detailed analysis of price in Chapter 2. Let us take a homogeneous good, grade A butter, in exchange against money. The money price is determined by actions decided according to individual value scales. For example, a typical buyer's value scale may be ranked as follows. At the top, seven grains of gold, followed by a first pound of butter, followed by six grains of gold, followed by five grains of gold, followed by a second pound of butter, followed by four grains of gold, followed by three grains of gold, followed by a third pound of butter, followed by two grains of gold. The quantities of butter are those which the person does not possess, but is considering adding to his ownership. The others are those which he has in his possession. In this case, the buyer's maximum buying money price for his first pound of butter is six grains of gold. At any market price of six grains or under, he will exchange these grains for the butter. At a market price of seven grains or over, he will not make the purchase. His maximum buying price for a second pound of butter will be considerably lower. This result is always true and stems from the law of utility. 
As he adds pounds of butter to his ownership, the marginal utility of each pound declines. On the other hand, as he dispenses with grains of gold, the marginal utility to him of each remaining grain increases. Both these forces impel the maximum buying price of an additional unit to decline with an increase in the quantity purchased. Now suppose that the man had already paid six gold grains for one ounce of butter. When he decides on a purchase of another pound of butter, his ranking for all the units of money rise, since he now has a lower stock of money than he had before. Our tabulations, therefore, do not fully portray the rise in the marginal utility of money as money is spent. However, the correction reinforces rather than modifies our conclusion that the maximum demand price falls as quantity increases. From this value scale, we can compile this buyer's demand schedule, the amount of each good that he will consume at each hypothetical money price on the market. The individual demand schedule of the buyer under consideration is as follows. At a market price of 8 grains of gold per pound of butter, this buyer demands 0 pounds. At a market price of seven grains of gold per pound of butter, this buyer demands zero pounds. At a market price of six grains of gold per pound of butter, this buyer demands one pound. At a market price of five grains of gold per pound of butter, this buyer demands one pound. At a market price of four grains of gold per pound of butter, this buyer demands two pounds. At a market price of three grains of gold per pound of butter, this buyer demands two pounds. At a market price of two grains of gold per pound of butter, this buyer demands three pounds. At a market price of one grain of gold per pound of butter, this buyer demands three pounds. We note that because of the law of utility, the quantity demanded as the money price falls must be either the same or greater. If this is the necessary configuration of every buyer's demand schedule, it is clear that the existence of more than one buyer will tend greatly to reinforce this behavior. There are two and only two possible classifications of different people's value scales. Either they are all identical, or else they differ. In the extremely unlikely case that everyone's relevant value scales are identical with everyone else's, extremely unlikely because of the immense variety of valuations by human beings, then, for example, buyers B, C, D, etc. will have the same value scale, and therefore the same individual demand schedules as buyer A, who has just been described. To be sure, the value scales of the buyers will almost always differ, which means that their maximum buying prices for any given pound of butter will differ. The result is that, as the market price is lowered, more and more buyers of different units are brought into the market. 
As an example of the formation of a market demand schedule from individual value scales, let us take the buyer described earlier as buyer A and assume two other buyers on the market, B and C, with the following value scales. Buyer B's value scale is topped by six grains of gold, followed by the first pound of butter, followed by five grains of gold, followed by a second pound of butter, followed by four grains of gold, followed by three grains of gold, followed by two grains of gold, followed by a third and fourth pound of butter, followed by one grain of gold. For buyer C, his value scale is topped by five grains of gold, followed by four grains of gold, followed by a first pound of butter, followed by three grains of gold, followed by a second pound of butter, followed by a third pound of butter, followed by two grains of gold, followed by a fourth and fifth pound of butter, followed by one grain of gold. From these value scales, we can construct their individual demand schedules. For buyer B, at a price of seven grains per pound, the quantity demanded of the butter is zero pounds. At a price of six grains per pound, zero pounds are demanded. At a price of five grains per pound, one pound is demanded. At a price of four grains per pound, two pounds are demanded. At a price of three grains per pound, two pounds are demanded. At a price of two grains per pound, two pounds are demanded. At a price of one grain per pound, four pounds are demanded. For buyer C, at a price of five grains per pound, zero pounds are demanded. At a price of four grains per pound, zero pounds are demanded. At a price of three grains per pound, one pound is demanded. At a price of two grains per pound, three pounds are demanded. And at a price of one grain per pound, five pounds are demanded. Now we may summarize the individual demand schedules, A, B, and C, into the market demand schedule. The market demand schedule yields the total quantity of the good that will be bought by all the buyers on the market at any given money price for the good. The market demand schedule for buyers A, B, and C is as follows. At a price of seven grains per pound, zero pounds are demanded. At a price of six grains per pound, one pound is demanded. At a price of five grains per pound, two pounds are demanded. At a price of four grains per pound, four pounds are demanded. At a price of three grains per pound, five pounds are demanded. At a price of two grains per pound, eight pounds are demanded. And at a price of one grain per pound, twelve pounds are demanded. The principles of the formation of the market supply schedule are similar, although the causal forces behind the value scales will differ. Each supplier ranks each unit to be sold and the amount of money to be obtained in exchange on his value scale. Thus, one seller's value scale might be as follows. Seller X, 
at the top of his value scale, seven grains of gold, followed by six grains of gold, followed by a sixth pound of butter, followed by five grains of gold, followed by a fifth pound of butter, followed by a fourth pound of butter, followed by four grains of gold, followed by a third pound of butter, followed by three grains of gold, followed by a second pound of butter, followed by a first pound of butter, followed by two grains of gold, followed by one grain of gold. If the market price were two grains of gold, this seller would sell no butter, since even the first pound in his stock ranks above the acquisition of two grains on his value scale. At a price of three grains, he would sell two pounds, each of which ranks below three grains on his value scale. At a price of four grains, he would sell three pounds, etc., it is evident that, as the hypothetical price is lowered, the lower price must lead either to a lesser or to the same supply, never to more. Again, the reason is the law of utility. As the seller disposes of his stock, its marginal utility to him tends to rise, while the marginal utility of the money acquired tends to fall. Of course, if the marginal utility of the stock to the supplier is nil, and if the marginal utility of money to him falls only slowly as he acquires it, the law may not change his quantity supplied during the range of action on the market. Thus, a supplier Y might have the following value scale. For seller Y, his value scale is topped by six grains of gold followed by five grains of gold, followed by four grains, followed by three grains, followed by two grains, followed by a sixth pound of butter, followed by a fifth pound of butter, followed by a fourth pound of butter, followed by a third pound of butter, followed by a second pound of butter, followed by a first pound of butter, followed by one grain of gold. This seller will be willing to sell above the minimum price of one grain every unit in his stock. In Seller X's case, his minimum selling price was three grains for the first and second pounds of butter, four grains for the third pound, five grains for the fourth and fifth pounds, and six grains for the sixth pound. Seller Y's minimum selling price for the first pound and for every subsequent pound was one grain. In no case, however, can a lower price lead to more units supplied. Let us assume, for purposes of exposition, that the suppliers of butter on the market consist of just these two, X and Y, with the foregoing value scales. Then their individual and aggregate market supply schedules will be as follows. At a price of 8 grains per pound, X will supply 6 pounds, Y will supply 6 pounds, and the market will supply 12 pounds. At a price of 7 grains per pound, X and Y will both supply 6 pounds, and the market will supply 12 pounds. At a price of 6 grains per pound, X and Y will both supply 6 pounds and the market will supply 12. 
At a price of five grains per pound, X will supply five pounds, Y will supply six pounds, and the market will supply eleven. At a price of four grains per pound, X will supply three pounds, Y will supply six pounds, and the market will supply nine pounds. At a price of three grains per pound, X will supply two pounds, Y will supply six pounds, and the market will supply eight pounds. At a price of two grains per pound, X will supply no pounds, Y will supply six, and the market will supply six. And at a price of one grain per pound, no pounds will be supplied by X, Y, or the market. We notice that the price at which the quantity supplied and the quantity demanded are equal is here located at a point in between two prices. This is necessarily due to the lack of divisibility of the units. If a unit grain, for example, is indivisible, there is no way of introducing an intermediate price, and the market equilibrium price will be at either two or three grains. This will be the best approximation that can be made to a price at which the market will be precisely cleared, that is, one at which the would-be suppliers and the demanders at that price are satisfied. Let us, however, assume that the monetary unit can be further divided, and therefore that the equilibrium price is, say, two and a half grains. Not only will this simplify the exposition of price formation, it is also a realistic assumption, since one of the important characteristics of the money commodity is precisely its divisibility into minute units, which can be exchanged on the market. The money price on the market will tend to be set at the equilibrium price, in this case at two and a half grains. At a higher price, the quantity offered in supply will be greater than the quantity demanded. As a result, part of the supply could not be sold, and the sellers will underbid the price in order to sell their stock. Since only one price can persist on the market, and the buyers always seek their best advantage, the result will be a general lowering of the price toward the equilibrium point. On the other hand, if the price is below two and a half grains, there are would-be buyers at this price whose demands remain unsatisfied. These demanders bid up the price, and with sellers looking for the highest attainable price, the market price is raised toward the equilibrium point. Thus, the fact that men seek their greatest utility sets forces into motion that establish the money price at a certain equilibrium point, at which further exchanges tend to be made. The money price will remain at the equilibrium point for further exchanges of the good until demand or supply schedules change. Changes in demand or supply conditions establish a new equilibrium price, toward which the market price again tends to move. What the equilibrium price will be depends upon the configuration of the supply and demand schedules, and the causes of these schedules will be subjected to further examination later. The stock of any good is the total quantity of that good in existence. 
Some will be supplied in exchange, and the remainder will be reserved. At any hypothetical price, it will be recalled, adding the demand to buy and the reserved demand of the supplier gives the total demand to hold on the part of both groups. The total demand to hold includes the demand in exchange by present non-owners and the reservation demand to hold by the present owners. The seller's reservation demand will fall with a rise in price or will be non-existent. In either case, the total demand to hold rises as the price falls. Where there is a rise in reservation demand, the increase in the total demand to hold is greater. If there is no reservation demand schedule on the part of the sellers, then the total demand to hold is identical with the regular demand schedule. Thus, the higher the market price of a stock, the less the willingness on the market to hold and own it, and the greater the eagerness to sell it. Conversely, the lower the price of a good on the market, the greater the willingness to own it, and the less the willingness to sell it. Since all units of an existing stock must be possessed by someone, the market price of any good tends to be such that the aggregate demand to keep the stock will equal the stock itself. Then the stock will be in the hands of the most eager or most capable possessors. These are the ones who are willing to demand the most for the stock. That owner who would just sell his stock if the price rose slightly is the marginal possessor. That non-owner who would buy if the price fell slightly is the marginal non-possessor. 3. Determination of Supply and Demand Schedules Every money price of a good on the market, therefore, is determined by the supply and demand schedules of the individual buyers and sellers, and their action tends to establish a uniform equilibrium price on the market, which changes only when the schedules do. Of course, this equilibrium price might be a zone rather than a single price in those cases where there is a zone between the valuations of the marginal buyer and those of the marginal seller. In such rare cases, where there generally must be very few buyers and very few sellers, there is a zone within which the market is cleared at any point, and there is room for bargaining skill to maneuver. In the extensive markets of the money economy, however, even one buyer and one seller are likely to have one determinate price, or a very narrow zone between their maximum buying and minimum selling prices. Now the question arises, what are the determinants of the demand and supply schedules themselves? Can any conclusions be formed about the value scales and the resulting schedules? In the first place, the analysis of speculation in Chapter 2 can be applied directly to the case of the money price. There is no need to repeat that analysis here. Suffice it to say, in summary, that insofar as the equilibrium price is anticipated correctly by speculators, the demand and supply schedules will reflect the fact. 
Above the equilibrium price, demanders will buy less than they otherwise would because of their anticipation of a later drop in the money price. Below that price, they will buy more because of an anticipation of a rise in the money price. Similarly, sellers will sell more at a price that they anticipate will soon be lowered. They will sell less at a price that they anticipate will soon be raised. The more people engage in such correct speculation, the more rapidly will the equilibrium price be reached. We also saw that preponderant errors in speculation tend inexorably to be self-correcting. If the speculative demand and supply schedules preponderantly do not estimate the correct equilibrium price, then it soon becomes evident that that price does not really clear the market. Unless the equilibrium point set by the speculative schedules is identical to the point set by the schedules minus the speculative elements, the market again tends to bring the price and quantity sold to the true equilibrium point. For if the speculative schedules set the price of eggs at two grains, and the schedules without speculation would set it at three grains, there is an excess of quantity demanded over quantity supplied at two grains, and the bidding of buyers finally brings the price to three grains. This and the analysis of Chapter 2 refute the charge made by some writers that speculation is self-justifying, that it distorts the effects of the underlying supply and demand factors by tending to establish pseudo-equilibrium prices on the market. The truth is the reverse. Speculative errors in estimating underlying factors are self-correcting, and anticipation tends to establish the true equilibrium market price more rapidly. Setting speculation aside, then, let us return to the buyer's demand schedules. Suppose that he ranks the unit of a good above a certain number of ounces of gold on his value scale. What can be the possible sources of his demand for the good? In other words, what can be the sources of the utility of the good to him? There are only three sources of utility that any purchase good can have for any person. One of these is a. the anticipated later sale of the same good for a higher money price. This is the speculative demand, basically ephemeral, a useful path to uncovering the more fundamental demand factors. This demand has just been analyzed. The second source of demand is B, direct use as a consumer's good. The third source is C, direct use as a producer's good. Source B can apply only to consumer's goods. C, to producer's goods. The former are directly consumed. The latter are used in the production process and, along with other cooperating factors, are transformed into lower-order capital goods, which are then sold for money. Thus, the third source applies solely to the investing producers in their purchases of producers' goods. The second source stems from consumers. If we set aside the temporary speculative source, B is the source of the individual demand schedules for all consumers' goods. C, the source of demands for all producers' goods. 
What of the seller of the consumer's good or producer's good? Why is he demanding money in exchange? The seller demands money because of the marginal utility of money to him, and for this reason he ranks the money acquired above possession of the goods that he sells. The components and determinants of the utility of money will be analyzed in a later section. Thus, the buyer of a good demands it because of its direct use value either in consumption or in production. The seller demands money because of its marginal utility in exchange. This, however, does not exhaust the description of the components of market supply and demand, for we have still not explained the rankings of the good on the seller's value scale and the rankings of money on the buyer's. When a seller keeps his stock instead of selling it, what is the source of his reservation demand for the good? We have seen that the quantity of a good reserved at any point is the quantity of stock that the seller refuses to sell at the given price. The sources of a reservation demand by the seller are two. A. Anticipation of later sale at a higher price. This is the speculative factor analyzed previously and b. Direct use of the good by the seller. This second factor is not often applicable to producer's goods, since the seller produced the producer's good for sale, and is usually not immediately prepared to use it directly in further production. In some cases, however, this alternative of direct use for further production does exist. For example, a producer of crude oil may sell it, or, if the money price falls below a certain minimum, may use it in his own plant to produce gasoline. In the case of consumers' goods, which we are treating here, direct use may also be feasible, particularly in the case of a sale of an old consumer's good previously used directly by the seller, such as an old house, painting, etc., However, with the great development of specialization in the money economy, these cases become infrequent. If we set aside A as being a temporary factor, and realize that B is frequently not present in the case of either consumers' or producers' goods, it becomes evident that, in many cases, after the investment in production has been made and the stock of goods is on hand, the producer is often willing to sell it at any money price that he can obtain, regardless of how low the market price may be. This is, of course, by no means the same as saying that investment in further production will be made if the seller anticipates a very low money price from the sale of the product. In the latter case, the problem is to determine how much to invest at present in the production of a good to be produced and sold at a point in the future, rather than already given stock, and with the reservation demand for this stock. In the case of production, we are dealing with investment decisions concerning how much stock to produce for some later period, rather than with what to do with given stock with already produced goods. The problem of production will be treated in Chapter 5 and subsequent chapters. Another condition that might obtain on the market is a previous buyer's re-entering the market and reselling a good. 
For him to be able to do so, it is obvious that the good must be durable. A violin-playing service, for example, is so non-durable that it is not resaleable by the purchasing listeners. The total stock of the good in existence will then equal the producer's new supply, plus the producer's reserved demand, plus the supply offered by old possessors, plus the reserved demand of the old possessors, that is, the amount the old buyers retain. If the good is Chippendale chairs, which cannot be further produced, then the market supply is identical with the supply of the old possessors. There is no new production, and there are no additions to stock. It is clear that the greater the proportion of old stock to new production, other things being equal, the greater will tend to be the importance of the supply of old possessors compared to that of new producers. The tendency will be for old stock to be more important the greater the durability of the good. There is one type of consumer's good, the supply of which will have to be treated in a later section on labor and earnings. This is personal service, such as the services of a doctor, a lawyer, a concert violinist, a servant, etc. These services, as we have indicated previously, are, of course, non-durable. In fact, they are consumed by the seller immediately upon their production. Not being material objects like commodities, they are the direct emanation of the effort of the supplier himself, who produces them instantaneously upon his decision. The supply depends on the decision of whether or not to produce. Supply, personal effort, not on the sale of already produced stock. There is no stock in this sphere since the goods disappear into consumption immediately on being produced. It is evident that the concept of stock is applicable only to tangible objects. The price of personal services, however, is determined by the intersection of supply and demand forces, as in the case of tangible goods. For all goods, the establishment of the equilibrium price tends to establish a state of rest, a cessation of exchanges. After the price is established, sales will take place until the stock is in the hands of the most capable possessors, in accordance with the value scales. Where new production is continuing, the market will tend to be continuing, however, because of the inflow of new stock from producers coming into the market. This inflow alters the state of rest and sets the stage for new exchanges, with producers eager to sell their stock and consumers to buy. When total stock is fixed, and there is no new production, on the other hand, the state of rest is likely to become important. Any changes in price or new exchanges will occur as a result of changes of valuations, that is, a change in the relative position of money and the good on the value scales of at least two individuals on the market, which will lead them to make further exchanges of the good against money. Of course, where valuations are changing, as they almost always are in a changing world, markets for old stock will again be continuing. 
an example of that rare type of good for which the market may be intermittent instead of continuous is Chippendale Chairs, where the stock is very limited and the money price relatively high. The stock is always distributed into the hands of the most eager possessors, and the trading may be infrequent. Whenever one of the collectors comes to value his Chippendale below a certain sum of money, and another collector values that sum in his possession below the acquisition of the furniture, an exchange is likely to occur. Most goods, however, even non-reproducible ones, have a lively continuing market because of continual changes in valuations and a large number of participants in the market. In sum, buyers decide to buy consumers' goods at various ranges of price, setting aside previously analyzed speculative factors because of their demand for the good for direct use. They decide to abstain from buying because of their reservation demand for money, which they prefer to retain rather than spend on that particular good. Sellers supply the goods in all cases because of their demand for money, and those cases where they reserve a stock for themselves are due, aside from speculation on price increases, to their demand for the good for direct use. Thus, the general factors that determine the supply and demand schedules of any and all consumers' goods by all persons on the market are the balancing on their value scales of their demand for the good for direct use and their demand for money, either for reservation or for exchange. Although we shall further discuss investment production decisions in a later section, it is evident that decisions to invest are due to the demand for an expected money return in the future. A decision not to invest, as we have seen, is due to a competing demand to use a stock of money in the present. 4. The Gains of Exchange as in the case considered in Chapter 2, the sellers who are included in the sale at the equilibrium price are those whose value scales make them the most capable, the most eager sellers. Similarly, it will be the most capable or most eager buyers who will purchase the good at the equilibrium price. With a price of two and a half grains of gold per pound of butter, the sellers will be those for whom two and a half grains of gold is worth more than one pound of butter. The buyers will be those for whom the reverse valuation holds. Those who are excluded from sale or purchase by their own value scales are the less capable or less eager buyers and sellers, who may be referred to as submarginal. The marginal buyer and the marginal seller are the ones whose schedules just barely permit them to stay in the market. The marginal seller is the one whose minimum selling price is just two and a half. A slightly lower selling price would drive him out of the market. The marginal buyer is the one whose maximum buying price is just two and a half. A slightly higher selling price would drive him out of the market. Under the law of price uniformity, all the exchanges are made at the equilibrium price once it is established, 
that is, between the valuations of the marginal buyer and those of the marginal seller, with the demand and supply schedules and their intersection determining the point of the margin. It is clear from the nature of human action that all buyers will benefit, or decide they will benefit, from the exchange. Those who abstain from buying the good have decided that they would lose from the exchange. These propositions hold true for all goods. Much importance has been attached by some writers to the psychic surplus gained through exchange by the most capable buyers and sellers, and attempts have been made to measure or compare these surpluses. The buyer who would have bought the same amount for four grains is obviously attaining a subjective benefit, because he can buy it for two and a half. The same holds for the seller who might have been willing to sell the same amount for two grains. However, the psychic surplus of the supramarginal cannot be contrasted to or measured against that of the marginal buyer or seller, for it must be remembered that the marginal buyer or seller also receives a psychic surplus. He gains from the exchange or else he would not make it. Value scales of each individual are purely ordinal, and there is no way whatever of measuring the distance between the rankings. Indeed, any concept of such distance is a fallacious one. Consequently, there is no way of making interpersonal comparisons and measurements, and no basis for saying that one person subjectively benefits more than another. We might in some situations make such comparisons as historians, using imprecise judgment. We cannot, however, do so as praxeologists or economists. We may illustrate the impossibility of measuring utility or benefit in the following way. Suppose that the equilibrium market price for eggs has been established at three grains per dozen. The following are the value scales of some selected buyers and would-be buyers. At the top of buyer A's value scale is four grains of gold, followed by three and a half grains of gold, followed by one dozen eggs, followed by three grains of gold, followed by two and a half grains of gold. At the top of buyer B's value scale is five grains of gold, followed by one dozen eggs, followed by four and a half grains of gold, followed by four grains, followed by three and a half grains, followed by three grains, followed by two and a half grains. The value scale of buyer C is topped by three and a half grains of gold, followed by three grains of gold, followed by one dozen eggs, followed by two and a half grains of gold. The money prices are divided into units of one-half grain. For purposes of simplification, each buyer is assumed to be considering the purchase of one unit, one dozen eggs. C is obviously a submarginal buyer. He is just excluded from the purchase, because three grains is higher on his value scale than the dozen eggs. A and B, however, will make the purchase. Now A is a marginal buyer. He is just able to make the purchase. 
at a price of three and a half grains, he would be excluded from the market because of the rankings on his value scale. B, on the other hand, is a supramarginal buyer. He would buy the dozen eggs even if the price were raised to four and a half grains. But can we say that B benefits from his purchase more than A? No, we cannot. Each value scale, as has been explained previously, is purely ordinal, a matter of rank. Even though B prefers the eggs to four and a half grains, and A prefers three and a half grains to the eggs, we still have no standard for comparing the two surpluses. All we can say is that above the price of three grains, B has a psychic surplus from exchange, while A becomes submarginal with no surplus. But even if we assume for a moment that the concept of distance between ranks makes sense, for all we know, A's surplus over three grains may give him a far greater subjective utility than B's surplus over three grains, even though the latter is also a surplus over four and a half grains. There can be no interpersonal comparison of utilities, and the relative rankings of money and goods on different value scales cannot be used for such comparisons. Those writers who have vainly attempted to measure psychic gains from exchange have concentrated on consumer surpluses. Most recent attempts try to base their measurements on the price a man would have paid for the good if confronted with the possibility of being deprived of it. These methods are completely fallacious. The fact that A would have bought a suit at 80 gold grains as well as at the 50 grains market price, while B would not have bought the suit if the price had been as high as 52 grains, does not, as we have seen, permit any measurement of the psychic surpluses, nor does it permit us to say that A's gain was in any way greater than B's. The fact that even if we could identify the marginal and supramarginal purchasers, we could never assert that one's gain is greater than another's, is a conclusive reason for the rejection of all attempts to measure consumers or other psychic surpluses. There are several other fundamental methodological errors in such a procedure— in the first place, individual value scales are here separated from concrete action. But economics deals with the universal aspects of real action, not with the actor's inner psychological workings. We deduce the existence of a specific value scale on the basis of the real act. We have no knowledge of that part of a value scale that is not revealed in real action. The question how much one would pay if threatened with deprivation of the whole stock of a good is strictly an academic question, with no relation to human action. Like all other such constructions, it has no place in economics. Furthermore, this particular concept is a reversion to the classical economic fallacy of dealing with the whole supply of a good as if it were relevant to individual action. 
it must be understood that only marginal units are relevant to action, and that there is no determinate relation at all between the marginal utility of a unit and the utility of the supply as a whole. It is true that the total utility of a supply increases with the size of the supply. This is deducible from the very nature of a good. Ten units of a good will be ranked higher on an individual's value scale than four units will. But this ranking is completely unrelated to the utility ranking of each unit when the supply is four, nine, ten, or any other amount. This is true regardless of the size of the unit. We can affirm only the trivial ordinal relationship, that is, that five units will have a higher utility than one unit, and that the first unit will have a higher utility than the second unit, the third unit, etc. But there is no determinate way of lining up the single utility with the package utility. Total utility, indeed, makes sense as a real and relevant, rather than as a hypothetical concept, only when actual decisions must be made concerning the whole supply. In that case, it is still marginal utility, but with the size of the margin or unit now being the whole supply. The absurdity of the attempt to measure consumers' surplus would become clearer if we considered, as we logically may, all the consumers' goods at once, and attempted to measure in any way the undoubted consumers' surplus arising from the fact that production for exchange exists at all. This has never been attempted. It is interesting that those who attempt to measure consumers' surplus explicitly rule out consideration of all goods or of any good that looms large in the consumer's budget. Such a course is convenient but illogical and glosses over fundamental difficulties in the analysis. It is, however, typical of the Marshallian tradition in economics. 5. The Marginal Utility of Money A. The Consumer We have not yet explained one very important problem, the ranking of money on the various individual value scales. We know that the ranking of units of goods on these scales is determined by the relative ranking of the marginal utilities of the units, in the case of barter, it was clear that the relative rankings were the results of people's evaluations of the marginal importance of the direct uses of the various goods. In the case of a monetary economy, however, the direct use value of the money commodity is overshadowed by its exchange value. In Chapter 1, Section 5 on the Law of Marginal Utility, we saw that the marginal utility of a unit of a good is determined in the following way. 1. If the unit is in the possession of the actor, the marginal utility of the unit is equal to the ranked value he places on the least important end or use that he would have to give up on losing the unit. Or, 
2. If the unit is not yet in his possession, the marginal utility of adding the unit is equal to the value of the most important end that the unit could serve. On this basis, a man allocates his stock of various units of a good to his most important uses first and his less important uses in succession, while he gives up his least important uses first. Now we saw in chapter 3 how every man allocates his stock of money among the various uses. The money commodity has numerous different uses, and the number of uses multiplies the more highly developed and advanced the money economy, division of labor, and the capital structure. Decisions concerning numerous consumer goods, numerous investment projects, consumption at present versus expected increased returns in the future, and addition to cash balance must all be made. We say that each individual allocates each unit of the money commodity to its most important use first, then to the next most important use, etc., thus determining the allocation of money in each possible use and line of spending. The least important use is given up first, as with any other commodity. We are not interested here in exploring all aspects of the analysis of the marginal utility of money, particularly the cash balance decision, which must be left for later treatment. We are interested here in the marginal utility of money as relevant to consumption decisions. Every man is a consumer, and therefore the analysis applies to everyone taking part in the nexus of monetary exchange. Each succeeding unit that the consumer allocates among different lines of spending, he wishes to allocate to the most highly valued use that it can serve. His psychic revenue is the marginal utility, the value of the most important use that will be served. His psychic cost is the next most important use that must be foregone the use that must be sacrificed in order to attain the most important end. The highest-ranked utility foregone, therefore, is defined as the cost of any action. The utility a person derives or expects to derive from an act of exchange is the marginal utility of adding the good purchased, that is, the most important use for the units to be acquired. The utility that he foregoes is the highest utility that he could have derived from the units of the good that he gives up in the exchange. When he is a consumer purchasing a good, his marginal utility of addition is the most highly valued use to which he could put the units of the good. This is the psychic revenue that he expects from the exchange. On the other hand, what he foregoes is the use of the units of money that he sells or gives up. His cost, then, is the value of the most important use to which he could have put the money. Every man strives in action to achieve a psychic revenue greater than his psychic cost, and thereby a psychic profit. This is true of the consumer's purchases as well. 
error is revealed when his choice proves to be mistaken, and he realizes that he would have done better to have pursued the other, foregone, course of action. Now, as the consumer adds to his purchases of a good, the marginal utility which the added good has for him must diminish in accordance with the law of marginal utility. On the other hand, as he gives up units of a good in sale, the marginal utility that this good has for him becomes greater in accordance with the same law. Eventually, he must cease purchasing the good, because the marginal utility of the good foregone becomes greater than the marginal utility of the good purchased. This is clearly true of direct goods. But what of money? It is obvious that money is not only a useful good, but one of the most useful in a money economy. It is used as a medium in practically every exchange. We have seen that one of a man's most important activities is the allocation of his money stock to various desired uses. It is obvious, therefore, that money obeys the law of marginal utility, just as any other commodity does. Money is a commodity, divisible into homogeneous units. Indeed, one of the reasons the commodity is picked as money is its ready divisibility into relatively small homogeneous units. The first unit of money will be allocated to its most important and valued use to an individual. The second unit will be allocated to its second most valued use, etc. Any unit of money that must be given up will be surrendered at the sacrifice of the least highly valued use previously being served, or which would have been served. Therefore, it is true of money, as of any other commodity, that as its stock increases, its marginal utility declines, and that as its stock declines, its marginal utility to the person increases. Its marginal utility of addition is equal to the rank of the most highly valued end the monetary unit can attain, and its marginal utility is equal in value to the most highly valued end that would have to be sacrificed if the unit were surrendered. What are the various ends that money can serve? They are a. The non-monetary uses of the money commodity, such as the use of gold for ornament. b. Expenditure on the many different kinds of consumers' goods. c. Investment in various alternative combinations of factors of production. and d. Additions to the cash balance. Each of these broad categories of uses encompasses a large number of types and quantities of goods, and each particular alternative is ranked on the individual's value scale. It is clear what the uses of consumption goods are. They provide immediate satisfaction for the individual's desires, and are thus immediately ranked on his value scale. It is also clear that when money is used for non-monetary purposes, it becomes a direct consumer's good itself, instead of a medium of exchange. Investment, which will be further discussed later, aims at a greater level of future consumption through investing in capital goods at present. What is the usefulness of keeping or adding to a cash balance? 
This question will be explored in later chapters, but here we may state that the desire to keep a cash balance stems from fundamental uncertainty as to the right time for making purchases, whether of capital or of consumers' goods. Also important are a basic uncertainty about the individual's own future value scale and the desire to keep cash on hand to satisfy any changes that might occur. Uncertainty, indeed, is a fundamental feature of all human action, and uncertainty about changing prices and changing value scales are aspects of this basic uncertainty. If an individual, for example, anticipates a rise in the purchasing power of the monetary unit in the near future, he will tend to postpone his purchases toward that day and add now to his cash balance. On the other hand, if he anticipates a fall in purchasing power, he will tend to buy more at present and draw down his cash balance. An example of general uncertainty is an individual's typical desire to keep a certain amount of cash on hand in case of a rainy day or an emergency that will require an unanticipated expenditure of funds in some direction. His feeling safer in such a case demonstrates that money's only value is not simply when it makes exchanges. Because of its very marketability, its mere possession in the hands of an individual performs a service for that person. That money in one's cash balance is performing a service demonstrates the fallacy in the distinction that some writers make between circulating money and money in idle hoards. In the first place, all money is always in someone's cash balance. It is never moving in some mysterious circulation. It is in A's cash balance, and then, when A buys eggs from B, it is shifted to B's cash balance. Secondly, regardless of the length of time any given unit of money is in one person's cash balance, it is performing a service to him, and is therefore never in an idle hoard. What is the marginal utility and the cost involved in any act of consumption exchange? When a consumer spends five grains of gold on a dozen eggs, this means that he anticipates that the most valuable use for the five grains of gold is to acquire the dozen eggs. This is his marginal utility of addition of the five grains. This utility is his anticipated psychic revenue from the exchange. What then is the opportunity cost, or simply the cost of the exchange, that is, the next best alternative foregone? This is the most valuable use that he could have made with the five grains of gold. This could be any one of the following alternatives, whichever is the highest on his value scale. A. Expenditure on some other consumer's good. B. Use of the money commodity for purposes of direct consumption. C. Expenditure on some line of investment in factors of production to increase future monetary income and consumption. D. Addition to his cash balance. It should be noted that since this cost refers to a decision on a marginal unit of whatever size, this is also the marginal cost of the decision.
This cost is subjective and is ranked on the individual's value scale. The nature of the cost or utility foregone of a decision to spend money on a particular consumer's good is clear in the case where the cost is the value that could have been derived from another act of consumption. When the cost is foregone investment, then what is foregone is expected future increases in consumption, expressed in terms of the individual's rate of time preference, which will be further explored later. At any rate, when an individual buys a particular good, such as eggs, the more he continues to buy, the lower will be the marginal utility of addition that each successive unit has for him. This, of course, is in accordance with the law of marginal utility. On the other hand, the more money he spends on eggs, the greater will be the marginal utility foregone in whatever is the next best good, for example, butter. Thus, the more he spends on eggs, the less will be his marginal utility derived from eggs, and the greater will be his marginal cost of buying eggs, that is, the value that he must forego. Eventually, the latter becomes greater than the former. When this happens, and the marginal cost of purchasing eggs becomes greater than the marginal utility of addition of the commodity, he switches his purchases to butter, and the same process continues. With any stock of money, a man's consumption expenditures come first, and expenditures on each good follow the same law. In some cases, the marginal cost of consumption on a consumer's good becomes investment in some line, and the man may invest some money in factors of production. This investment continues until the marginal cost of such investment, in terms of foregone consumption or cash balance, is greater than the present value of the expected return. Sometimes the most highly valued use is an addition to one's cash balance, and this continues until the marginal utility derived from this use is less than the marginal cost in some other line. In this way, a man's monetary stock is allocated among all the most highly valued uses. And in this way, individual demand schedules are constructed for every consumer's good, and market demand schedules are determined as the summation of the individual demand schedules on the market. Given the stocks of all the consumer's goods, this given will be analyzed in succeeding chapters. Their market prices are thereby determined. It might be thought, and many writers have assumed, that money has here performed the function of measuring and rendering comparable the utilities of the different individuals. It has, however, done nothing of the sort. The marginal utility of money differs from person to person, just as does the marginal utility of any other good. The fact that an ounce of money can buy various goods on the market, and that such opportunities may be open to all, does not give us any information about the ways in which various people will rank these different combinations of goods. There is no measuring or comparability in the field of values or ranks. 
money permits only prices to be comparable by establishing money prices for every good. It might seem that the process of ranking and comparing on value scales by each individual has established and determined the prices of consumers' goods without any need for further analysis. The problem, however, is not nearly so simple. Neglect or evasion of the difficulties involved has plagued economics for many years. Under a system of barter, there would be no analytic difficulty. All the possible consumers' goods would be ranked and compared by each individual, the demand schedules of each in terms of the other would be established, etc. Relative utilities would establish individual demand schedules, and these would be summed up to yield market demand schedules. But in the monetary economy, a grave analytic difficulty arises. To determine the price of a good, we analyze the market demand schedule for the good. This, in turn, depends on the individual demand schedules. These, in their turn, are determined by the individual's value rankings of units of the good and units of money as given by the various alternative uses of money. Yet, the latter alternatives depend, in turn, on given prices of the other goods. A hypothetical demand for eggs must assume as given some money price for butter, clothes, etc. But how, then, can value scales and utilities be used to explain the formation of money prices when these value scales and utilities themselves depend upon the existence of money prices? B. The Money Regression it is obvious that this vitally important problem of circularity, X depends on Y while Y depends on X, exists not only in regard to decisions by consumers, but also in regard to any exchange decision in the money economy. Thus, let us consider the seller of the stock of a consumer's good. At a given offered money price, he must decide whether to sell the units of his stock or whether to hold on to them. His eagerness to sell in exchange for acquiring money is due to the use that money would have for him. The money would be employed in its most important uses for him, and this will determine his evaluation of the money or its marginal utility of addition. But the marginal utility of addition of money to the seller of the stock is based on its already being money and its ready command of other goods that the seller will buy, consumers' goods and factors of production alike. The seller's marginal utility, therefore, also depends on the previous existence of money prices for the various goods in the economy. Similarly, for the laborer, landowner, investor, or owner of a capital good, in selling his services or goods, money has a marginal utility of addition, which is a necessary prior condition to his decision to sell the goods, and therefore a determinant in his supply of the good for money. And yet, this marginal utility always depends on there being a previous array of money prices in existence, 
The seller of any good or service for money, therefore, ranks the marginal utility of the money that he will obtain against the marginal utility of holding on to the good or service. Whoever spends money to buy any good or service ranks the marginal utility which keeping the money has for him against the marginal utility of acquiring the good. These value scales of the various buyers and sellers determine the individual supply-demand schedules, and hence all money prices. Yet, in order to rank money and goods on his value scale, money must already have a marginal utility for each person, and this marginal utility must be based on the fact of pre-existing money prices of the various goods. It is true that, quoting Ludwig von Mises, he who considers acquiring or giving away money is, of course, first of all, interested in its future purchasing power and the future structure of prices. But he cannot form a judgment about the future purchasing power of money otherwise than by looking at its configuration in the immediate past. The solution of this crucial problem of circularity has been provided by Professor Ludwig von Mises in his notable theory of the money regression. This problem obstructed the development of economic science until Mises provided the solution. Failure to solve it led many economists to despair of ever constructing a satisfactory economic analysis of money prices. They were led to abandon fundamental analysis of money prices and to separate completely the prices of goods from their money components. In this fallacious course, they assumed that individual prices are determined wholly as in barter, without money components, while the supply of and the demand for money determined an imaginary figment called the general price level. Economists began to specialize separately in the theory of price, which completely abstracted from money in its real functions, and a theory of money which abstracted from individual prices and dealt solely with a mythical price level. The former were solely preoccupied with a particular price and its determinants, the latter solely with the economy as a whole without relation to the individual components, called microeconomics and macroeconomics, respectively. Actually, such fallacious premises led inevitably to erroneous conclusions. It is certainly legitimate and necessary for economics in working out an analysis of reality to isolate different segments for concentration as the analysis proceeds, but it is not legitimate to falsify reality in this separation, so that the final analysis does not present a correct picture of the individual parts and their interrelations. The theory of money regression may be explained by examining the period of time that is being considered in each part of our analysis. Let us define a day as the period of time just sufficient to determine the market prices of every good in the society. On day X, then, the money price of each good is determined by the interactions of the supply and demand schedules of money and the good by the buyers and sellers on that day. 
Each buyer and seller ranks money and the given good in accordance with the relative marginal utility of the two to him. Therefore, a money price at the end of day X is determined by the marginal utilities of money and the good as they existed at the beginning of day X. But the marginal utility of money is based, as we have seen, on a previously existing array of money prices. Money is demanded and considered useful because of its already existing money prices. Therefore, the price of a good on day X is determined by the marginal utility of the good on day X and the marginal utility of money on day X, which last, in turn, depends on the prices of goods on day X minus 1. The economic analysis of money prices is therefore not circular. If prices today depend on the marginal utility of money today, the latter is dependent on money prices yesterday. Thus, in every money price in any day, there is contained a time component, so that this price is partially determined by the money prices of yesterday. This does not mean specifically that the price of eggs today is partially determined by the price of eggs yesterday, the price of butter today by that of yesterday, etc. On the contrary, the time component essential to each specific price today is the general array of yesterday's money prices for all goods and, of course, the subsequent evaluation of the monetary unit by the individuals in the society. If we consider the general array of today's prices, however, an essential time component in their determination is the general array of yesterday's prices. This time component is purely on the money side of the determining factors. In a society of barter, there is no time component in the prices of any given day. When horses are being exchanged against fish, the individuals in the market decide on the relative marginal utilities solely on the basis of the direct uses of the commodities. These direct uses are immediate and do not require any previously existing prices on the market. Therefore, the marginal utilities of direct goods, such as horses and fish, have no previous time components, and therefore there is no problem of circularity in a system of barter. In such a society, if all previous markets and knowledge of previous prices were somehow wiped out, there would, of course, be an initial period of confusion while each individual consulted his value scales and tried to estimate those of others, but there would be no great difficulty in speedily re-establishing the exchange markets. The case is different in a monetary economy. Since the marginal utility of the money commodity depends on previously existing money prices, a wiping out of existing markets and knowledge of money prices would render impossible the direct re-establishment of a money economy. The economy would be wrecked and thrown back into a highly primitive state of barter, after which a money economy could only slowly be re-established as it had been before.
Now the question may be raised. Granted that there is no circularity in the determination of money prices, does not the fact that the causes partially regress backward in time simply push the unexplained components back further without end? If today's prices are partly determined by yesterday's prices, and yesterday's by those of the day before yesterday, etc., is not the regression simply pushed back infinitely, and part of the determination of prices thus left unexplained? The answer is that the regression is not infinite, and the clue to its stopping point is the distinction just made between conditions in a money economy and conditions in a state of barter. We remember that the utility of money consists of two major elements, the utility of the money as a medium of exchange and the utility of the money commodity in its direct commodity use, such as the use of gold for ornaments. In the modern economy, after the money commodity has fully developed as a medium of exchange, its use as a medium tends greatly to overshadow its direct use in consumption. The demand for gold as money far exceeds its demand as jewelry. However, the latter use and demand continue to exist and to exert some influence on the total demand for the money commodity. In any day in the money economy, the marginal utility of gold, and therefore the demand for it, enter into the determination of every money price. The marginal utility of gold and the demand for it today depend on the array of money prices existing yesterday, which in turn depended on the marginal utility of gold and the demand for it yesterday, etc., now, as we regress backwards in time, we must eventually arrive at the original point when people first began to use gold as a medium of exchange. Let us consider the first day on which people passed from the system of pure barter and began to use gold as a medium of exchange. On that day, the money price, or rather, the gold price of every other good, depended partially on the marginal utility of gold. This marginal utility had a time component, namely the previous array of gold prices, which had been determined in barter. In other words, when gold first began to be used as a medium of exchange, its marginal utility for use in that capacity depended on the existing previous array of gold prices established through barter. But if we regress one day further to the last day of barter, the gold prices of various goods on that day, like all other prices, had no time components. They were determined, as were all other barter prices, solely by the marginal utility of gold and of the other goods on that day, and the marginal utility of gold, since it was used only for direct consumption, had no temporal component. The determination of money prices, gold prices, is therefore completely explained with no circularity and no infinite regression. 
The demand for gold enters into every gold price, and today's demand for gold, insofar as it is for use as a medium of exchange, has a time component, being based on yesterday's array of gold prices. This time component regresses until the last day of barter, the day before gold began to be used as a medium of exchange. On that day, gold had no utility in that use. The demand for gold was solely for direct use, and consequently the determination of the gold prices for that day and for all previous days had no temporal component whatever. As we regress in time and approach the original days of barter, the exchange use in the demand for gold becomes relatively weaker as compared to the direct use of gold, until finally, on the last day of barter, it dies out altogether, the time component dying out with it. It should be noted that the crucial stopping point of the regression is not the cessation of the use of gold as money, but the cessation of its use as a medium of exchange. It is clear that the concept of a general medium of exchange, money, is not important here. As long as gold is used as a medium of exchange, gold prices will continue to have temporal components. It is true, of course, that for a commodity used as a limited medium of exchange, only a limited array of prices has to be taken into account in considering its utility. One of the important achievements of the regression theory is its establishment of the fact that money must arise in the manner described in Chapter 3. That is, it must develop out of a commodity already in demand for direct use, the commodity then being used as a more and more general medium of exchange. Demand for a good as a medium of exchange must be predicated on a previously existing array of prices in terms of other goods. A medium of exchange can therefore originate only according to our previous description. It can arise only out of a commodity previously used directly in a barter situation, and therefore having had an array of prices in terms of other goods. Money must develop out of a commodity with a previously existing purchasing power, such as gold and silver had. It cannot be created out of thin air by any sudden social compact or edict of government. On the other hand, it does not follow from this analysis that if an extant money were to lose its direct uses, it could no longer be used as money. Thus, if gold, after being established as money, were suddenly to lose its value in ornaments or industrial uses, it would not necessarily lose its character as a money. Once a medium of exchange has been established as a money, money prices continue to be set. If on day X gold loses its direct uses, there will still be previously existing money prices that had been established on day X-1, and these prices form the basis for the marginal utility of gold on day X. 
Similarly, the money prices thereby determined on day X form the basis for the marginal utility of money on day X plus one. From X on, gold could be demanded for its exchange value alone, and not at all for its direct use. Therefore, while it is absolutely necessary that a money originate as a commodity with direct uses, it is not absolutely necessary that the direct uses continue after the money has been established. The money prices of consumers' goods have now been completely explained in terms of individual value scales, and these value scales have been explained up to the point of the content of the subjective use valuations of each good. Economics is not concerned with the specific content of these ends, but with the explanation of various phenomena of action based on any given ends, and therefore its task in this sphere is fully accomplished by tracing these phenomena back to subjective valuations of useful goods. Professor Don Patinkin criticizes Mises for allegedly basing the regression theorem on the view that the marginal utility of money refers to the marginal utility of the goods for which money is exchanged, rather than the marginal utility of holding money, and charges Mises with inconsistently holding the latter view in part of his theory of money and credit. In fact, Mises' concept of the marginal utility of money does refer to the utility of holding money, and Mises' point about the regression theorem is a different one, namely that the marginal utility to hold is in itself based on the prior fact that money can exchange for goods, that is, on the prior money prices of goods. Hence, it becomes necessary to break out of this circularity by means of the regression theorem. In short, the prices of goods have to exist in order to have a marginal utility of money to hold. In his own theory, Patinkin very feebly tries to justify circularity by saying that in analyzing the market, market experiment, he begins with utility, and in analyzing utility, he begins with prices, individual experiment. But the fact remains that he is caught inextricably in a circular trap, which a methodology of cause and effect, in contrast to a mathematical type of mutual determination, would quickly reveal. C. Utility and Costs we may sum up the utility and cost considerations in decisions of buyers and sellers of consumers' goods, or rather of potential buyers and sellers, as follows. For the seller, revenue is the marginal utility of addition of the units of money, which equals value rank in most valuable prospective use. Cost is either 1. The marginal utility of the good in direct use, the highest ranked use that would have to be sacrificed, or 2. The marginal utility of holding for anticipated future sale at a higher price, whichever is the higher on his value scale. In cases where neither cost item is present, the sale is costless. 
For the buyer, revenue is the marginal utility of addition of the units of the good, which equals the highest-ranked direct use of the units. Cost is the marginal utility of units of money, value rank in highest-ranked use that will have to be sacrificed in making the exchange. The aim of the actor is always to achieve a psychic profit from an action by having his marginal revenue exceed his marginal cost. Only after the decision has been made, the action taken, and the consequences assessed, can the actor know if his decision was correct, that is, if his psychic revenue really did exceed his cost. It is possible that his cost may prove to have been greater than his revenue, and that therefore he lost on the exchange. It is convenient to distinguish the two vantage points by which an actor judges his action as ex-ante and ex-post. Ex-ante is his position when he must decide on a course of action. It is the relevant and dominant consideration for human action. It is the actor considering his alternative courses and the consequences of each. Ex-post is his recorded observation of the results of his past action. It is the judging of his past actions and their results. Ex-ante, then, he will always take the most advantageous course of action and will always have a psychic profit, with revenue exceeding cost. Ex-post, he may have profited or lost from a course of action. Revenue may or may not have exceeded cost, depending on how good an entrepreneur he has been in making his original action. It is clear that his ex-post judgments are mainly useful to him in the weighing of his ex-ante considerations for future action. Suppose that an ultimate consumer buys a product and then finds he was mistaken in this purchase, and the good has little or no value to him. Thus, a man might buy a cake and find that he does not like it at all. Ex-ante, the expected utility of the cake was greater than the marginal utility of the money foregone in purchasing it. Ex-post, he finds that he was in error, and that if he had it to do over again, he would not have bought the cake. The purchase was the consumer's responsibility, and he must bear the loss as well as the gain from his voluntary transaction. Of course, no one can relive the past, but he can use this knowledge, for example, to avoid purchasing such a cake again. It should be obvious that the cake once purchased may have little or no value, even though the man originally paid several grains of gold for it. The cost of the cake was the foregone marginal utility of the three grains of gold paid for it. But this cost incurred in the past cannot confer any value on the cake now. This would seem obvious, and yet economics has always suffered from neglect of this truth, particularly during the 19th century, in the form of various cost theories of value. These cost theories asserted that the value of goods is conferred by the costs or sacrifices incurred in their acquisition in the past. 
On the contrary, it is clear that value can be conferred on a good only by individuals' desires to use it directly in the present, or in the present expectation of selling to such individuals in the future. As Philip Wicksteed states, efforts are regulated by anticipated values, but values are not controlled by antecedent efforts and the value of what you have got is not affected by the value of what you have relinquished or foregone in order to get it. But the measure of the advantages you are willing to forego in order to get a thing is determined by the value that you expect it to have when you have got it. We may modify the buyer summary by considering the case in which the buyer is not an ultimate consumer, but rather a speculative buyer anticipating a future price rise. In that case, the higher revenue for him will be the marginal utility of holding for anticipated future sale at a higher price, which he considers net of the cost of storage. D. Planning and the Range of Choice It should be evident that the establishment of money tremendously broadens the range of choice open to everybody. The range of alternative uses that can be satisfied by units of money is far wider than the number of uses to which individual goods can be put. Horses or houses can be allocated to several uses, raw materials to many areas of production, but money can be allocated in expenditure on every single type of exchangeable good in the society, whether a tangible commodity or an intangible service, a consumer's or a capital or a natural good, or claims to these goods. Money serves greatly to expand the range of choice, and it itself becomes a key means to be allocated to the most highly valued of alternative ends. We shall see in chapter 11 that money is unique in not conferring any general benefit through an increase in the supply once money has been established on the market. It might be worthwhile to consider at this point what each person does in action. He is always engaged in allocating means to the most highly valued of his alternative ends, as ranked on his value scale. His actions in general, and his actions in exchange in particular, are always the result of certain expectations on his part, expectations of the most satisfactory course that he could follow. He always follows the route that he expects will yield him the most highly ranked available end at a certain future time, which might in some cases be so near as to be almost immediate and therefore a psychic profit from the action. If he proves to have acted erroneously so that another course of action would have yielded him a greater psychic revenue, then he has incurred a loss. Ex ante, he appraises his situation, present and prospective future, chooses among his valuations, tries to achieve the highest ones according to his know-how, and then chooses courses of action on the basis of these plans. Plans are his decisions concerning future action, based on his ranking of ends and on his assumed knowledge of how to attain the ends. 
Every individual, therefore, is constantly engaged in planning. This planning may range from an impressive investment in a new steel plant to a small boy's decision to spend two cents on candy, but it is planning, nevertheless. Planning does not necessarily mean that the man has pondered long and hard over a decision and subsequent action. He might have made his decision almost instantaneously. Yet this is still planned action. Since all action is purposive rather than reflexive, there must always before an action have been a decision to act as well as valuations. Therefore, there is always planning. It is erroneous, therefore, to assert that a free market society is unplanned. On the contrary, each individual plans for himself. But does not chaos result from the fact that individual plans do not seem to be coordinated? On the contrary, the exchange system in the first place coordinates individual plans by benefiting both parties to every exchange. In the second place, the bulk of the present volume is devoted to an explanation and analysis of the principles and order that determine the various exchange phenomena in a monetary economy: prices, output, expenditures, etc. Far from being chaotic, the structure of the monetary economy presents an intricate, systematic picture and is deducible from the basic existence of human action and indirect exchange. As Wicksteed puts it, economics must, at any rate, include and imply a study of the way in which members of society will spontaneously administer their own resources and the relations into which they will spontaneously enter with each other. Six, interrelations among the prices of consumers' goods. Thus, at any given point in time, the consumer is confronted with the previously existing money prices of the various consumers' goods on the market. On the basis of his utility scale, he determines his rankings of various units of the several goods and of money, and these rankings determine how much money he will spend on each of the various goods. Specifically, he will spend money on each particular good until the marginal utility of adding a unit of the good ceases to be greater than the marginal utility that its money price on the market has for him. This is the law of consumer action in a market economy. As he spends money on a good, the marginal utility of the new units declines, while the marginal utility of the money foregone rises until he ceases spending on that good. In those cases where the marginal utility of even one unit of a good is lower than the marginal utility of its money price, the individual will not buy any of that good. In this way, are determined the individual demand schedules for each good, and consequently the aggregate market demand schedules for all buyers. The position of the market demand schedule determines what the market price will be in the immediate future. 
Thus, if we consider action as divided into periods consisting of days, then the individual buyers set their rankings and demand schedules on the basis of the prices existing at the end of day one, and these demand schedules determine what the prices will be by the end of day two. The listener is now referred back to the discussion in Chapter 2, Sections 9 and 10. The analysis, there applied to barter conditions, applies to money prices as well. At the end of each day, the demand schedules, or rather the total demand schedules, and the stock in existence on that day set the market equilibrium price for that day. In the money economy, these factors determine the money prices of the various goods during that day. The analysis of changes in the prices of a good, set forth in Chapter 2, is directly applicable here. In the money economy, the most important markets are naturally continuous, as goods continue to be produced in each day. Changes in supply and demand schedules, or changes in total demand schedules and quantity of stock, have exactly the same directional effect as in barter. An increase in the market's total demand schedule over the previous day tends to increase the money price for the day. An increase in stock available tends to lower the price, etc., as in barter, the stock of each good at the end of each day has been transferred into the hands of the most eager possessors. Up to this point, we have concentrated on the determination of the money price of each consumer's good, without devoting much attention to the relations among these prices. The interrelationships should be clear, however. The available goods are ranked, along with the possibility of holding the money commodity in one's cash balance, on each individual's value scale. Then, in accordance with the rankings and the law of utility, the individual allocates his units of money to the most highly valued uses. The various consumers' goods, investment in various factors, and addition to his cash balance. Let us here set aside the question of the distribution chosen between consumption and investment and the question of addition to the cash balance until later chapters and consider the interrelations among the prices of consumers' goods alone. The law of the interrelation of consumers' goods is... The more substitutes there are available for any given good, the more elastic will tend to be the demand schedules, individual and market, for that good. By the definition of good, two goods cannot be perfect substitutes for each other, since if consumers regarded two goods as completely identical, they would, by definition, be one good. All consumers' goods are, on the other hand, partial substitutes for one another. When a man ranks in his value scale the myriad of goods available and balances the diminishing utilities of each, he is treating them all as partial substitutes for one another. A change in ranking for one good by necessity changes the rankings of all the other goods, since all the rankings are ordinal and relative. 
a higher price for one good, owing, say, to a decrease in stock produced, will tend to shift the demand of consumers from that to other consumers' goods, and therefore their demand schedules will tend to increase. Conversely, an increased supply and a consequent lowering of price for a good will tend to shift consumer demand from other goods to this one and lower the demand schedules for the other goods, for some, of course, more than for others. It is a mistake to suppose that only technologically similar goods are substitutes for one another. The more money consumers spend on pork, the less they have to spend on beef, or the more money they spend on travel, the less they have to spend on TV sets. Suppose that a reduction in its supply raises the price of pork on the market. It is clear that the quantity demanded and the price of beef will be affected by this change. If the demand schedule for pork is more than unitarily elastic in this range, then the higher price will cause less money to be spent on pork, and more money will tend to be shifted to such a substitute as beef. The demand schedules for beef will increase, and the price of beef will tend to rise. On the other hand, if the demand schedule for pork is inelastic, more consumers' money will be spent on pork, and the result will be a fall in the demand schedule for beef, and consequently in its price. Such interrelations of substitute goods, however, hold true in some degree for all goods, since all goods are substitutes for one another for every good is engaged in competing for the consumer's stock of money. Of course, some goods are closer substitutes than others, and the interrelations among them will be stronger than among the others. The closeness of the substitution depends, however, on the particular circumstances of the consumer and his preferences, rather than on technological similarity. Thus, consumers' goods, insofar as they are substitutes for one another, are related as follows. When the stock of A rises and the price of A therefore falls, 1. If the demand schedule for A is elastic, there will be a tendency for a decline in the demand schedules for B, C, D, etc., and consequent declines in their prices. 2. If the demand schedule for A is inelastic, there will be a rise in the demand schedules for B, C, D, etc., and a consequent rise in their prices. 3. If the demand schedule has exactly neutral or unitary elasticity, so that there is no change in the amount of money expended on A, there will be no effect on the demands for and the prices of the other goods. As the money economy develops and civilization flowers, there is a great expansion in the types of goods available, and therefore in the number of goods that can be substituted for one another. Consequently, there is a tendency for the demands for the various consumers' goods to become more elastic, although they will continue to vary from highly elastic to highly inelastic. 
insofar as the multiplication of substitutes tends to render demand for individual goods elastic, the first type of interaction will tend to predominate. Furthermore, when new types of goods are established on the market, these will clearly draw monetary demand away from other substitute products and hence bring about the first type of reaction. The substitutive interrelations of consumers' goods were cogently set forth in this passage by Philip Wicksteed. It is sufficiently obvious that when a woman goes into the market uncertain whether she will or will not buy new potatoes or chickens, the price at which she finds that she can get them may determine her either way. For the price is the first and most obvious indication of the nature of the alternatives that she is foregoing if she makes a contemplated purchase. But it is almost equally obvious that not only the price of these particular things, but the price of a number of other things also will affect the problem. If good, sound, old potatoes are to be had at a low price, the marketer will be less likely to pay a high price for new ones, because there is a good alternative to be had on good terms. If the housewife is thinking of doing honor to a small party of neighbors by providing a couple of chickens for their entertainment at supper, it is possible that she could treat them with adequate respect, though not with distinction, by substituting a few pounds of cod, and in that case not only the price of chickens but the price of cod will tend to affect her choice. But on what does the significance of the price difference between chicken and cod depend? Probably upon the price of things that have no obvious connection with either chicken or cod. A father and mother may have ambitions with respect to the education or accomplishments of their children, and may be willing considerably to curtail their expenditure on other things in order to gratify them. Such parents may be willing to incur entertaining their guests less sumptuously than custom demands, and at the same time getting French or violin lessons for their children. In such cases, the question whether to buy new or old potatoes, or whether to entertain friends with chicken or cod, or neither, may be affected by the terms on which French or music lessons of a satisfactory quality can be secured. While all consumers' goods compete with one another for consumer purchases, some goods are also complementary to one another. These are goods whose uses are closely linked together by consumers, so that movements in demand for them are likely to be closely tied together. An example of complementary consumers' goods is golf clubs and golf balls, two goods the demands for which tend to rise and fall together. In this case, for example, an increase in the supply of golf balls will tend to cause a fall in their prices, which will tend to raise the demand schedule for golf clubs, as well as to increase the quantity of golf balls demanded. This will tend to increase the price of golf clubs. 
insofar, then, as two goods are complementary to each other, when the stock of A rises and the price of A therefore falls, the demand schedule for B increases, and its price will tend to rise. Since a fall in the price of a good will always increase the quantity of the good demanded by the law of demand, this will always stimulate the demand schedule for a complementary good and thus tend to raise its price. For this effect, the elasticity of demand for the original good has no relevance. Summing up these interrelations among consumers' goods, among substitutable goods, if the stock of A rises and the price of A falls, and demand for A is inelastic, demand for and price of B, C, D, etc. rise. If stock of A rises and price of A falls and demand for A is elastic, Demand for and price of B, C, D, etc. fall. If stock of A rises and price of A falls and demand for A is neutral, there is no effect on B, C, D, etc. Among complementary goods, if the stock of A rises, the price of A falls, and demand for and the price of B, C, D, etc. rise. All goods are substitutable for one another, while fewer are complementary. When they are also complementary, then the complementary effect will be mixed with the substitutive effect and the nature of each particular case will determine which effect will be the stronger. This discussion of the interrelation of consumers' goods has treated the effect only of changes from the stock or supply side. The effects are different when the change occurs in the demand schedule instead of in the quantity of stock. Suppose that the market demand schedule for good A increases. This means that for every hypothetical price, the quantity of A bought, and therefore the amount of money spent on A, increases. But given the supply, stock, of money in the society, this means that there will be decreases in the demand schedules for one or more other goods. We omit at this point analysis of the case in which the increase in demand results from decreases of cash balance and or decreases in investment. More money spent on good A, given the stock of money, signifies that less money is spent on goods B, C, D, etc. The prices of these goods fall. Therefore, the effect of the substitutability of all goods for one another is that an increased demand for A, resulting in a rise in the price of A, will lead to decreased demand schedules and falling prices for goods B, C, D, etc., we can see this relation more fully when we realize that the demand schedules are determined by individual value scales, and that a rise in the marginal utility of a unit of A necessarily means a relative fall in the utility of the other consumer's goods.
Insofar as two goods are complementary, another effect tends to occur. If there is an increase in the demand schedule for golf clubs, it is likely to be accompanied by an increase in the demand schedule for golf balls, since both are determined by increased relative desires to play golf. When changes come from the demand side, the prices of complementary goods tend to rise and fall together. In this case, we should not say that the rise in demand for A led to a rise in demand for its complement B, since both increases were due to an increased demand for the consumption package in which the two goods are intimately related. In some cases, an old stock of a good may be evaluated differently from the new, and therefore may become a separate good. Thus, while well-stored old nails might be considered the same good as newly produced nails, an old Ford will not be considered the same as a new one. There will, however, definitely be a close relation between the two goods. If the supply schedule for the new Fords decreases and the price rises, consumers will tend to shift to the purchase of old Fords, tending to raise the price of the latter. Thus, old and new commodities, technologically similar, tend to be very close substitutes for each other, and their demands and prices tend to be closely related. Much has been written in the economic literature of consumption theory on the assumption that each consumer's good is desired quite independently of other goods. Actually, as we have seen, the desires for various goods are of necessity interdependent, since all are ranked on the consumer's value scales. Utilities of each of the goods are relative to one another. These ranked values for goods and money permit the formation of individual and then aggregate demand schedules in money for each particular good. 7. The Prices of Durable Goods and Their Services Why does a man purchase a consumer's good? As we saw back in Chapter 1, a consumer's good is desired and sought because the actor believes that it will serve to satisfy his urgently valued desires, that it will enable him to attain his valued ends. In other words, the good is valuable because of the expected services that it will provide. Tangible commodities, then, such as food, clothing, houses, etc., and intangible personal services, such as medical attention and concert performances, are similar in the life of the consumer. Both are evaluated by the consumer in terms of their services in providing him with satisfactions. Every type of consumer's good will yield a certain amount of services per unit of time. These may be called unit services. When they are exchangeable, these services may be sold individually. On the other hand, when a good is a physical commodity and is durable, it may be sold to the consumer in one piece, thereby embodying an expected future accrual of many unit services. What are the interrelations among the markets for and prices of the unit services and the durable good as a whole?
Other things being equal, it is obvious that a more durable good is more valuable than a less durable good, since it embodies more future unit services. Thus, suppose that there are two television sets, each identical in service to the viewer, but that A has an expected life of five years and B of ten. Though the service is identical, B has twice as many services as A to offer the consumer. On the market, then, the price of B will tend to be twice the price of A. Strictly, this is not correct, and the important qualification will be added later. Since, as a result of time preference, present services are worth more than the same ones in the future, and those in the near future more than those in the far future, the price of B will be less than twice the price of A. For non-durable goods, the problem of the separate sale of the service of the good and of the good itself does not arise. Since they embody services over a relatively short span of time, they are almost always sold as a whole. Butter, eggs, wheaties, etc. are sold as a whole, embodying all their services. Few would think of renting eggs. Personal services, on the other hand, are never sold as a whole, since on the free market slave contracts are not enforceable. Thus no one can purchase a doctor or a lawyer or a pianist for life to perform services at will with no further payment. Personal services, then, are always sold in their individual units. The problem whether services should be sold separately or with the good as a whole arises in the case of durable commodities, such as houses, pianos, tuxedos, television sets, etc., we have seen that goods are sold not as a total class, for example, bread or eggs, but in separate homogeneous units of their supply, such as loaves of bread or dozens of eggs. In the present discussion, a good can be sold either as a complete physical unit, a house, a television set, etc., or in service units over a period of time. This sale of service units of a durable good is called renting, or renting out, or hiring out the good. The price of the service unit is called the rent. Since the good itself is only a bundle of expected service units, it is proper to base our analysis on the service unit. It is clear that the demand for and the price of a service unit of a consumer's good will be determined on exactly the same principles as those set forth in the preceding analysis of this chapter. A durable consumer's good embodies service units as they will accrue over a period of time. Thus, suppose that a house is expected to have a life of 20 years. Assume that a year's rental of the house has a market price as determined by the market supply and demand schedules of 10 ounces of gold. Now what will be the market price of the house itself should it be sold? Since the annual rental price is 10 ounces, and if this rental is expected to continue, the buyer of the house will obtain what amounts to 20 times 10, or 200 ounces of prospective rental income. 
the price of the house as a whole will tend inexorably to equal the present value of the 200 ounces. Let us assume, for convenience at this point, that there is no phenomenon of time preference, and that the present value of 200 ounces is therefore equal to 200 ounces. In that case, the price of the house as a whole will tend to equal 200 ounces. Suppose that the market price of the house as a whole is 180 ounces. In that case, there will be a rush to buy the house, since there is an expected monetary profit to be gained by purchasing for 180 ounces and then renting out for a total income of 200 ounces. This action is similar to speculative purchasers buying a good and expecting to resell at a higher price. On the other hand, there will be a great reluctance by the present owners of such houses, or of the house if there is no other house adjudged by the market as the same good, to sell at that price, since it is far more profitable to rent it out than to sell it. Thus, under these conditions, there will be a considerable excess of demand over supply of this type of house for sale, at a price of 180 ounces. The upbidding of the excess demand tends to raise the price toward 200. On the other hand, suppose that the market price is above 200. In that case, there will be a paucity of demand to purchase, since it would be cheaper to pay rental for it instead of paying the sum to purchase it. On the contrary, possessors will be eager to sell the house rather than rent it out, since the price for sale is better. The excess supply over demand at a price over 200 will drive the price down to the equilibrium point. Thus, while every type of market price is determined as in the foregoing sections of this chapter, the market also determines price relations. We see that there is a definite relationship between the price of the unit services of a durable consumer's good and the price of the good as a whole. If that relationship is disturbed or does not apply at any particular time, the actions of individuals on the market will tend to establish it, because prospects of monetary gain arise until it is established, and action to obtain such gain inevitably tends to eliminate the opportunity. This is a case of arbitrage in the same sense as the establishment of one price for a good on the market. If two prices for one good exist, people will tend to rush to purchase in the cheaper market and sell more of the good in the more expensive market, until the play of supply and demand on each market establishes an equilibrium price and eliminates the arbitrage opportunity. In the case of the durable good and its services, there is an equilibrium price relation, which the market tends to establish. The market price of the good as a whole is equal to the present value of the sum of its expected future rental incomes or rental prices. The expected future rental incomes are, of course, not necessarily a simple extrapolation of present rental prices. Indeed, since prices are always changing, it will almost always be the case that rental prices will change in the future. 
When a person buys a durable good, he is buying its services for a length of time extending into the future. Hence, he is more concerned with future than with present rates. He merely takes the latter as a possible guide to the future. It needs to be kept in mind that strictly there is no such thing as a present price established by the market. When a man considers the price of a good, he is considering that price agreed upon in the last recorded transaction in the market. The present price is always, in reality, the historically recorded price of the most immediate past, say, a half hour ago. What always interests the actor is what various prices will be at various times in the future. Now suppose that the individuals on the market generally estimate that rents for this house over the next decade or so will be much lower than at present. The price of the house will then not be 20 times 10 ounces, but some correspondingly smaller amount. At this point, we shall define the price of the good as whole as its capital value on the market, even though there is risk of confusion with the concept of capital good. The capital value of any good, be it consumers or capital good or nature-given factor, is the money price which, as a durable good, it presently sells for on the market. The concept applies to durable goods embodying future services. The capital value of a consumer's good will tend to equal the present value of the sum of expected unit rentals. The capital value at any time is based on expectations of future rental prices. What happens when these expectations are erroneous? Suppose, for example, that the market expects the rental prices of this house to increase in the next few years, and therefore sets the capital value higher than 200 ounces. Suppose further that the rental prices actually decline instead. This means that the original capital value on the market had overestimated the rental income from the house. Those who had sold the house at, say, 250 have gained while those who bought the house in order to rent it out have lost on the transaction. Thus, those who have forecast better than their fellows gain, while the poorer forecasters lose as a result of their speculative transactions. It is obvious that such monetary profits come not simply from correct forecasting, but from forecasting more correctly than other individuals. If all the individuals had forecast correctly, then the original capital value would have been below 200, say 150, to account for the eventually lower rental prices. In that case, no such monetary profit would have appeared. The concept of monetary profit and loss and their relation to capitalization will be explored later. It should be clear that the gains or losses are the consequences of the freely undertaken action of the gainers and losers themselves. The man who has bought a good to rent out at what proves to be an excessive capital value has only himself to blame for being overly optimistic about the monetary return on his investment. 
the man who sells at a capital value higher than the eventual rental income is rewarded for his sagacity through decisions voluntarily taken by all parties. And since successful forecasters are, in effect, rewarded and poor ones penalized, and in proportion to good and poor judgment respectively, the market tends to establish and maintain as high a quality of forecasting as is humanly possible to achieve. The equilibrium relation between the capital value on the market and the sum of expected future rents is a day-to-day -day equilibrium that tends always to be set by the market. It is similar to the day-to-day -day market equilibrium price for a good set by supply and demand. On the other hand, the equilibrium relation between present capital value and actual future rents is only a long-range tendency fostered by the market's encouragement of successful forecasters. This relation is a final equilibrium, similar to the final equilibrium prices that set the goal toward which the day-to-day -day prices tend. Study of capital value and rental prices requires additional supply-demand analysis. The determination of the unit rental price presents no problem. Price determination of the capital value, however, needs to be modified to account for this dependence on and relationship to the rental price. The demand for the durable good will now be not only for direct use, but also, on the part of others, demand for investment in future renting out. If a man feels that the market price of the capital value of a good is lower than the income he can obtain from future rentals, he will purchase the good and enter the renting out market as a supplier. Similarly, the reserved demand for the good as a whole will be not only for direct use or for speculative price increases, but also for future renting out of the good. If the possessor of a durable good believes that the selling price, capital value, is lower than what he can get in rents, he will reserve the supply and rent out the good. The capital value of the good will be such as to clear the total stock, and the total of all these demands for the good will be in equilibrium. The reserved demand of the buyers will, as before, be due to their reserved demand for money, while the sellers of both the good as a whole and of its unit services will be demanding money in exchange. In other words, for any consumer's good, the possessors have the choice of either consuming it directly or selling it for money. In the case of durable consumer's goods, the possessors can do any one of the following with the good. Use it directly, sell it whole, or hire it out, selling its unit services over a period of time. We have already seen that if using it directly is highest on his value scale, then the man uses the good and reserves his stock from the market. If selling it whole is highest on his value scale, he enters the capital market for the good as a supplier. If renting it out is highest on his value scale, then he enters the renting market for the good as a supplier. 
Which of these latter alternatives will be higher on his value scale depends on his estimate of which course will yield him the higher money income. The greater the expected income, the less will be the amount reserved for direct use. It is clear that the supply schedules on the two markets are interconnected. They will tend to come into equilibrium when the equilibrium price relation is established between them. Similarly, the non-possessors of a good at any given time will choose between A. not buying it and reserving their money, B. buying it outright, and C. renting it. They will choose the course highest on their value scales, which depends partially on their demand for money and on their estimate of which type of purchase will be cheaper. If they decide to buy, they will buy on what they estimate is the cheaper market. Then they can either use the good directly or resell it on the more expensive market. Thus, if the capital value of the house is 200 and a buyer estimates that total rental prices will be 220 he buys outright at 200 after which he may either use it directly or enter the rental market as a supplier in order to earn the expected 220 ounces. The latter choice, again, depends on his value scale. Here it must be pointed out that in some cases the renting contract itself takes on the characteristics of a capital contract and the estimating of future return. Such is the case of a long-term renting contract. Suppose that A is planning to rent a house to B for 30 years at a set annual price. Then, instead of continual changes in rental price, the latter is fixed by the original contract. Here again, the demand and supply schedules are set according to the various individual estimates of the changing course of other varying rents for the same type of good. Thus, if there are two identical houses, and it is expected that the sum of the varying rents on house A for the next 30 years will be 300 ounces, then the long-term renting price for house B will tend to be set at 10 ounces per year. Here again, there is a similar connection between markets. The price of presently established long-term rents will tend to be equal to the present value of the sum of the expected fluctuating rents for identical goods. If the general expectation is that the sum of rents will be 360 ounces, then there will be a heavy demand for long-term rent purchases at 300 ounces, and a diminished supply for rent at that price, until the long-term rental price is driven to 12 ounces per year, when the sum will be the same. And here again, the ever-present uncertainty of the future causes the more able forecasters to gain and the less able ones to lose. In actuality, time preference exists, and the present value of the future rentals is always less by a certain discount than the sum of these rentals. If this were not so, the capital value of very durable goods, goods which wear out only imperceptibly, would be almost infinite. An estate expected to last and be in demand for hundreds of years would have an almost infinitely high selling price. 
The reason this does not happen is that time preference discounts future goods in accordance with the length of time being considered. How the rate of time preference is arrived at will be treated in later chapters. However, the following is an illustration of the effect of time preference on the capital value of a good. Assume a durable good expected to last for 10 years with an expected rental value of 10 ounces each year. If the rate of time preference is 10% per annum, then the future rents and their present value are as follows. In the first year, with an expected rent of 10 ounces, the present value, assuming first-year payment at one year from the present date, would be 9 ounces. In the second year, with an expected rent of 10 ounces, the present value would be 8.1 ounces. In the third year, with an expected rent of 10 ounces, the present value would be 7.3 ounces. In the fourth year, with an expected rent of 10 ounces, the present value would be 6.7 ounces. In the fifth year, with an expected rent of 10 ounces, the present value would be 6 ounces. In the sixth year, with an expected rent of 10 ounces, the present value would be 5.4 ounces. In the seventh year, with an expected rent of 10 ounces, the present value would be 4.9 ounces. In the eighth year, with an expected rent of 10 ounces, the present value would be 4.4 ounces. In the ninth year, with an expected rent of 10 ounces, the present value would be 4 ounces. And in the tenth year, with an expected rent of 10 ounces, the present value would be 3.6 ounces. The sum of these present values equals 59.4 ounces equals the capital value of the asset, as compared to a sum of 100 ounces of future rent. As the date of time recedes into the future, the compounded discount becomes greater, finally reducing the present value to a negligible amount. It is important to recognize that the time preference factor does not, as does relatively correct forecasting of an uncertain situation, confer monetary profits or losses. If the time preference rate is 10%, purchasing the aforementioned good for 59.4 ounces, holding it and renting it out for 10 years to acquire 100 ounces, does not constitute a monetary profit. Present money was at this premium over future money, and what this man earned was simply the amount of future income that the market had evaluated as equal to 59.4 ounces of present money. In general, we may sum up the action of entrepreneurs in the field of durable consumers' goods by saying that they will tend to invest in the outright purchase of already existing durable consumers' goods when they believe that the present capital value of the good on the market is less than the sum of future rentals, discounted by time preference that they will receive. They will sell such goods outright when they believe that the present capital value is higher than the discounted sum of future rentals. Better forecasters will earn profits, and poorer ones will suffer losses. 
Insofar as the forecasting is correct, these arbitrage opportunities will tend to disappear. Although we have analyzed the arbitrage profits and losses of entrepreneurship in the case of selling outright as against renting, we have yet to unravel fully the laws that govern entrepreneurial incomes, the incomes that the producers strive to obtain in the process of production. This problem will be analyzed in later chapters. 8. Welfare Comparisons and the Ultimate Satisfactions of the Consumer In our preoccupation with analysis of the action of man in the monetary economy, it must not be thought that the general truths presented in Chapter 1 remain no longer valid. On the contrary, in Chapter 1 they were applied to isolated Crusoe-type situations because we logically begin with such situations in order to be able to analyze the more complex interrelations of the monetary economy. However, the truths formulated in the first chapter are applicable still, not only through logical inferences applied to the monetary nexus, but also directly to all situations in the monetary economy in which money is not involved. There is another sense in which the analysis of the first chapter is directly applicable in a money economy. We may be primarily concerned in the analysis of exchange with the consumer's allocation of money to the most highly valued of its uses, based on the individual's value scales. We must not forget, however, the ultimate goal of the consumer's expenditures of money. This goal is the actual use of the purchased goods in attaining his most highly valued ends. Thus, for the purposes of analysis of the market, once Jones has purchased three pounds of butter, we have lost interest in the butter, assuming there is no chance of Jones re-entering the market to sell the butter. We call the retail sale of the butter the sale of the consumer's good, since this is its last sale for money along the path of the butter's production. Now the good is in the hands of the ultimate consumer. The consumer has weighed the purchase on his value scale and has decided upon it. Strictly, we must never lose sight of the fact that this purchase by the consumer is not the last stopping point of the butter when we consider human action in its entirety. The butter must be carried to the man's home. Then Jones allocates the units of butter to their most highly valued uses, buttered toast, butter in a cake, butter on a bun, etc. To use the butter in a cake or sandwich, for example, Mrs. Jones bakes the cake and prepares the sandwich, and then brings it to the table where Jones eats it. We can see that the analysis of Chapter 1 holds true in that useful goods— Horses, butter, or anything else, in the hands of the consumer, are allocated in accordance with their utility to the most highly valued uses. Also, we can see that actually the butter when last sold for money was not a consumer's good, but a capital good, albeit one of lower order than at any other previous stage of its production. 
Capital goods are produced goods that must be combined still further with other factors in order to provide the consumer's good, the good that finally yields the ultimate satisfaction to the consumer. From the full praxeological point of view, the butter becomes a consumer's good only when it is actually being eaten or otherwise consumed by the ultimate consumer. From the standpoint of praxeology proper, the complete formal analysis of human action in all its aspects, it is inadmissible to call the good at its last retail sale to the consumer a consumer's good. From the point of view of that subdivision of praxeology that covers traditional economics, that of catalactics, the science of monetary exchanges, however, it becomes convenient to call the good at the last retail stage a consumer's good. This is the last stage of the good in the monetary nexus, the last point in most cases at which it is open to producers to invest money in factors. To call the good at this final monetary stage a consumer's good is permissible, provided we are always aware of the foregoing qualifications. We must always remember that without the final stages and the final allocation by consumers, there would be no raison d'etre for the whole monetary exchange process. Economics cannot afford to dismiss the ultimate consumption stage simply because it has passed beyond the monetary nexus. It is the final goal and end of the monetary transactions by individuals in society. Attention to this point will clear up many confusions. Thus, there is the question of consumers' income. In Chapter 3, we analyzed consumers' money income and the universal goal of maximizing psychic income, and we indicated to some extent the relation between the two. Everyone attempts to maximize the latter, which includes on its value scale a vast range of all consumers' goods, both exchangeable and non-exchangeable. Exchangeable goods are generally in the monetary nexus, and therefore can be purchased for money, whereas non-exchangeable goods are not. We have indicated some of the consequences of the fact that it is psychic and not monetary income that is being maximized, and how this introduces qualifications into the expenditure of effort or labor and in the investment in producers' goods. It is also true that psychic income, being purely subjective, cannot be measured. Further, from the standpoint of praxeology, we cannot even ordinarily compare the psychic income or utility of one person with that of another. We cannot say that A's income or utility is greater than B's. We can, at least theoretically, measure monetary incomes by adding the amount of money income each person obtains, but this is by no means a measure of psychic income. Furthermore, it does not, as we perhaps might think, give any exact indication of the amount of services that each individual obtains purely from exchangeable consumer's goods. 
An income of 50 ounces of gold in one year may not, and most likely will not, mean the same to him in terms of services from exchangeable goods as an income of 50 ounces in some other year. The purchasing power of money in terms of all other commodities is continually changing, and there is no way to measure such changes. Of course, as historians rather than economists, we can make imprecise judgments comparing the real income rather than the monetary income between periods. Thus, if Jones received 1,000 ounces of income in one year and 1,200 in the next, and prices generally rose during the year, Jones' real income in terms of goods purchasable by the money has risen considerably less than the nominal monetary increase, or perhaps fallen. However, as we shall see further, there is no precise method of measuring or even identifying the purchasing power of money and its changes. Even if we confine ourselves to the same period, monetary incomes are not an infallible guide. There are, for example, many consumers' goods that are obtainable both through monetary exchange and outside the money nexus. Thus, Jones may be spending 18 ounces a month on food, rent, and household maintenance, while Smith spends only 9 ounces a month. This does not necessarily mean that Jones obtains twice as much of these services as Smith. Jones may live in a hotel, which provides him with these services in exchange for money. Smith, on the other hand, may be married and may obtain household and cooking services outside the monetary nexus. Smith's psychic income from these services may be equal to or greater than Jones, despite the lower monetary expenditures. Neither can we measure psychic incomes if we confine ourselves to goods in the monetary nexus. A and B might live in the same sort of house, but how can the economist observer deduce from this that the two are deriving the same amount of enjoyment from the house? Obviously, the degree of enjoyment will most likely differ, but the mere fact of the income or property will provide no clue to the direction or extent of the difference. It follows that the law of the diminishing marginal utility of money applies only to the valuations of each individual person. There can be no comparison of such utility between persons. Thus we cannot, as some writers have done, assert that an extra dollar is enjoyed less by a Rockefeller than by a poor man. If Rockefeller were suddenly to become poor, each dollar would be worth more to him than it is now. Similarly, if the poor man were to become rich, his value scales remaining the same, each dollar would be worth less than it is now. But this is a far cry from attempting to compare different individuals' enjoyments or subjective valuations— it is certainly possible that a Rockefeller enjoys the services of each dollar more than a poor but highly ascetic individual does. 9. Some Fallacies Relating to Utility 
A doctrine commonly held by writers on utility is that the consumer acts so as to bring the marginal utility that any good has for him into equality with the price of that good. To understand this thesis, let us examine the preference scale of Mr. Jones in contemplating the purchase of one or more suits, and we shall assume that each suit is of the same quality, the same good. Suppose his value scale is as follows. At the top, 3.4 grains of gold, followed by 3.3 grains, followed by the first suit, followed by 3.2 grains, followed by 3.1 grains, followed by a second suit, followed by 3 grains, followed by 2.9 grains, followed by 2.8 grains, followed by a third suit followed by 2.7 grains. And suppose also that the market price is 2.9 grains per suit. Jones will buy not one or three, but two suits. He will buy up to the last unit at which the diminishing marginal utility that the suit has for him exceeds the increasing marginal utility of money. We are omitting possible shifts in rank resulting from the increasing utility of money, which would only complicate matters unduly. This is obvious. Now, if a writer couches the exposition in terms of highly divisible goods, such as butter, and in terms of small units of money, such as pennies, it is easy to leap unthinkingly to the conclusion that the consumer for each good will act in such a way as to equalize, at the market price, the marginal utility of the sum of money and the marginal utility of the good. It should be clear, however, that there is never any such equalization. In the case of the suit, the rank of the second suit is still considerably above the rank of the 2.9 grains, so there is no equalization. Even in the case of the most divisible of goods, there will still be a difference in rank, not an equalization, between the two utilities. A man may buy 11 ounces of butter at 10 cents an ounce until there is nothing ranking between the 11th ounce and the 10 cents on his utility scale, yet there is still no equality, but a difference in rank, with the last ounce bought ranking higher than the last sum of money spent. Of course, the consumer tries to spend his money so as to bring the two as close as possible, but they can never be equal. Furthermore, the marginal utility of each particular good, after the purchases are made, differs in rank from that of every other. Thus, let us take one grain of gold as the monetary unit under consideration— let us say that the given market prices of various goods are as follows. Eggs, one dozen per grain. Butter, one pound per grain. Bread, one loaf per grain. Candy, one bar per grain. Now each individual will purchase each commodity until the last point at which the marginal utility of the unit exceeds the marginal utility of a grain of gold. 
For one man, this might mean the purchase of five pounds of butter, three loaves of bread, two bars of candy, etc. This would mean that either a sixth pound of butter or a fourth loaf of bread would have a lower marginal utility than a grain of gold foregone. However, the marginal utility of each good will still differ in rank from that of every other, and will not be equal to that of any other. Another, even more curious doctrine, holds that in equilibrium the ratio of the marginal utilities of the various goods equals the ratio of their prices. Without entering in detail into the manner by which these writers arrive at this conclusion, we can see its absurdity clearly, since utilities are not quantities, and therefore cannot be divided. These fallacies stem from a related one, the idea that an individual will act so as to equalize the marginal utility that any good will have in each of its uses. Applied to money, this would imply that the marginal utility of a unit of money is equal for each field of expenditure for each person. This is incorrect, as we have just seen that the marginal utilities of the various goods are not equalized. Successive units of a good are allocated to the most desired end, then to the next most desired satisfaction, etc., if there are several uses for the good, each one involving many possible units, the marginal utility of a unit in each use continues to decline as the supply increases. As goods are purchased, the marginal utility of each good purchased diminishes, and a man may allocate his money first to one use, then to another, and then to the first use again. However, in no case is there any equalization of marginal utilities. The dogma of the equalization of marginal utilities may best be illustrated in the following passage from perhaps the originator of this line of argument, Stanley Jevons. Let S be the whole stock of some commodity, and let it be capable of two distinct uses. Then we may represent the two quantities appropriated to these uses by X1 and Y1, it being a condition that X1 plus Y1 equal S. The person may be conceived as successively expending small quantities of the commodity. Now it is the inevitable tendency of human nature to choose that course which appears to offer the greatest advantage at the moment. Hence, when the person remains satisfied with the distribution he has made, it follows that no alteration would yield him more pleasure, which amounts to saying that an increment of commodity would yield exactly as much utility in one use as in another. Let delta U1, delta U2 be the increments of utility which might arise respectively from consuming an increment of commodity in the two different ways. When the distribution is completed, we ought to have delta U1 equals delta U2. The same reasoning will evidently apply to any two uses, and hence to all uses simultaneously 
so that we obtain a series of equations less numerous by a unit than the number of ways of using the commodity. The general result is that the commodity, if consumed by a perfectly wise being, must be consumed with a maximum production of utility. The chief errors here consist in conceiving utility as a certain quantity, a definite function of an increment in the commodity, and in treating the problem in terms of infinitely small steps. Both procedures are fallacious. Utilities are not quantities, but ranks, and the successive amounts of a commodity that are used are always discrete units, not infinitely small ones. If the units are discrete, then the rank of each unit differs from that of every other, and there can be no equalization. Many errors in discussions of utility stem from an assumption that it is some sort of quantity, measurable at least in principle. When we refer to a consumer's maximization of utility, for example, we are not referring to a definite stock or quantity of something to be maximized. We refer to the highest-ranking position on the individual's value scale. Similarly, it is the assumption of the infinitely small added to the belief in utility as a quantity that leads to the error of treating marginal utility as the mathematical derivative of the integral total utility of several units of a good. Actually, there is no such relation, and there is no such thing as total utility— only the marginal utility of a larger-sized unit. The size of the unit depends on its relevance to the particular action. This illustrates one of the grave dangers of the mathematical method in economics, since this method carries with it the bias of the assumption of continuity, or the infinitely small step. Most writers on economics consider this assumption a harmless but potentially very useful fiction, and point to its great success in the field of physics. They overlook the enormous differences between the world of physics and the world of human action. The problem is not simply one of acquiring the microscopic measuring tools that physics has developed. The crucial difference is that physics deals with inanimate objects that move but do not act. The movements of these objects can be investigated as being governed by precise, quantitatively determinate laws, well expressed in terms of mathematical functions. Since these laws precisely describe definite paths of movement, there is no harm at all in introducing simplified assumptions of continuity and infinitely small steps. Human beings, however, do not move in such fashion, but act purposefully, applying means to the attainment of ends. Investigating causes of human action, then, is radically different from investigating the laws of motion of physical objects. In particular, human beings act on the basis of things that are relevant to their action. The human being cannot see the infinitely small step. It, therefore, has no meaning to him and no relevance to his action. 
Thus, if one ounce of a good is the smallest unit that human beings will bother distinguishing, then the ounce is the basic unit, and we cannot simply assume infinite continuity in terms of small fractions of an ounce. The key problem in utility theory, neglected by the mathematical writers, has been the size of the unit. Under the assumption of mathematical continuity, this is not a problem at all. It could hardly be when the mathematically conceived unit is infinitely small and therefore literally sizeless. In a praxeological analysis of human action, however, this becomes a basic question. The relevant size of the unit varies according to the particular situation, and in each of these situations this relevant unit becomes the marginal unit. There is none but a simple ordinal relation among the utilities of the variously sized units. The tendency to treat problems of human action in terms of equality of utility and of infinitely small steps is also apparent in recent writings on indifference maps. Almost the entire edifice of contemporary mathematical economics and consumption theory has been built on the indifference assumption. Its basis is the treatment of large-sized classes of combinations of two goods, between which the individual is indifferent in his valuations. Furthermore, the differences between them are infinitely small, so that smooth lines and tangents can be drawn. The crucial fallacy is that indifference cannot be a basis for action. If a man were really indifferent between two alternatives, he could not make any choice between them, and therefore the choice could not be revealed in action. We are interested in analyzing human action. Any action demonstrates choice based on preference, preference for one alternative over others. There is, therefore, no role for the concept of indifference in economics or in any other praxeological science. If it is a matter of indifference for a man whether he uses 5.1 or 5.2 ounces of butter, for example, because the unit is too small for him to take into consideration, then there will be no occasion for him to act on this alternative. He will use butter in ounce units instead of tenths of an ounce. For the same reason, there are no infinitely small steps in human action. Steps are only those that are significant to human beings. Hence, they will always be finite and discrete. The error in reasoning on the basis of indifference is the failure to appreciate the fact that a problem important in the field of psychology may have no significance in the realm of praxeology, to which economics belongs. Psychology deals with the problem of how or why the individual forms value scales, and for this question it is relevant to consider whether the individual is decisive or inclined to be indifferent between various alternatives. Praxeology, however, is a logical science based on the existence of action per se, 
It is interested in explaining and interpreting real action in its universal sense, rather than in its concrete content. Its discussion of value scales is therefore a deduction from the nature of human action, and not a speculative essay on the internal workings of the mind. It is consequently irrelevant for praxeology whether a man, in having to decide between alternatives A and B, makes a choice firmly and decisively, or whether he decides by tossing a coin. This is a problem for psychology. Praxeology is concerned only with the fact that he chooses, for example, A rather than B and that therefore A ranked higher in his preference scale than B. Utility theory is not concerned with psychology or the internal operations of the mind, but is part of a separate science based on the logical consequences of the simple existence of action. Neither is praxeology based on behaviorist psychology. In fact, insofar as praxeology touches on psychology, its principles are the reverse of those of behaviorism. As we have seen, far from simply observing action in the same way as we observe and record the movements of stones, praxeology is based on a fundamental distinction between human action and the motion of inorganic matter— namely that human action is motivated toward the achievement of certain ends. Means and resources are used for the achievement of these ends. Far from leaving mind out of the picture, praxeology rests fundamentally on the basic axiom of action, action caused and put into effect by human minds. However, praxeology is not concerned with the content of these ends, the manner of arriving at them, or their order. It is concerned with analysis of the logical implications of the existence of these ends. Some writers, in their artificial separation of value scales from real action, have actually gone to the length of attempting to discover people's indifference maps by means of questionnaires. These attempts, besides being open to the stricture that indifference is not praxeologically valid, fail to realize that value scales can and do change continually and that therefore such questionnaires have no relevance to the business of economics. Economics is interested not in value scales professed in response to questionnaires, but in the values implied by real action. As Ludwig von Mises states, with regard to all attempts to separate value scales from action, the scale of value is nothing but a constructed tool of thought, the scale of value manifests itself only in real acting. It can be discerned only from the observation of real acting. It is, therefore, impermissible to contrast it with real acting and to use it as a yardstick for the appraisal of real actions. Dr. Haro Bernardelli justly says, if someone asks me in abstracto whether my love for my country is greater than my desire for freedom, I am somewhat at a loss how to answer. 
but actually having to make a choice between a trip in my country and the danger of losing my freedom, the order of intensities of my desire becomes only too determinate. Since indifference is not relevant to human action, it follows that two alternatives for choice cannot be ranked equally on an individual's value scale. If they are really ranked equally, then they cannot be alternatives for choice, and are therefore not relevant to action. Hence, not only are alternatives ranked ordinally on every man's value scale, but they are ranked without ties, that is, every alternative has a different rank. The famous illustration used by the indifference theorists to demonstrate the relevance of indifference to human action is the case of Buridan's ass. This is the fable of the ass who stands hungry, equidistant from two equally attractive bales of hay, or thirsty, equidistant from two waterholes. Since the two bales or waterholes are equally attractive in every way, the ass can choose neither one, and must therefore starve. This example is supposed to prove the great relevance of indifference to action, and to be an indication of the way that indifference is revealed in action. Compounding confusion, Schumpeter refers to this ass as perfectly rational. In the first place, it is of course difficult to conceive of an ass or a person that could be less rational. He is confronted not with two choices, but with three, the third being to starve where he is. Even on the indifferentist's own grounds, this third choice will be ranked lower than the other two on the actor's value scale. He will not choose starvation. If both the left and right waterholes are equally attractive, and he can find no reason for preferring one or the other, the ass or the man will allow pure chance, such as a flip of a coin, to decide on either one. But on one he must and will decide. Again, we are interested in preference as revealed through choice, and not in the psychology of preferences. If the flipped coin indicated the left waterhole, then the left waterhole was finally placed higher on the actor's value scale, as was revealed when he went toward it. Far from being a proof of the importance of indifference, the case of Buridan's ass is an excellent demonstration of the fact that indifference can play no part whatever in an analysis of human action. Another way of attempting a justification of the indifference analysis is to suppose that a man, Jones, chooses each of two alternatives, A and B, about 50% of the time, upon repeated opportunities. This shifting is alleged to be a demonstration that Jones is really indifferent as between the two alternatives. Yet what is the reasonable inference? Clearly that in some cases A was preferred to B on Jones' value scale, and that in the others the positions were shifted, so that B was preferred to A. In no case was there indifference between the two alternatives. 
The shift of choice indicates a shift in the preference scale, and not indifference on a constant value scale. Of course, if we were dealing with psychology, we could enter into a discussion of intensities of preferences, and opine that the man, with respect to his underlying personality, was relatively indifferent rather than intensely biased as between the two alternatives. But in praxeology, we are not interested in the concrete content of his value scales, nor in his underlying personality. We are interested in value scales as revealed through choice. Appendix A. The Diminishing Marginal Utility of Money Some writers, while admitting the validity of the law of diminishing marginal utility for all other goods, deny its application to money. Thus, for example, a man may allocate each ounce of money to his most preferred uses. However, suppose that it takes 60 ounces of gold to buy an automobile. Then the acquisition of the 60th ounce, which will enable him to buy an automobile, will have considerably more value than the acquisition of the 58th or of the 59th ounce, which will not enable him to do so. This argument involves a misconception identical with that of the argument about the increasing marginal utility of eggs discussed in Chapter 1. There we saw that it is erroneous to argue that because a fourth egg might enable a man to bake a cake, which he could not do with the first three, the marginal utility of the eggs has increased. We saw that a good, and consequently the unit of a good, are defined in terms of whatever quantity of which the units give an equally serviceable supply. This last phrase is the key concept. The fourth egg was not equally serviceable as, and therefore not interchangeable with, the first egg and therefore a single egg could not be taken as the unit. The units of a good must be homogeneous in their serviceability, and it is only to such units that the law of utility applies. The situation is similar in the case of money. The serviceability of the money commodity lies in its use in exchange rather than in its direct use. Here, therefore, a unit of money in its relevance to individual value scales must be such as to be homogeneous with every other unit in exchange value. If another ounce permits a purchase of an automobile and the issue is relevant to the case in question, then the unit of the money commodity must be taken not as one ounce, but as sixty ounces. All that needs to be done, then, to account for and explain discontinuities because of possible large purchases is to vary the size of the monetary unit to which the law of utility and the preferences and choices apply. This is what each man actually does in practice. Thus, suppose that a man is considering what to do with 60 ounces of gold. Let us assume, for the sake of simplicity, that he has a choice of parceling out the 60 ounces into 5-ounce units. This, we will say, is alternative A. 
In that case, he decides that he will parcel out each five ounces in accordance with the highest rankings on his utility scale. The first five ounces will be allocated to, or spent on, the most highly valued use that can be served by five ounces, the next five ounces to the next most highly valued use, and so on. Finally, his twelfth five ounces he will allocate to his twelfth most highly valued use. Now, however, he is also confronted with alternative B. This alternative is to spend the entire sixty ounces on whatever single use will be most valuable on his value scale. This will be the single highest ranked use for a unit of sixty ounces of money. Now, to decide which alternative course he will take, the man compares the utility of the highest-ranked single use of a lump sum of sixty ounces, say the purchase of a car, with the utility of the package, the expenditure of five ounces on A, five ounces on B, etc. Since the man knows his own preference scale, otherwise he could never choose any action. It is no more difficult to assume that he can rank the utility of the whole package with the utility of purchasing a car, than to assume that he can rank the uses of each five ounces. In other words, he posits a unit of sixty ounces and determines which alternative ranks higher on his value scale: purchase of the car or a certain package distribution by five ounce or other sized units. At any rate, the sixty ounces are distributed to what each man believes will be its highest ranking use, and the same can be said for each of his monetary exchange decisions. Here we must stress the fact that there is no numerical relation aside from pure ordinal rank between the marginal utilities of the various five ounce units and the utilities of the sixty ounce units. And this is true even of the package combination of distribution that we have considered. All that we can say is that the utility of sixty ounces will clearly be higher than any one of the utilities of five ounces. But there is no way of determining the numerical difference, whether or not the rank of the utility of the package is higher or lower than the utility of the car purchase. Moreover, can be determined only by the individual himself. We have reiterated several times that utility is only ranked and never measurable. There is no numerical relationship whatever between the utility of large-sized and smaller-sized units of a good. Also, there is no numerical relationship between the utilities of one unit and several units of the same size. Therefore, there is no possible way of adding or combining marginal utilities to form some sort of total utility. The latter can only be a marginal utility of a large-sized unit, and there is no numerical relationship between that and the utilities of small units. As Ludwig von Mises states, value can rightly be spoken of only with regard to specific acts of appraisal. 
total value can be spoken of only with reference to a particular instance of an individual having to choose between the total available quantities of certain economic goods. Like every other act of valuation, this is complete in itself. When a stock is valued as a whole, its marginal utility, that is to say, the utility of the last available unit of it, coincides with its total utility, since the total supply is one indivisible quantity. There are, then, two laws of utility, both following from the apodictic conditions of human action. First, that given the size of a unit of a good, the marginal utility of each unit decreases as the supply of units increases. Second, that the marginal utility of a larger-sized unit is greater than the marginal utility of a smaller-sized unit. The first is the law of diminishing marginal utility. The second has been called the law of increasing total utility. The relationship between the two laws and between the items considered in both is purely one of rank, that is, ordinal. Thus, four eggs, or pounds of butter, or ounces of gold, are worth more on a value scale than three eggs, which in turn are worth more than two eggs, two eggs more than one egg, etc. This illustrates the second law. One egg will be worth more than a second egg, which will be worth more than a third egg, etc. This illustrates the first law. But there is no arithmetical relationship between the items apart from these rankings. It must always be kept in mind that total and marginal do not have the same meaning or mutual relation as they do in the calculus. Total is here another form of marginal. Failure to realize this has plagued economics since the days of Jevons and Valras. The fact that the units of a good must be homogeneous in serviceability means, in the case of money, that the given array of money prices remains constant. The serviceability of a unit of money consists in its direct use value, and especially in its exchange value, which rests on its power to purchase a myriad of different goods. We have seen in our study of the money regression and the marginal utility of money that the evaluation and the marginal utility of the money commodity rests on an already given structure of money prices for the various goods. It is clear that in any given application of the foregoing law, the money prices cannot change in the meantime. If they do, and, for example, the fifth unit of money is valued more highly than the fourth unit because of an intervening change in money prices, then the units are no longer equally serviceable, and therefore cannot be considered as homogeneous. As we have seen above, this power of the monetary unit to purchase quantities of various goods is called the purchasing power of the monetary unit. This purchasing power of money consists of the array of all the given money prices on the market at any particular time, considered in terms of the prices of goods per unit of money. 
As we saw in the regression theorem above, today's purchasing power of the monetary unit is determined by today's marginal utilities of money and of goods expressed in demand schedules, while today's marginal utility of money is directly dependent on yesterday's purchasing power of money. Appendix B. On Value. Economics has made such extensive use of the term value that it would be inexpedient to abandon it now. However, there is undoubtedly confusion because the term is used in a variety of different ways. It is more important to keep distinct the subjective use of the term in the sense of valuation and preference as against the objective use in the sense of purchasing power or price on the market. Up to this chapter, value in this book has meant the subjective individual valuing process of ranking goods on individual value scales. In this chapter, the term value of capital signifies the purchasing power of a durable good in terms of money on the market. If a house can be sold on the market for 250 ounces of gold, then its capital value is 250 ounces. The difference between this and the subjective type of value is apparent. When a good is being subjectively valued, it is ranked by someone in relation to other goods on his value scale. When a good is being evaluated in the sense of finding out its capital value, the evaluator estimates how much the good could be sold for in terms of money. This sort of activity is known as appraisement and is to be distinguished from subjective evaluation, if Jones says, I shall be able to sell this house next week for 250 ounces, he is appraising its purchasing power, or objective exchange value, at 250 ounces of gold. He is not, thereby, ranking the house and gold on his own value scale, but is estimating the money price of the house at some point in the future, we shall see that appraisement is fundamental to the entire economic system in an economy of indirect exchange. Not only do the renting and selling of consumers' goods rest on appraisement and on hope of monetary profits, but so does the activity of all the investing producers, the keystone of the entire productive system. We shall see that the term capital value applies not only to durable consumers' goods, but to all non-human factors of production as well, that is, land and capital goods, singly and in various aggregates. The use and purchase of these factors rest on appraisement by entrepreneurs of their eventual yield in terms of monetary income on the market and it will be seen that their capital value on the market will also tend to be equal to the discounted sum of their future yields of money income. Chapter 5. Production. The Structure. 1. Some Fundamental Principles of Action. The analysis of production activities, the actions that eventually result in the attainment of consumers' goods, is a highly intricate one for a complex monetary market economy. 
It is best, therefore, to summarize now some of the most applicable of the fundamental principles formulated in Chapter 1. In that chapter, we applied those principles to a Crusoe economy only. Actually, however, they are applicable to any type of economy and are the indispensable keys to the analysis of the complex modern economy. Some of these fundamental principles are 1. Each individual acts so that the expected psychic revenue or achievement of utility from his action will exceed its psychic cost. The latter is the foregone utility of the next best alternative that he could adopt with the available means. Both the psychic revenue and the psychic cost are purely subjective to the individual, since all action deals with units of supply of a good, we may refer to these subjective estimates as marginal utility and marginal cost, the marginal signifying action in steps. 2. Each person acts in the present instant, on the basis of present value scales, to obtain anticipated end results in the future. Each person acts, therefore, to arrive at a certain satisfactory state in the future. Each has a temporal horizon of future dates toward which his actions are directed. He uses present given means, according to his technological ideas, to attain his ends in the future. 3. Every person prefers and will attempt to achieve the satisfaction of a given end in the present to the satisfaction of that end in the future. This is the law of time preference. 4. All goods are distributed by each individual in accordance with their utility to him. A stock of the units of a good is allocated first to its most highly valued uses, then to its next most highly valued use, etc. The definition of a good is that it consists of an interchangeable supply of one or more units. Therefore, every unit will always be valued equally with every other. If a unit of a stock is given up or disposed of, the least highly valued use for one unit will be the one given up. Therefore, the value of each unit of the supply of a good is equal to the utility of the least highly valued of its present uses. This marginal utility diminishes as the stock of each good increases. The marginal utility of addition of a unit to the stock equals the utility of a unit in its next most highly valued use, that is, the most highly valued of the not yet satisfied ends. This provides us with the law of marginal utility and the law of allocation of goods. 5. In the technical combination of factors of production to yield a product, as one factor varies and the others remain constant, there is an optimum point, a point of maximum average product produced by the factor. This is the law of returns. It is based on the very fact of the existence of human action. 6. And we know from chapter 2 that the price of any good on the market will tend to be uniform throughout the market, 
The price is determined by supply and demand schedules, which are themselves determined by the value scales of the individuals in the market. 2. The Evenly Rotating Economy Analysis of the activities of production in a monetary market economy is a highly complex matter. An explanation of these activities, in particular the determination of prices and therefore the return to factors, the allocation of factors, and the formation of capital, can be developed only if we use the mental construction of the evenly rotating economy. This construction is developed as follows. We realize that the real world of action is one of continual change. Individual value scales, technological ideas, and the quantities of means available are always changing. These changes continually impel the economy in various directions. Value scales change and consumer demand shifts from one good to another. Technological ideas change and factors are used in different ways. Both types of change have differing effects on prices. Time preferences change, with certain effects on interest and capital formation. The crucial point is this. Before the effects of any one change are completely worked out, other changes intervene. What we must consider, however, by the use of reasoning is what would happen if no changes intervened. In other words, what would occur if value scales, technological ideas, and the given resources remained constant? What would then happen to prices and production and their relations? Given values, technology, and resources, whatever their concrete form, remain constant. In that case, the economy tends toward a state of affairs in which it is evenly rotating, that is, in which the same activities tend to be repeated in the same pattern over and over again. Rates of production of each good remain constant. All prices remain constant. Total population remains constant, etc. Thus, if values, technology, and resources remain constant, we have two successive states of affairs— a. The period of transition to an unchanging, evenly rotating economy, and b. The unchanging round of the evenly rotating economy itself. This latter stage is the state of final equilibrium. It is to be distinguished from the market equilibrium prices that are set each day by the interaction of supply and demand. The final equilibrium state is one which the economy is always tending to approach. If our data, values, technology, and resources remained constant, the economy would move toward the final equilibrium position and remain there. In actual life, however, the data are always changing, and therefore, before arriving at a final equilibrium point, the economy must shift direction toward some other final equilibrium position. Hence, the final equilibrium position is always changing, 
and consequently no one such position is ever reached in practice. But even though it is never reached in practice, it has a very real importance. In the first place, it is like the mechanical rabbit being chased by the dog. It is never reached in practice, and it is always changing, but it explains the direction in which the dog is moving. Secondly, the complexity of the market system is such that we cannot analyze factor prices and incomes in a world of continual change unless we first analyze their determination in an evenly rotating world where there is no change and where given conditions are allowed to work themselves out to the full. Certainly, at this stage of inquiry, we are not interested in ethical evaluations of our knowledge. We are attaching no ethical merit to the equilibrium position. It is a concept for scientific explanation of human activity. The listener might ask why such an unrealistic concept as final equilibrium is permissible when we have already presented and will present grave strictures against the use of various unrealistic and anti-realistic premises in economics. For example, as we shall see, the theory of pure competition so prevalent among writers today is based on impossible premises. The theory is then worked out along these lines and not only applied uncritically to the real world, but actually used as an ethical base from which to criticize the real deviations from this theory. The concepts of indifference classes and of infinitely small steps are other examples of false premises that are used as the basis of highly elaborate theoretical structures. The concept of the evenly rotating economy, however, when used with care, is not open to these criticisms. For this is an ever-present force, since it is the goal toward which the actual system is always moving, the final position of rest, at which, on the basis of the given actually existing value scales, all individuals would have attained the highest positions on their value scales, given the technology and resources. This concept, then, is of legitimate and realistic importance. We must always remember, however, that while a final equilibrium is the goal toward which the economy is moving at any particular time, changes in the data alter this position and therefore shift the direction of movement. Therefore, there is nothing in a dynamic world that is ethically better about a final equilibrium position. As a matter of fact, since wants are unsatisfied, otherwise there would be no action, such a position of no change would be most unfortunate, since it would imply that no further want satisfaction would be possible. Furthermore, we must remember that a final equilibrium situation tends to be, though it can never actually be, the result of market activity, and not the condition of such activity. 
far too many writers, for example, discerning that in the evenly rotating economy, entrepreneurial profits and losses would all be zero, have somehow concluded that this must be the condition for any legitimate activity on the market. There could hardly be a greater misconception of the market, or a greater abuse of the equilibrium concept. Another danger in the use of this concept is that its purely static, essentially timeless conditions are all too well suited for the use of mathematics. Mathematics rests on equations, which portray mutual relationships between two or more functions. Of themselves, of course, such mathematical procedures are unimportant, since they do not establish causal relationships. They are of the greatest importance in physics, for example, because that science deals with certain observed regularities of motion by particles of matter that we must regard as unmotivated. These particles move according to certain precisely observable, exact, quantitative laws. Mathematics is indispensable in formulating the laws among these variables, and in formulating theoretical explanations for the observed phenomena. In human action, the situation is entirely different, if not diametrically opposite, whereas in physics causal relations can only be assumed hypothetically and later approximately verified by referring to precise observable regularities, in praxeology we know the causal force at work. This causal force is human action, motivated, purposeful behavior directed at certain ends. The universal aspects of this behavior can be logically analyzed. We are not dealing with functional quantitative relations among variables, but with human reason and will causing certain action, which is not determinable or reducible to outside forces. Furthermore, since the data of human action are always changing, there are no precise quantitative relationships in human history. In physics, the quantitative relationships, or laws, are constant. They are considered to be valid for any point in human history, past, present, or future. In the field of human action, there are no such quantitative constants. There are no constant relationships valid for different periods in human history. The only natural laws, if we may use such an old-fashioned but perfectly legitimate label for such constant regularities in human action, are qualitative rather than quantitative. They are, for example, precisely the laws educed in praxeology and economics, the fact of action, the use of means to achieve ends, time preference, diminishing marginal utility, etc. Another difference is one we have already discussed, that mathematics, particularly the calculus, rests in large part on assumptions of infinitely small steps. Such assumptions may be perfectly legitimate in a field where behavior of unmotivated matter is under study, 
but human action disregards infinitely small steps precisely because they are infinitely small, and therefore have no relevance to human beings. Hence, the action under study in economics must always occur in finite, discrete steps. It is therefore incorrect to say that such an assumption may just as well be made in the study of human action as in the study of physical particles. In human action, we may describe such assumptions as being not simply unrealistic, but anti-realistic. Mathematical equations, then, are appropriate and useful where there are constant quantitative relations among unmotivated variables. They are singularly inappropriate in praxeology and economics. In the latter fields, verbal, logical analysis of action and its processes through time is the appropriate method. It is not surprising that the main efforts of the mathematical economists have been directed toward describing the final equilibrium state by means of equations. For in this state, since activities merely repeat themselves, there seems to be more scope for describing conditions by means of functional equations. These equations, at best, however, can do no more than describe this equilibrium state. Aside from doing no more than verbal logic can do, and therefore violating the scientific principle of Occam's razor, that science should be as simple and clear as possible, such a use of mathematics contains grave errors and defects within itself. In the first place, it cannot describe the path by which the economy approaches the final equilibrium position. This task can be performed only by verbal, logical analysis of the causal action of human beings. It is evident that this task is the important one, since it is this analysis that is significant for human action. Action moves along a path and is not describable in an unchanging, evenly rotating world. The world is an uncertain one and we shall see shortly that we cannot even pursue to its logical conclusion the analysis of a static, evenly rotating economy. The assumption of an evenly rotating economy is only an auxiliary tool in aiding us in the analysis of real action. Since mathematics is least badly accommodated to a static state, Mathematical writers have tended to be preoccupied with this state, thus providing a particularly misleading picture of the world of action. Finally, the mathematical equations of the evenly rotating economy describe only a static situation outside of time. The mathematical economists or econometricians have been trying without success for years to analyze the path of equilibrium as well as the equilibrium conditions themselves. The econometrician Frederick Zoyten recently admitted that such attempts cannot succeed. All that mathematics can describe is the final equilibrium point. 
The mathematical equations of the evenly rotating economy differ drastically from the mathematical equations of physics, which describe a process through time. It is precisely through this description of constant quantitative relations in the motion of elements that mathematics renders its great service in natural science. How different is economics? Where mathematics, at best, can only inadequately describe a timeless end result. For a discussion of the logical method of economics, see *Human Action* by Ludwig von Mises, and the neglected work *The Character and Logical Method of Political Economy* by J. E. Cairns. If any mathematics has been used in this treatise, it has been only along the lines charted by Cairns. I have no desire to deny that it may be possible to employ geometrical diagrams or mathematical formulae for the purpose of exhibiting economic doctrines reached by other paths. What I venture to deny is the doctrine which Professor Jevons and others have advanced—that economic knowledge can be extended by such means. That mathematics can be applied to the development of economic truth, as it has been applied to the development of mechanical and physical truth, and unless it can be shown either that mental feelings admit of being expressed in precise quantitative forms, or on the other hand that economic phenomena do not depend on mental feelings, I am unable to see how this conclusion can be avoided. The use of the mathematical concept of function is particularly inappropriate in a science of human action. On the one hand, action itself is not a function of anything, since function implies definite, unique mechanical regularity and determination. On the other hand, the mathematics of simultaneous equations dealing in physics with unmotivated motion stresses mutual determination. In human action, however, the known causal force of action unilinearly determines the results. This gross misconception by mathematically inclined writers on the study of human action was exemplified during a running attack on Eugen Bernbaverk, one of the greatest of all economists, by Professor George Stigler. Yet the postulate of continuity of utility and demand functions, which is unrealistic only to a minor degree and essential to analytic treatment, is never granted. A more important weakness is Bombavec's failure to understand some of the most essential elements of modern economic theory, the concepts of mutual determination and equilibrium developed by the use of the theory of simultaneous equations. Mutual determination is spurned for the older concept of cause and effect. The weakness displayed here is not that of Bombavec, but of those like Professor Stigler who attempt vainly and fallaciously to construct economics on the model of mathematical physics, specifically of classical mechanics. Stigler appends a footnote to the above paragraph, which is meant as the coup de grace to Bombavec. Bombavec was not trained in mathematics. 
Mathematics, it must be realized, is only the servant of logic and reason, and not their master. Training in mathematics is no more necessary to the realization of its uselessness for and inapplicability to the sciences of human action than, for example, training in agricultural techniques is essential to knowing that they are not applicable on board an ocean liner. Indeed, training in mathematics without adequate attention to the epistemology of the sciences of human action is likely to yield unfortunate results when applied to the latter, as this example demonstrates. To return to the concept of the evenly rotating economy, the error of the mathematical economists is to treat it as a real and even ideal state of affairs— whereas it is simply a mental concept enabling us to analyze the market and human activities on the market. It is indispensable because it is the goal, though ever-shifting, of action and exchange. On the other hand, the data can never remain unchanged long enough for it to be brought into being. We cannot conceive in all consistency of a state of affairs without change or uncertainty, and therefore without action. The evenly rotating state, for example, would be incompatible with the existence of money, the very medium at the center of the entire exchange structure. For the money commodity is demanded and held only because it is more marketable than other commodities that is, because the holder is more sure of being able to exchange it. In a world where prices and demands remain perpetually the same, such demand for money would be unnecessary. Money is demanded and held only because it gives greater assurance of finding a market, and because of the uncertainties of the person's demands in the near future. If everyone, for example, knew his spending precisely over his entire future, and this would be known under the evenly rotating system, there would be no point in his keeping a cash balance of money. It would be invested so that money would be returned in precisely the needed amounts on the day of expenditure. But if no one wishes to hold money, there will be no money and no system of money prices the entire monetary market would break down. Thus, the evenly rotating economy is unrealistic, for it cannot actually be established, and we cannot even conceive consistently of its establishment. But the idea of the evenly rotating economy is indispensable in analyzing the real economy through hypothesizing a world where all change has worked itself out, we can analyze the directions of actual change. 3. The Structure of Production A World of Specific Factors Crucial to understanding the process of production is the question of the specificity of factors, a problem touched on in Chapter 1. A specific factor is one suitable to the production of only one product. A purely non-specific factor would be one equally suited to the production of all possible products. 
It is clear that not all factors could be purely nonspecific, for in that case all factors would be purely interchangeable, that is, there would be need for only one factor. But we have seen that human action implies more than one existing factor. Even the existence of one purely nonspecific factor is inconceivable if we properly consider suitability and production in value terms rather than in technological terms. The literature in economics has been immeasurably confused by writers on production theory who deal with problems in terms of technology rather than valuation. In fact, if we analyze the concept, we find that there is no sense in saying that a factor is equally suitable in purely technological terms, since there is no way of comparing the physical quantities of one product with those of another. If X can help to produce three units of A or two units of B, there is no way by which we can compare these units. Only the valuation of consumers establishes a hierarchy of valued goods, their interaction setting the prices of the consumer's goods. Relatively nonspecific factors, then, are allocated to those products that the consumers have valued most highly. It is difficult to conceive of any good that would be purely nonspecific and equally valuable in all processes of production, Our major distinction, then, is between the specific factor, which can be used in only one line of production, and the nonspecific factor of varying degrees of convertibility, which can be used in more than one production process. Now let us for a time consider a world where every good is produced only by several specific factors. In this world, a world that is conceivable, though highly unlikely, every person, every piece of land, every capital good would necessarily be irrevocably committed to the production of one particular product. There would be no alternative uses of any good from one line of production to another. In the entire world of production, then, there would be little or no economic problem, that is, no problem of allocating scarce means to alternative ends. Certainly the consumers would still have to allocate their scarce monetary resources to the most preferred consumers' goods. In the non-market sphere, everyone, again, as a consumer, would have to allocate his time and energies to the enjoyment of various consumers' goods. There would still, in the sphere of production of exchangeable goods, be one allocation that every man would make, how much time to devote to labor and how much to leisure. But there would be no problem of which field to labor in, no problem of what to do with any piece of land, no problem of how to allocate capital goods. The employment of the factors would all depend on the consumer's demand for the final product. Now that we have traced the direction of productive effort, we must trace the direction of monetary income. This is a reverse one from the consumers back to the producers. 
The consumers purchase the stock of a consumer's good at a price determined on the market, yielding the producers a certain income. Two of the crucial problems of production theory are the method by which the monetary income is allocated, and the corollary problem of the pricing of the factors of production. First, let us consider only the lowest stage of production, the stage that brings about the final product. In that stage, numerous factors, all now assumed to be specific, cooperate in producing the consumer's good. There are three types of such factors: labor, original nature, and produced capital goods. We must hasten to add that this does not signify adoption of the old classical fallacy that treated each of these groups of factors as homogeneous. Clearly, they are heterogeneous, and for pricing purposes and in human action, are treated as such. Only the same good, homogeneous for human valuation, is treated as a common factor, and all factors are treated alike. For their contribution to revenue by producers, the categories land, labor, and capital goods are essential, however, for a deeper analysis of production problems. In particular, the analysis of various income returns and of the relation of time to production. Let us assume that on a certain day, consumers purchase a certain quantity of a good X for, say, one hundred ounces of gold. Given the quantity of the good sold, the price of the total quantity is equal to the gross income obtained from the sale of the good. How will these one hundred ounces be allocated to the producing factors? In the first place, we must make an assumption about the ownership of the consumer's good just before it is sold. It is obvious that this owner or these owners will be the immediate recipients of the one hundred ounces of gold income. Let us say that in the final stage, there have been seven factors participating in the production: two types of labor, two types of land, and three types of capital goods. There are two alternatives in regard to the final ownership of the product before it is sold to the consumer. A. All the owners of these factors jointly own the final product, or B. The owner of each of the factors sells the services of his factor to someone else, and the latter, who may himself contribute a factor, sells the good at a later date to the consumer. Although the latter is the nearly universal condition, it will be convenient to begin by analyzing the first alternative. Those who own the final product, whatever the alternative adopted, are capitalists, since they are the owners of capital goods. It is better, however, to confine the term capitalists to those who have saved money capital with which to buy factors. This, by definition, does not occur under the first alternative, where owners of factors are joint owners of the products. The term "product owner" suffices for designating the owner of the capital assets, whatever the alternative adopted. 
Product owners are also entrepreneurs, since they assume the major entrepreneurial burden of adjusting to uncertain future conditions. To call them entrepreneurs alone, however, is to run the danger of forgetting that they are also capitalists or product owners, and that they would continue to perform that function in an evenly rotating economy. 4. Joint ownership of the product by the owners of the factors. Let us first consider the case of joint ownership by the owners of all the final cooperating factors. It must be understood that factors of production include every service that advances the product toward the stage of consumption, Thus, such services as marketing costs, advertising, etc., are just as legitimately productive services as any other factors. The fallacy in the spurious distinction between production costs and selling costs has been definitely demonstrated by Mises in Human Action. It is clear that the 100 ounces of gold accrue to the owners jointly. Let us now be purely arbitrary and state that a total of 80 ounces accrues to the owners of capital goods and a total of 20 ounces to the owners of labor and nature-given factors. It is obvious that whatever the allocation it will be on the unhampered market in accordance with the voluntary contractual agreement of each and every factor owner concerned. Now it is clear that there is an important difference between what happens to the monetary income of the laborer and the landowner on the one hand, and of the owner of capital goods on the other. For the capital goods must in turn be produced by labor, nature, and other capital goods. Therefore, while the contributor of personal labor energy, and this of course includes the energy of direction as well as what are called laborers in popular parlance, has earned a pure return, the owner of capital goods has previously spent some money for the production or the purchase of his owned factors. Now it is clear that since only factors of production may obtain income from the consumer, the price of the consumer's good, that is, the income from the consumer's good, equals the sum of the prices accruing to the producing factors, that is, the income accruing to the factors. In the case of joint ownership, this is a truism, since only a factor can receive income from the sale of a good. It is the same as saying that 100 ounces equals 100 ounces. But what of the 80 ounces that we have arbitrarily allocated to the owners of capital goods? To whom do they finally accrue? Since we are assuming in this example of joint ownership that all products are owned by their factor owners, it also follows that capital goods, which are also products, are themselves jointly owned by the factors on the second rank of production. Let us say that each of the three first-order capital goods was produced by five cooperating factors, two types of labor, one type of land, two types of capital goods. All these factor owners jointly own the 80 ounces. Let us say that each of the first-order capital goods had obtained the following. 
Capital Good A, 30 ounces. Capital Good B, 30 ounces. Capital Good C, 20 ounces. The income to each capital good will then be owned by five factor owners on the second rank of production. It is clear that, conceptually, no one in the last analysis receives a return as the owner of a capital good. Since every capital good analytically resolves itself into original nature-given and labor factors, it is evident that no money could accrue to the owner of a capital good. All 100 ounces must eventually be allocated to labor and owners of nature-given factors exclusively. Thus, the 30 ounces accruing to the owners of capital good A will be allocated to the five factor owners, while the, say, 4 ounces accruing to one of the capital goods of third rank helping to produce good A will in turn be allocated to land, labor, and capital goods factors of the fourth rank, etc. Eventually, all the money is allocated to labor and nature-given factors only. To the truism that the income from sale of the consumer's good equals the consumer's expenditure on the good, we may add a corresponding truism for each stage of production, namely that the income from sale of a capital good equals the income accruing to the factors of its production. In the world that we have been examining, where all products at whatever stage are owned jointly by the owners of their factors, it is clear that first work is done on the highest stage. Owners of land and of labor invest their land and labor to produce the highest order, in this case, the fifth capital good. Then these owners turn the good over to the owners of labor and land at the next lower stage. These produce the fourth-order capital good, which in turn cooperates with labor and land factors on that stage to produce the lower-order good, etc. Finally, the lowest stage is reached, and the final factors cooperate to produce the consumer's good. The consumer's good is then sold to consumers. In the case of joint ownership, then, there does not arise any separate class of owners of capital goods. All the capital goods produced are jointly owned by the owners of the producing land and labor factors. The capital goods of the next lower order are owned by the owners of the land and labor factors at the next lower stage, along with the previously cooperating owners, etc. In sum, the entire capital goods structure engaged in any line of production is jointly owned by the owners of land and labor, and the income gained from the final sale of the product to the consumers accrues only to the owners of land and labor. There is no separate group of owners of capital goods to whom income accrues. In practice, one or more persons can be the owners of any of the factors. Thus, the original factors might also be jointly owned by several persons. This would not affect our analysis. The only change would be that the joint owners of a factor would have to allocate the factor's income according to voluntary contract, 
but the type of allocation would remain the same. It is obvious that the production process takes time, and the more complex the production process, the more time must be taken. During this time, all the factors have had to work without earning any remuneration. They have had to work only in expectation of future income. Their income is received only at a much later date. The income that would be earned by the factors in a world of purely specific factors depends entirely on consumer demand for the particular final product. If consumers spend 100 ounces on the good, then the factors will jointly earn 100 ounces. If they spend 500 ounces, the factors will earn that amount. If they spend nothing on the product, and the producers have made the enormous entrepreneurial error of working on a product that the consumers do not buy, the factors earn precisely zero. The joint monetary income earned by the owners of the factors fluctuates pari passu with consumer demand for the product. At this point, a question naturally arises. What happens to owners of factors who earn a zero return? Must they starve? Fundamentally, we cannot answer this question for concrete individual persons, since economics demonstrates truths about functional earnings in production and not about the entire earnings of a given person. A particular person, in other words, may experience a zero return on this good, while at the same time earning a substantial return on ownership of another piece of land. In cases where there is no such ownership in another area, the individual may pursue isolated production that does not yield a monetary return, or, if he has an accumulated monetary cash balance, he may purchase goods by reducing the balance. Furthermore, if he has such a balance, he may invest in land or capital goods or in a production organization owning them in some other line of production. His labor, on our assumptions, may be a specific factor, but his money is usable in every line of production. Suppose we assume the worst possible case, a man with no cash balance, with no assets of capital, and whose labor is a specific factor, the product of which has little or no consumer demand. Actually, this case cannot occur, since labor, as we shall see, is always a non-specific factor. Is he not truly an example of an individual led astray by the existence of the market and the specialization prevalent on it? By subjecting himself to the consumer, has he not placed his happiness and existence in jeopardy? Even granting that people chose a market, could not the choice turn out to be tragic for many people? The answer is that there is no basis whatever for such strictures on the market process. For even in this impossible case, the individual is no worse off than he would have been in isolation or barter. He can always revert to isolation if he finds he cannot attain his ends via the market process. The very fact that we consider such a possibility ludicrous is evidence of the enormous advantages that the market confers upon everyone. 
Indeed, empirically, we can certainly state that without the modern developed market and thrown back into isolation, the overwhelming majority of individuals could not obtain enough exchangeable goods to exist at all. Yet this choice always remains open to anyone who, for any reason, voluntarily prefers isolation to the vast benefits obtainable from the market system. Certainly, therefore, complaints against the market system by disgruntled persons are misplaced and erroneous. Any person or group on the unhampered market is free to abandon the social market at any time and to withdraw into any other desired form of cooperative arrangement. People may withdraw into individual isolation or establish some sort of group isolation or start from the beginning to recreate their own market. In any case, on the free market, their choice is entirely their own, and they decide according to their preferences, unhampered by the use or threat of violence. It is therefore our contention that the term consumer's sovereignty is highly inapt, and that individual sovereignty would be a more appropriate term for describing the free market system. Our example of the worst possible case enables us to analyze one of the most popular objections to the free society, that it leaves people free to starve. First, from the fact that this objection is so widespread, we can easily conclude that there will be enough charitable people in the society to present these unfortunates with gifts. There is, however, a more fundamental refutation— it is that the freedom-to-starve argument rests on a basic confusion of freedom with abundance of exchangeable goods. The two must be kept conceptually distinct. Freedom is meaningfully definable only as absence of interpersonal restrictions. Robinson Crusoe on the desert island is absolutely free, since there is no other person to hinder him but he is not necessarily living an abundant life. Indeed, he is likely to be constantly on the verge of starvation. Whether or not man lives at the level of poverty or abundance depends upon the success that he and his ancestors have had in grappling with nature and in transforming naturally given resources into capital goods and consumers' goods. The two problems, therefore, are logically separate— Crusoe is absolutely free, yet starving, while it is certainly possible, though not likely, for a given person at a given instant to be a slave while being kept in riches by his master. Yet there is an important connection between the two, for we have seen that a free market tends to lead to abundance for all of its participants— and we shall see that violent intervention in the market and a hegemonic society tend to lead to general poverty. That a person is free to starve is therefore not a condemnation of the free market, but a simple fact of nature. Every child comes into the world without capital or resources of his own, on the contrary, as we shall see further, it is the free market in a free society that furnishes the only instrument to reduce or eliminate poverty and provide abundance. 5. Cost At this point, let us reintroduce the concept of cost into the analysis. 
We have seen that the cost, or marginal cost, of any decision is the next highest utility that must be foregone because of the decision. When a means, M, must be distributed among N's E1, E2, and E3, with E1 ranked highest on the individual's value scale, the individual attempts to allocate the means so as to attain his most highly valued ends, and to forego those ranked lower, although he will attain as many of his ends as he can with the means available. If he allocates his means to E1 and E2, and must forego E3, E3 is the marginal cost of his decision. If he errs in his decision, and arrives at E3 instead of E2, then ex post, in retrospect, he is seen to have suffered a loss compared to the course he could have taken. What are the costs involved in the decisions made by the owners of the factors? In the first place, it must be stressed that these costs are subjective and cannot be precisely determined by outside observers or be gauged ex post by observing accountants. Secondly, it is clear that since such factors as land and the produced capital goods have only one use, namely the production of this product, by virtue of being purely specific, they involve no cost to their owner in being used in production. By the very terms of our problem, the only alternative for their owner would be to let the land lie unused, earning no return. The use of labor, however, does have a cost, in accordance with the value of the leisure foregone by the laborers. This value is, of course, unmeasurable in money terms, and necessarily differs for each individual, since there can be no comparison between the value scales of two or more persons. Once the final product has been produced, the analysis of the previous chapter follows, and it becomes clear that in most cases the sale of the good at the market price, whatever the price may be, is costless, except for rare cases of direct consumption by the producer, or in cases of anticipation of a price increase in the near future. This sale is costless from the proper point of view, the point of view of acting man at the relevant instant of action. The fact that he would not have engaged in the labor at all if he had known in advance of the present price might indicate a deplorable instance of poor judgment, but it does not affect the present situation. At present, with all the labor already exerted and the product finished, the original subjective cost has already been incurred and vanished with the original making of the decision. At present, there is no alternative to the sale of the good at the market price, and therefore the sale is costless. As G. F. Thurlby says, cost is ephemeral. The cost involved in a particular decision loses its significance with the making of a decision, because the decision displaces the alternative course of action. And Stanley Jevons writes, Labor once spent has no influence on the future value of any article. It is gone and lost forever.
In commerce, bygones are forever bygones, and we are always starting clear at each moment, judging the values of things with a view to future utility. Industry is essentially prospective, not retrospective. It is evident, therefore, that once the product has been made, cost has no influence on the price of the product. Past costs, being ephemeral, are irrelevant to present determination of prices. The agitation that often takes place over sales below cost is now placed in its proper perspective. It is obvious that, in the relevant sense of cost, no such sales can take place. The sale of an already produced good is likely to be costless, and if it is not, and price is below its costs, then the seller will hold on to the good rather than make the sale. That costs do have an influence in production is not denied by anyone. However, the influence is not directly on the price, but on the amount that will be produced, or more specifically, on the degree to which factors will be used. We have seen in our example that land and capital goods will be used to the fullest extent practicable, since there is no return or benefit in allowing them to remain idle. There will undoubtedly be exceptions, such as cases where the owner obtains enjoyment from the land or capital good from its lying idle, such as the aesthetic enjoyment of using it as an uncultivated forest. These alternatives are then also costs when a decision is made on the use of the land. But man laboring bears the cost of leisure foregone. What he expects will be the monetary return from his labor is the deciding factor in his decision concerning how much or whether or not to employ his labor on the product. The monetary return is ranked on his subjective value scale along with the costs of foregoing leisure, and his decision is made on the quantity of labor he will put forth in production. The height of costs on individual value scales, then, is one of the determinants of the quantity, the stock, that will be produced. This stock, of course, later plays a role in the determination of market price, since stock is evaluated by consumers according to the law of diminishing marginal utility. This, however, is a far cry from stating that cost either determines or is coordinate with utility in determining price. We may briefly summarize the law of price, which can be stated at this point only in regard to specific factors and joint ownership, but which will be later seen as true for any arrangement of production. Individuals on their value scales evaluate a given stock of goods according to their utilities, setting the prices of consumers' goods. The stock is produced according to previous decisions by producers who had weighed on their value scales the expected monetary revenue from consumers against the subjective costs, themselves simply utilities foregone, of engaging in the production.
In the former case, the utility valuations are generally, though by no means always, the ones made by consumers. In the latter case, they are made by producers. But it is clear that the determinants of price are only the subjective utilities of individuals in valuing given conditions and alternatives. There are no objective or real costs that determine or are coordinate in determining price. It is unfortunate that these truths, substantially set forth by the Austrian School of Economics, which included some Englishmen and Americans close to three-quarters of a century ago, should have been almost entirely obscured by the fashionable eclectic doctrine that real costs and utility are somehow coordinate in price determination, with cost being really more important in the long run. How often has Alfred Marshall's homely analogy of utility and cost being two blades of a scissors been invoked as a substitute for analysis? Emil Cowder has supplied an interesting interpretation of the reason for the failure of British thought to adopt the nascent subjective value approach in previous centuries. He attributes the emphasis on labor and real cost, as contrasted to subjective utility and happiness, to the Calvinist background of the British classicists, typified by Smith and Locke. Of particular interest here is his citation of the strongly evangelical background of Marshall— Implicit in his treatment is the view that the second major reason for the classicists' failure to follow subjectivist leads was their search for an invariable measurement of value. This search embodied the scientistic desire to imitate the methods of the natural sciences. If we investigate the costs of laborers in production more closely, we see that what is involved is not simply a question of leisure foregone. There is another, though in this case intertwined, element. Present goods are being foregone in exchange for an expectation of return in the future. Thus added to the leisure-labor element, the workers, in this case, must wait for some time before earning the return, while they must give up their leisure in the present or in various periods earlier than the return is obtained. Time, therefore, is a critical element in production, and its analysis must pervade any theory of production." When the owners of the factors embark on a process of production, the yield of which will be necessarily realized in the future, they are giving up leisure and other consumers' goods that they either could have enjoyed without working or could have earned earlier from shorter processes of production. In order to invest their labor and land in a process of production, then, they must restrict their present consumption to less than its possible maximum. This involves foregoing either immediate consumption or the consumption made possible from shorter processes of production. Present consumption is given up in anticipation of future consumption. 
Since we have seen that the universal law of time preference holds that any given satisfaction will be preferred earlier than later, an equivalent satisfaction will be preferred as early as possible. Present consumption of a good will be given up only in anticipation of a greater future consumption, the degree of the premium being dependent on time preferences. This restriction of present consumption is saving. See the discussion in Chapter 1. In a world where products are all jointly owned by owners of factors, the original owners of land and labor must do their own saving. There is no monetary expression to represent total saving, even in a monetary economy. The owners of land and labor forego a certain amount of present or earlier consumption and save in various amounts in order to invest their time and labor to produce the final product. Their income is finally earned, say after one year, when the good is sold to the consumers, and the 100 ounces is received by the joint owners. It is impossible, however, for us to say what this saving or investment was in monetary terms. 6. Ownership of the Product by Capitalists Amalgamated Stages Up to this point we have discussed the case in which the owners of land and labor, that is, of the original factors, restrict their possible consumption and invest their factors in a production process, which, after a certain time, produces a consumer's good to be sold to consumers for money. Now let us consider a situation in which the owners of the factors do not own the final product. How could this come about? Let us first forget about the various stages of the production process and assume for the moment that all the stages can be lumped together as one. An individual or a group of individuals acting jointly can then, at present, offer to pay money to the owners of land and labor, thus buying the services of their factors. The factors then work and produce the product, which, under the terms of their agreement, belongs to the new class of product owners. These product owners have purchased the services of the land and labor factors as the latter have been contributing to production. They then sell the final product to the consumers. What has been the contribution of these product owners, or capitalists, to the production process? It is this. The saving and restriction of consumption, instead of being done by the owners of land and labor, has been done by the capitalists. The capitalists originally saved, say, 95 ounces of gold, which they could have then spent on consumers' goods. They refrained from doing so, however, and instead advanced the money to the original owners of the factors. They paid the latter for their services while they were working, thus advancing the money before the product was actually produced and sold to the consumers. The capitalists, therefore, made an essential contribution to production— they relieved the owners of the original factors from the necessity of sacrificing present goods and waiting for future goods. 
Instead, the capitalists have supplied present goods from their own savings, that is, money with which to buy present goods, to the owners of the original factors. In return for this supply of present goods, the latter contribute their productive services to the capitalists, who become the owners of the product. More precisely, the capitalists become the owners of the capital structure, of the whole structure of capital goods as they are produced. Keeping to our assumption that one capitalist or group of capitalists owns all the stages of any goods production, the capitalists continue to advance present goods to owners of factors as the year goes on. As the period of time continues, highest-order capital goods are first produced, are then transformed into lower-order capital goods, etc., and ultimately into the final product. At any given time, this whole structure is owned by the capitalists. When one capitalist owns the whole structure, these capital goods, it must be stressed, do him no good whatever. Thus, suppose that a capitalist has already advanced 80 ounces over a period of many months to owners of labor and land in a line of production. He has in his ownership, as a result, a mass of fifth, fourth, and third-order capital goods. None of these capital goods is of any use to him, however, until the goods can be further worked on and the final product obtained and sold to the consumer. Popular literature attributes enormous power to the capitalist and considers his owning a mass of capital goods as of enormous significance, giving him a great advantage over other people in the economy. We see, however, that this is far from the case. Indeed, the opposite may well be true. For the capitalist has already saved from possible consumption and hired the services of factors to produce his capital goods. The owners of these factors have the money already for which they otherwise would have had to save and wait and bear uncertainty, while the capitalist has only a mass of capital goods, a mass that will prove worthless to him unless it can be further worked on and the product sold to the consumers. When the capitalist purchases factor services, what is the precise exchange that takes place? The capitalist gives money, a present good, in exchange for receiving factor services, labor and land, which work to supply him with capital goods. They supply him, in other words, with future goods. The capital goods for which he pays are way stations on the route to the final product, the consumer's good. At the time when land and labor are hired to produce capital goods, therefore, these capital goods, and therefore the services of the land and labor, are future goods. They represent the embodiment of the expected yield of a good in the future, a good that can then be consumed. 
The capitalist who buys the services of land and labor in year one to work on a product that will eventually become a consumer's good ready for sale in year two is advancing money, a present good, in exchange for a future good, for the present anticipation of a yield of money in the future from the sale of the final product. A present good is being exchanged for an expected future good. Under the conditions of our example, we are assuming that the capitalists own no original factors, in contrast to the first case, in which the products were jointly owned by the owners of these factors. In our case, the capitalists originally owned money with which they purchase the services of land and labor in order to produce capital goods, which are finally transformed by land and labor into consumers' goods. In this example, we have assumed that the capitalists do not at any time own any of the cooperating labor or land factors. In actual life, of course, there may be and are capitalists who both work in some managerial capacity in the production process and also own the land on which they operate. Analytically, however, it is necessary to isolate these various functions. We may call those capitalists who own only the capital goods and the final product before sale pure capitalists. Now let us add another temporary restriction to our analysis, namely that all producers' goods and services are only hired, never bought outright. This is a convenient assumption that will be maintained long after the assumption of specific factors is dropped. We here assume that the pure capitalists never purchase as a whole a factor that in itself could yield several units of service. They can only hire the services of factors per unit of time. This situation is directly analogous to the conditions described in Chapter 4, Section 7, in which consumers bought or rented the unit services of goods rather than the goods as a whole. In a free economy, of course, this hiring or renting must always occur in the case of labor services. The laborer, being a free man, cannot be bought that is, he cannot be paid a cash value for his total future anticipated services, after which he is at the permanent command of his buyer. This would be a condition of slavery, and even voluntary slavery, as we have seen, cannot be enforced on the free market because of the inalienability of personal will. A laborer cannot be bought, then." but his services can be bought over a period of time, that is, he can be rented or hired. 7. Present and Future Goods – The Pure Rate of Interest We are deferring until later the major part of the analysis of the pricing of productive services and factors, at this point, we can see, however, that the purchasing of labor and land services are directly analogous. The classical discussion of productive income treats labor as earning wages, whereas land earns rents, 
and the two are supposed to be subject to completely different laws. Actually, however, the earnings of labor and land services are analogous. Both are original and productive factors, and in the case in which land is hired rather than bought, both are rented per unit of time rather than sold outright. Generally, writers on economics have termed those capitalists entrepreneurs who buy labor and land factors in expectation of a future monetary return from the final product. They are entrepreneurs, however, only in the actual economy of uncertainty. In an evenly rotating economy, where all the market actions are repeated in an endless round, and there is therefore no uncertainty, entrepreneurship disappears. There is no uncertain future to be anticipated, and about which forecasts are made. To call these capitalists simply entrepreneurs, then, is tacitly to imply that in the evenly rotating economy there will be no capitalists, that is, no group that saves money and hires the services of factors, thereby acquiring capital and consumers' goods to be sold to the consumers. Actually, however, there is no reason why pure capitalists should not continue in the ERE, the evenly rotating economy. Even if final returns and consumer demand are certain, the capitalists are still providing present goods to the owners of labor and land, and thus relieving them of the burden of waiting until the future goods are produced and finally transformed into consumers' goods. Their function, therefore, remains in the ERE to provide present goods and to assume the burden of waiting for future returns over the period of the production process. Let us assume simply that the sum the capitalists paid out was 95 ounces and that the final sale was for 100 ounces. The 5 ounces accruing to the capitalists is payment for their function of supplying present goods and waiting for a future return. In short, the capitalists in year one bought future goods for 95 ounces and then sold the transformed product in year two for 100 ounces when it had become a present good. In other words, in year one, the market price of an anticipated certain income of 100 ounces was only 95 ounces. It is clear that this arises out of the universal fact of time preference and of the resulting premium of a given good at present over the present prospect of its future acquisition. In the monetary economy, since money enters into all transactions, the discount of a future good against a present good can, in all cases, be expressed in terms of one good, money. This is so because the money commodity is a present good, and because claims to future goods are almost always expressed in terms of future money income. The factors of production in our discussion have all been assumed to be purely specific to a particular line of production. When the capitalists have saved money, money capital, however, they are at liberty to purchase factor services in any line of production. 
Money, the general medium of exchange, is precisely non-specific. If, for example, the saver sees that he can invest 95 ounces in the aforementioned production process and earn 100 ounces in a year, whereas he can invest 95 ounces in some other process and earn 110 ounces in a year, he will invest his money in the process earning the greater return. Clearly, the line in which he will feel impelled to invest will be the line that earns him the greatest rate of return on his investment. The concept of rate of return is necessary in order for him to compare different potential investments for different periods of time and involving different sums of money. For any amount of money that he saves, he would like to earn the greatest amount of net return, that is, the greatest rate of net return. The absolute amount of return has to be reduced to units of time, and this is done by determining the rate per unit of time. Thus, a return of 20 ounces on an investment of 500 ounces after two years is 2% per annum, while a return of 15 ounces on the same investment after one year is a return of 3% per annum. After data work themselves out and continue without change, the rate of net return on the investment of money capital will, in the ERE, be the same in every line of production. If capitalists can earn 3% per annum in one production process and 5% per annum in another, they will cease investing in the former and invest more in the latter, until the rates of return are uniform. In the ERE, there is no entrepreneurial uncertainty, and the rate of net return is the pure exchange ratio between present and future goods. This rate of return is the rate of interest. The pure rate of interest will be uniform for all periods of time and for all lines of production and will remain constant in the ERE. The term pure rate of interest corresponds to Mises' term originary rate of interest. Suppose that at some time the rates of interest earned are not uniform as between several lines of production. If capitalists are generally earning 5% interest and a capitalist is obtaining 7% in a particular line, other capitalists will enter this line and bid away the factors of production from him by raising factor prices. Thus, if a capitalist is paying factors 93 ounces out of 100 income, a competing capitalist can offer 95 ounces and outbid the first for the use of the factors. The first, then, forced to meet the competition of other capitalists, will have to raise his bid eventually to 95 disregarding, for simplicity, the variation in percentages based on the investment figure rather than on 100. The same equalization process will occur, of course, between capitalists and firms within the same line of production, the same industry. There is always competitive pressure, then, driving toward a uniform rate of interest in the economy, 
This competition, it must be pointed out, does not take place simply between firms in the same industry or producing similar products. Since money is the general medium of exchange and can be invested in all products, this close competition extends throughout the length and breadth of the production structure. A fuller discussion of the determination of the rate of interest will take place in Chapter 6, but one thing should here be evident. The classical writers erred grievously in their discussion of the income-earning process in production. They believed that wages were the reward of labor, rents the reward of land, and interest the reward of capital goods, the three supposedly coordinate and independent factors of production. But such a discussion of interest was completely fallacious. As we have seen and shall see further, capital goods are not independently productive. They are the imputable creatures of land and labor and time. Therefore, capital goods generate no interest income. We have seen, in keeping with this analysis, that no income accrues to the owners of capital goods as such. Here the listener is referred to one of the great works in the history of economic thought, Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk's Capital and Interest, where the correct theory of interest is outlined. In particular, the various false theories of interest are brilliantly dissected. This is not to say that the present author endorses all of Böhm-Bawerk's theory of interest as presented in his Positive Theory of Capital. If the owners of land and labor factors receive all the income, for example 100 ounces, when they own the product jointly, why do their owners consent to sell their services for a total of 5 ounces less than their full worth? Is this not some form of exploitation by the capitalists? The answer, again, is that the capitalists do not earn income from their possession of capital goods, or because capital goods generate any sort of monetary income. The capitalists earn income in their capacity as purchasers of future goods in exchange for supplying present goods to owners of factors. It is this time element, the result of the various individuals' time preferences, and not the alleged independent productivity of capital goods from which the interest rate and interest income arise. The capitalists earn their interest income, therefore, by supplying the services of present goods to owners of factors in advance of the fruits of their production, acquiring their products by this purchase and selling the products at the later date when they become present goods. Thus capitalists supply present goods in exchange for future goods, the capital goods, hold the future goods, and have work done on them until they become present goods. They have given up money in the present for a greater sum of money in the future, and the interest rate that they have earned is the agio, or discount on future goods as compared with present goods, that is, the premium commanded by present goods over future goods. 
we shall see that this exchange rate between present and future goods is not only uniform in the production process, but throughout the entire market system. It is the social rate of time preference. It is the price of time on the market as the resultant of all the individual valuations of that good. How the agio or pure interest rate is determined in the particular time exchange markets will be discussed further. Here we shall simply conclude by observing that there is some agio which will be established uniformly throughout the economy, and which will be the pure interest rate on the certain expectation of future goods as against present goods. Eight. Money, Costs, Prices, and Alfred Marshall In the ERE, therefore, every good sold to consumers will sell at a certain final equilibrium price and at certain total sales. These receipts will accrue in part to capitalists in the form of interest income and the remainder to owners of land and labor. The payments of income to the producers have also been popularly termed costs. These are clearly money costs or money expenses and obviously are not the same thing as costs in the psychic sense of subjective opportunity foregone. Money costs may be ex post as well as ex ante. In the ERE, of course, ex-ante and ex-post calculations are always the same. However, the two concepts become linked when psychic costs are appraised as much as possible in monetary terms. Thus, payment to factors may be 95 ounces and recorded as a cost, while the capitalist who earns an interest of 5 ounces considers 100 as an opportunity cost, since he could have invested elsewhere and earned 5, actually a bit higher, percent interest. If, for the moment, we include as money costs, factor payments and interest, then in the ERE, money costs equal total money sales for every firm in every line of production. Strictly, this assumption is incorrect, and we make it in this section only for purposes of simplicity. For interest may be an opportunity cost for an individual investor, but it is not a money cost, nor is it an opportunity cost for the aggregate of capitalists. A firm earns entrepreneurial profits when its return is more than interest, suffers entrepreneurial losses when its return is less. In our production process, consumers will pay 100 ounces, money sales, and money costs are 100 ounces, factor plus interest income, and there will be similar equality for all other goods and processes. What this means in essence is that there are no entrepreneurial profits or losses in the ERE, because there is no change of data or uncertainty about possible change. If total money sales equal total money costs, then it evidently follows that total money sales per unit sold will equal total money costs per unit sold. This follows from elementary rules of arithmetic. 
but the money sales per unit are equal to the money price of the good, by definition, while we shall call the total money costs per unit the average money cost of the good. It likewise follows, therefore, that price will equal average money cost for every good in the ERE. Strange as it may seem, a great many writers on economics have deduced from this a curious conclusion indeed. They have deduced that in the long run, that is, in the ERE, the fact that costs equals sales, or that cost equals price, implies that costs determine price. The price of the good discussed previously is 100 ounces per unit, allegedly because the cost, average money cost, is 100 ounces per unit. This is supposed to be the law of price determination in the long run. It would seem to be crystal clear, however, that the truth is precisely the reverse. The price of the final product is determined by the valuations and demands of the consumers, and this price determines what the cost will be. If the consumers value the product mentioned so that its price is 50 ounces instead of 100 ounces, as a result, say, of a change in their valuations, then it is precisely in the long run when the effects of uncertainty are removed that costs of production, here factor payment plus interest payment, will equal the final price. We have seen above how factor incomes are at the mercy of consumer demand and fluctuate according to that demand. Factor payments are the result of sales to consumers and do not determine the latter in advance. Costs of production, then, are at the mercy of final price and not the other way around. It is ironic that it is precisely in the ERE that this causative phenomenon should be the clearest. For in the ERE we see quite evidently that consumers pay and determine the final price of the product, that it is through these payments and these payments alone that factors and interest are paid that therefore the amount of the payments and the total costs of production are determined by price and not vice versa. Money costs are the opposite of a basic determining factor. They are dependent on the price of the product and on consumer demands. In the real world of uncertainty, it is more difficult to see this, because factors are paid in advance of the sale of the product, since the capitalist entrepreneurs speculatively advance money to the factors in the expectation of being able to recoup their money with a surplus for interest and profit after sale to the consumers. Whether they do so or not depends on their foresight regarding the state of consumer demand and the future prices of consumers' goods. In the real world of immediate market prices, of course, the existence of entrepreneurial profit and loss will always prevent costs and receipts, cost and price, from being identical. And it is obvious to all that price is solely determined by valuations of stock, by utilities, and not at all by money cost. 
But although most economists recognize that in the real world, the so-called short run, costs cannot determine price, they are seduced by the habit of the individual entrepreneur of dealing in terms of cost as the determining factor, and they apply this procedure to the case of the ERE, and therefore to the inherent long-run tendencies of the economy. Their grave error, as will be discussed further below, comes from viewing the economy from the standpoint of an individual entrepreneur rather than from that of an economist. To the individual entrepreneur, the cost of factors is largely determined by forces outside himself and his own sales. The economist, however, must see how money costs are determined, and, taking account of all the interrelations in the economy, must recognize that they are determined by final prices reflecting consumer demands and valuations. The source of the error will become clearer when we consider a world of nonspecific as well as specific factors. However, the essentials of our analysis and its conclusion remain the same in that more complex and realistic case. The classical economists were under the delusion that the price of the final product is determined by costs of production, or rather, they fluctuated between this doctrine and the labor theory of value, which isolated the money costs of labor and picked that segment of the cost of production as the determinant of price. They slurred over the determination of the prices of such goods as old paintings that already existed and needed no further production. The correct relation between prices and costs, as outlined earlier, was developed, along with other outstanding contributions to economics, by the Austrian economists, including the Austrians Karl Menger, Eugen von Böhmbawerk, and Friedrich von Wieser, and the Englishman W. Stanley Jevons. It was with the writings of the Austrian school in the 1870s and 1880s that economics was truly established as a science. The very interesting researches by Emil Kauder indicate that the essentials of the Austrian marginal utility theory, the basis of the view that price determines cost and not vice versa or mutually, had already been formulated by French and Italian economists of the 17th and 18th centuries, and that the English classical school shunted economics onto a very wrong road, a road from which economics was extricated only by the Austrians. Unfortunately, in the science of economics, retrogression in knowledge has taken place almost as often as progression, the enormous advance provided by the Austrian school, on this point as on others, was blocked and reversed by the influence of Alfred Marshall, who attempted to rehabilitate the classicists and integrate them with the Austrians, while disparaging the contributions of the latter. It was unfortunately the Marshallian and not the Austrian approach that exerted the most influence over later writers— 
This influence is partly responsible for the current myth among economists that the Austrian school is effectively dead and has no more to contribute, and that everything of lasting worth that it had to offer was effectively stated and integrated in Alfred Marshall's principles. Marshall tried to rehabilitate the cost-of-production theory of the classicists by conceding that, in the short run, in the immediate marketplace, consumers' demand rules price, but in the long run, among the important reproducible goods, cost-of-production is determining. According to Marshall, both utility and money costs determine price, like blades of a scissors, but one blade is more important in the short run and another in the long run. He concludes that, as a general rule, the shorter the period we are considering, the greater must be the share of our attention which is given to the influence of demand on value, and the longer the period, the more important will be the influence of cost of production on value. The actual value at any time, the market value as it is often called, is often more influenced by passing events and by causes whose action is fitful and short-lived than by those which work persistently. But in long periods, these fitful and irregular causes in large measure efface one another's influence, so that in the long run, persistent causes dominate value completely. The implication is quite clear. If one deals with short-run market values, one is being quite superficial and dwelling only on fitful and transient causes. So much for the Austrians. But if one wants to deal with the really basic matters, the really lasting and permanent causes of prices, he must concentrate on costs of production, pace the classicists. This impression of the Austrians, their alleged neglect of the long period and one-sided neglect of costs, has been stamped on economics ever since. Marshall's analysis suffers from a grave methodological defect, indeed from an almost hopeless methodological confusion as regards the short run and the long run. He considers the long run as actually existing, as being the permanent, persistent, observable element beneath the fitful, basically unimportant flux of market value. He admits on page 350 that even the most persistent causes are, however, liable to change. But he clearly indicates that they are far less likely to change than the fitful market values. Herein, indeed, lies their long-run nature. He regards the long-run data, then, as underlying the transient market values in a way similar to that in which the basic sea level underlies the changing waves and tides. This analogy, though not used in this context, was often used by classical economists as applied to prices and the price level, an application equally erroneous. For Marshall, then, the long-run data are something that can be spotted and marked by an observer. Indeed, since they change far more slowly than the market values, they can be observed more accurately. Marshall's conception of the long run is completely fallacious, and this eliminates the whole groundwork of his theoretical structure. 
The long run, by its very nature, never does and never can exist. This does not mean that long-run or ERE analysis is not important. On the contrary, only through the concept of the ERE can we subject to catalactic analysis such critical problems as entrepreneurial profit, the structure of production, the interest rate, and the pricing of productive factors. The ERE is the goal, albeit shifting in the concrete sense, toward which the market moves. But the point at issue is that it is not observable or real, as are actual market prices. We have seen the characteristics of the evenly rotating economy. The ERE is the condition that comes into being and continues to obtain when the present existing market data, valuations, technology, resources, remain constant. It is a theoretical construct of the economist that enables him to point out in what directions the economy tends to be moving at any given time. It also enables the economist to isolate various elements in his analysis of the economy of the real world. To analyze the determining forces in a world of change, he must construct hypothetically a world of non-change. This is far different from, indeed it is the reverse of, saying that the long run exists or that it is somehow more permanently or more persistently existent than the actual market data. The actual market prices, on the contrary, are the only ones that ever exist and they are the resultants of actual market data, consumer demands, resources, etc., that themselves change continually. The long run is not more stable. Its data necessarily change along with the data on the market. The fact that costs equal prices in the long run does not mean that costs will actually equal prices, but that the tendency exists, a tendency that is continually being disrupted in reality by the very fitful changes in market data that Marshall points out. Marshall is here committing the famous fallacy of conceptual realism in which theoretical constructs are mistaken for actually existing entities. In sum, rather than being in some sense more persistent and more real than the actual market, the long run of the ERE is not real at all but a very useful theoretical construct that enables the economist to point out the direction in which the market is moving at any given time, specifically toward the elimination of profits and losses if existing market data remain the same. Thus, the ERE concept is especially helpful in the analysis of profits and losses as compared to interest, but the market data are the only actual reality. This is not to deny, and the Austrians never did deny, that subjective costs, in the sense of opportunity costs and utilities foregone, are important in the analysis of production. 
in particular the disutilities of labor and of waiting, as expressed in the time preference ratios, determine how much of people's energies and how much of their savings will go into the production process. This, in the broadest sense, will determine or help to determine the total supply of all goods that will be produced. But these costs are themselves subjective utilities, so that both blades of the scissors are governed by the subjective utility of individuals. This is a monistic and not a dualistic causal explanation. The costs, furthermore, have no direct influence on the relative amount of the stock of each good to be produced. Consumers will evaluate the various stocks of goods available. How much productive energy and savings will go into producing stock of one particular good and how much into producing another, in other words, the relative stocks of each product, will depend in turn on entrepreneurial expectations of where the greatest monetary profit will be found. These expectations are based on the anticipated direction of consumer demand. As a result of such anticipations, the non-specific factors will move to the production of those goods where, ceteris paribus, their owners will earn the highest incomes. An exposition of this process will be presented. Marshall's treatment of subjective costs was also highly fallacious. Instead of the idea of opportunity costs, he had the notion that they were real costs that could be added in terms of measurable units. Money costs of production, then, became the necessary supply prices that entrepreneurs had to pay in order to call forth an adequate supply of the efforts and weightings to produce a supply of the product. These real costs were then supposed to be the fundamental persisting element that backstops money costs of production and allowed Marshall to talk of the more persisting, long-run, normal situation. Marshall's great error here, and it has permeated the works of his followers and of present-day writers, is to regard costs and production exclusively from the point of view of an isolated individual entrepreneur or an isolated individual industry, rather than viewing the whole economy in all its interrelations. We must hasten to point out that this is by no means the same criticism as the neo-Keynesian charge that economists must deal in broad aggregates and not with individual cases. The latter approach is even worse, since it begins with holes that have no basis in reality whatever. What we are advocating is a theory that deals with all the individuals as they interact in the economy. Furthermore, this is the Austrian and not the Valrassian approach, which has recently come into favor. The latter deals with interrelations of individuals, the general equilibrium approach, but only in the ERE and with mathematical abstractions in the ERE. Marshall is dealing of necessity with particular prices of different goods, and he is attempting to show that alleged costs of production determine these prices in the long run. 
but it is completely erroneous to tie up particular goods with labor versus leisure and with consuming versus waiting costs, for the latter are only general phenomena, applying and diffusing throughout the entire economic system. The price necessary to call forth a non-specific factor is the highest price this factor can earn elsewhere, an opportunity cost. What it can attain elsewhere is basically determined by the state of consumer demand elsewhere. The foregone leisure and consumption costs in general only help to determine the size, the general stock of labor and savings that will be applied to production. All this will be treated further. 9. Pricing and the Theory of Bargaining we have seen that for all goods, total receipts to sellers will tend to equal total payments to factors, and this equality will be established in the evenly rotating economy. In the ERE, interest income will be earned at the same uniform rate by capitalists throughout the economy. The remainder of income from production and sale to consumers will be earned by the owners of the original factors land, and labor. Our next task will be to analyze the determination of the prices of factor services and the determination of the interest rate as they tend to be approached in the economy and would be reached in the ERE. Until now, discussion has centered on the capital goods structure, treated as if it were in one composite state of production, Clearly, there are numerous stages, but we have seen that earnings in production ultimately resolve themselves, and certainly do so in the ERE, into the earnings of the original factors, land and labor. Later on, we shall expand the analysis to include the case of many stages in the production process, and we shall defend this type of temporal analysis of production against the very fashionable current view that production is timeless under modern conditions, and that the original factor analysis might have been useful for the primitive era, but not for a modern economy. As a corollary to this, we shall develop further an analysis of the nature of capital and time in the production process. What will be the process of pricing productive factors in a world of purely specific factors? We have been assuming that only services and not whole goods can be acquired. In the case of labor, this is true because of the nature of the free society— in the case of land and capital goods, we are assuming that the capitalist product owners hire or rent rather than own any of the productive factors outright. In our example, the 95 ounces went to all the factor owners jointly. By what principles can we determine how the joint income is allocated to the various individual factor services? If all the factors are purely specific, we can resort to what is usually called the theory of bargaining. We are in a very analogous situation to the two-person barter of Chapter 2. 
For what we have is not relatively determinate prices or proportions, but exchange ratios with wide zones between the marginal pairs of prices. The maximum price of one is widely separated from the minimum price of the other. In the present case, we have, say, twelve labor and land factors, each of which is indispensable to the production of the good. None of the factors, furthermore, can be used anywhere else, in any other line of production. The question for these factor owners to solve is the proportionate share of each in the total joint income. Each factor owner's maximum goal is something slightly less than 100% of the income from the consumers. What the final decision will be cannot be indicated by praxeology. There is, for all practical purposes, no theory of bargaining. All that can be said is that since the owner of each factor wants to participate and earn some income, all will most likely arrive at some sort of voluntary contractual arrangement. This will be a formal type of partnership agreement if the factors jointly own the product, or it will be the implicit result if a pure capitalist purchases the services of the factors. Economists have always been very unhappy about bargaining situations of this kind, since economic analysis is stopped from saying anything more of note. We must not pursue the temptation, however, to condemn such situations as in some way exploitative or bad, and thereby convert barrenness for economic analysis into tragedy for the economy. Whatever agreement is arrived at by the various individuals will be beneficial to every one of them. Otherwise, he would not have so agreed. It is generally assumed that in the jockeying for proportionate shares, labor factors have less bargaining power than land factors. The only meaning that can be seen in the term bargaining power here is that some factor owners might have minimum reservation prices for their factors, below which they would not be entered in production. In that case, these factors would at least have to receive the minimum, while factors with no minimum, with no reservation price, would work even at an income of only slightly more than zero. Now it should be evident that the owner of every labor factor has some minimum selling price, a price below which he will not work. In our case, where we are assuming, as we shall see quite unrealistically, that every factor is specific, it is true that no laborer would be able to earn a return in any other type of work, but he could always enjoy leisure and this sets a minimum supply price for labor service. On the other hand, the use of land sacrifices no leisure, except in rare cases where the owner enjoys a valuable aesthetic pleasure from contemplating a stretch of his own land not in use. There is no revenue that the land can bring him except a monetary return in production. Therefore, land has no reservation price, and the landowner would have to accept a return of almost zero, rather than allow his land to be idle. The bargaining power of the owner of labor, therefore, is almost always superior to that of the owner of land. 
In the real world, labor, as will be seen, is uniquely the non-specific factor, so that the theory of bargaining could never apply to labor incomes. Contrast the discussion in most textbooks, where bargaining occupies an important place in explanation of market pricing only in the discussion of labor incomes. Thus, when two or more factors are specific to a given line of production, there is nothing that economic analysis can say further about the allocation of the joint income from their product. It is a matter of voluntary bargaining between them. Bargaining and indeterminate pricing also take place even between two or more nonspecific factors in the rare case where the proportions in which these factors must be used are identical in each employment. In such cases, also, there is no determinate pricing for any of the factors separately, and the result must be settled by mutual bargaining. Suppose, for example, that a certain machine containing two necessary parts can be used in several fields of production. The two parts, however, must always be combined in use in a certain fixed proportion. Suppose that two or more individuals owned these two parts. That is, two different individuals produced the different parts by their labor and land. The combined machine will be sold to or used in that line of production where it will yield the highest monetary income. But the price that will be established for that machine will necessarily be a cumulative price, so far as the two factors, the two parts, are concerned. The price of each part and the allocation of the income to the two owners must be decided by a process of bargaining. Economics cannot here determine separate prices. This is true because the proportions between the two are always the same, even though the combined product can be used in several different ways. Not only is bargaining theory rarely applicable in the real world, but zones of indeterminacy between valuations and therefore zones of indeterminacy in pricing tend to dwindle radically in importance as the economy evolves from barter to an advanced monetary economy. The greater the number and variety of goods available, and the greater the number of people with differing valuations, the more negligible will zones of indeterminacy become. At this point, we may introduce another rare, explicitly empirical element into our discussion: that on this earth, labor has been a far scarcer factor than land. As in the case of Crusoe, so in the case of a modern economy, men have been able to choose which land to use in various occupations and which to leave idle, and have found themselves with idle, no rent land—that is, land yielding no income. Of course, as an economy advances and population and utilization of resources grow, there is a tendency for this superfluity of land to diminish. Barring discoveries of new fertile lands. Chapter six: Production, the rate of interest and its determination. One, many stages: the pure rate of interest, 
The discussion in this chapter deals with the pure rate of interest as determined by time preference. On the role of the purchasing power component in the market rate of interest, see Chapter 11 on money. Up to this point, we have been treating the structure of production as amalgamated into one stage. One or several firms have all been vertically integrating all the stages of production of a product with all factors specific until finally the product is sold to the consumer. This is certainly an unrealistic assumption. We shall now consider the production situation in the real world, where a. Factors are non-specific as well as specific, and b. Production is divided into numerous stages as the factors continue to work and advance from the higher to the lower stages of the production process. Instead of assuming that one firm, one set of capitalists, purchases factors and retains ownership of the product up through the sale to consumers, let us suppose that there are different firms and different sets of capitalists at definite intervals, and at each interval the product, in the stage it has reached up to that point, is sold for money to another capitalist or group of capitalists. It is not necessary to make any restrictive assumptions about how many separate stages occur or what the time intervals between individual stages might be. For purposes of convenience, we shall assume that each stage takes the same length of time. Now, instead of collecting interest income for services in one lump sum at the final stage, the capitalist or capitalists acquire interest income at each stage. If each stage takes one year, then the entire production process for the good takes six years. When the stages are all lumped together or vertically integrated, then one capitalist or set of capitalists advances the owners of original factors their money six years ahead of time, and then waits for this period to acquire his revenue. Strictly, since the work and pay of labor and land would be continual as the product advanced to its final form, the earliest hired labor and land would be paid, say, in year one, and the latest toward the end of year six. With separate stages, however, each capitalist advances the money for only one year. Suppose consumers spend 100 ounces on a particular good. Of the 100 ounces, 5 ounces go as interest income to the sellers of the consumer's good, and 95 are paid out to the owners of factors. 15 ounces go for the use of land and labor, original factors, and 80 go into the purchase of factor services of capital goods of a higher order. At the second stage, capitalists receive 80 ounces in revenue from the sale of their product. Of the 80 ounces, 16 go into the purchase of land and labor factors, and 4 accrue as interest income to the second-level capitalists. The remaining 60 are used for the purchase of higher-order capital goods. The same process is repeated until, on the highest stage, the highest-order capitalists receive 20 ounces of revenue, retain one for themselves, and pay out 19 to land and labor factors.
The sum total of income to land and labor factors is 83 ounces. Total interest income is 17 ounces. In the foregoing section on interest, we showed that money is always nonspecific, and the result is that in the ERE, the interest return on monetary investment, the pure rate of interest, is the same everywhere in the economy, regardless of the type of product or the specific conditions of its production. Here we see an amplification of this principle. Not only must the interest rate be uniform for each good, it must be uniform for every stage of every good. The interest rate return received by product owners, that is, by capitalists, is equal at each stage. At the lowest stage, producers have invested 95 ounces in factors, both capital goods and original factors, and receive 100 ounces from consumers, a net income of 5 ounces. This represents a return on the investment of approximately 5.2%. In the ERE, which we are considering, there are no profits or losses due to uncertainty, so that this return represents the rate of pure interest. In the ERE of our example, the pure rate of interest is the rate of interest, since, as we shall see, deviations from the pure rate are due solely to uncertainty. The capitalist at the next higher stage invests 60 plus 16, or 76 ounces, in factors, and receives a net return of 4 ounces, again, approximately 5.2%, and so on for each stage of investment, where, except for the vagaries of the arithmetic in our example, the interest rate is uniform for each stage. At the highest stage, the capitalist has invested 19 ounces in land and labor and receives a net return of 1, again about 5.2%. The interest rate must be equal for each stage of the production process, for suppose that the interest rate were higher in the higher stages than in the lower stages. Then capitalists would abandon producing in the lower stage and shift to the higher stage, where the interest return is greater. What is the effect of such a shift? We can answer by stressing the implications of differences in the interest rate. A higher interest rate in stage A than in stage B means that the price spread between the sum of factors entering into stage A and the selling price of its product is greater in percentage terms than the price spread in stage B. Thus, if we compare stage 4 and stage 1 in our example, we find a price spread of 43 to 45 in the former case and 95 to 100 in the latter, for a net interest return of approximately 5.2% in each. Let us suppose, however, that the sum of the factor prices for stage 4 is 35 instead of 43, while the sum of factor prices in stage 1 is 98. The sum of factor prices here excludes interest income, of course. Capitalists investing in stage 4 would earn a net return of 8, or 23%, while investors in stage 1 earned about 2%. 
capitalists would begin to stop investing in stage one and shift to stage four. As a consequence of this shifting, the aggregate demand in stage one for its factors diminishes, and the prices of the factors used in stage one therefore decline. In the meanwhile, greater investment in stage four raises factor prices there, so that the cumulative price rises from 35. Products of stage four increase, and the increased supply lowers the selling price, which falls from 43. These arbitrage actions continue until the percentage spread in each of the two stages is equal. It is important to realize that the interest rate is equal to the rate of price spread in the various stages. Too many writers consider the rate of interest as only the price of loans on the loan market. In reality, as we shall see, the rate of interest pervades all time markets, and the productive loan market is a strictly subsidiary time market of only derivative importance. In the reams of commentary on J. M. Keynes' general theory, no one has noticed the very revealing passage in which Keynes criticizes Mises' discussion of this point. Keynes asserted that Mises' peculiar new theory of interest confused the marginal efficiency of capital, the net rate of return on an investment, with the rate of interest. The point is that the marginal efficiency of capital is indeed the rate of interest. It is a price on the time market. It was precisely this natural rate, rather than the loan rate, that had been a central problem of interest theory for many years. The essentials of this doctrine were set forth by Bermbaverk in Capital and Interest, and should therefore not have been surprising to Keynes. It is precisely this preoccupation with the relatively unimportant problems of the loan market that constitutes one of the greatest defects of the Keynesian theory of interest. Not only will the rate of interest be equal in each stage of any given product, but the same rate of interest will prevail in all stages of all products in the ERE. In the real world of uncertainty, the tendency of entrepreneurial actions is always in the direction of establishing a uniform rate of interest throughout all time markets in the economy. The reason for the uniformity is clear. If stage 3 of good X earns 8% and stage 1 of good Y earns 2%, capitalists will tend to cease investing in the latter and shift to greater investments in the former. The price spreads change accordingly in response to the changing demands and supplies, and the interest rates become uniform. We may now remove our restrictive assumption about the equality of duration of the various stages. Any stage of any product may be as long or as short as the techniques of production and the organizational structure of industry require. Thus, a technique of production might require a year's harvest for any particular stage. On the other hand, a firm might vertically integrate two stages and advance the money to owners of factors for the period covering both stages before selling the product for money. 
The net return on the investment in any stage will adjust itself in accordance with the length of the stage. Thus, suppose that the uniform interest rate in the economy is 5%. This is 5% for a certain unit period of time, say a year. A production process or investment covering a period of two years will, in equilibrium, then earn 10%, the equivalent of 5% per year. The same will obtain for a stage of production of any length of time. Thus, irregularity or integration of stages does not hamper the equilibrating process in the slightest. It is already clear that the old classical trinity of land, labor, and capital, earning wages, rents, and interest, must be drastically modified. It is not true that capital is an independent productive factor, or that it earns interest for its owner in the same way that land and labor earn income for their owners. As we have seen and will discuss further, capital is not an independently productive factor. Capital goods are vital and of crucial importance in production, but their production is in the long run imputable to land, labor, and time factors. Furthermore, land and labor are not homogeneous factors within themselves, but simply categories of types of uniquely varying factors. Each land and each labor factor, then, has its own physical features, its own power to serve in production. Each, therefore, receives its own income from production, as will be detailed. Capital goods, too, have infinite variety. But in the ERE, they earn no incomes. What does earn an income is the conversion of future goods into present goods, because of the universal fact of time preference, future satisfactions are always at a discount compared to present satisfactions. The owning and holding of capital goods from date one, when factor services are purchased, until the product is sold at date two, is what capitalist investors accomplish. This is equivalent to the purchase of future goods, the factor services producing capital goods with money, followed by the sale at a later date of the present goods for money. The latter occurs when consumers' goods are being sold, for consumers' goods are present goods. When intermediate lower-order capital goods are sold for money, then it is not present goods, but less distantly future goods that are sold. In other words, capital goods have been advanced from an earlier, more distantly future stage toward the consumption stage, to a later or less distantly future stage. The time for this transformation will be covered by a rate of time preference. Thus, if the market time preference rate, that is, interest rate, is 5% per year, then a present good worth 100 ounces on the market will be worth about 95 ounces for a claim on it one year from now. The present value for a claim on 100 ounces one year from now will be 95 ounces. On this basis, the estimated worth of the good could be worked out for various points in time. 
Thus, the claim for one half year in the future will be worth roughly 97.5 ounces. The result will be a uniformity of rates over a period of time. Thus, capitalists advance present goods to owners of factors in return for future goods. Then, later, they sell the goods which have matured to become present or less distantly future goods in exchange for present goods. Money. They have advanced present goods to owners of factors and in return wait while these factors, which are future goods, are transformed into goods that are more nearly present than before. The capitalist's function is thus a time function, and their income is precisely an income representing the agio of present as compared to future goods. This interest income, then, is not derived from the concrete heterogeneous capital goods, but from the generalized investment of time. As Bumbaverk declared, interest may be obtained from any capital, no matter what be the kind of goods of which the capital consists, from goods that are barren as well as from those that are naturally fruitful, from perishable as well as from durable goods, from goods that can be replaced and from goods that cannot be replaced, from money as well as from commodities. It comes from a willingness to sacrifice present goods for the purchase of future goods, the factor services. As a result of the purchases, the owners of factors obtain their money in the present for a product that matures only in the future. Thus capitalists restrict their present consumption and use these savings of money to supply money present goods to factor owners who are producing only future goods. This is the service, an advance of time, that the capitalists supply to the owners of factors, and for which the latter voluntarily pay in the form of the interest rate. 2. The Determination of the Pure Rate of Interest The Time Market it is clear that the rate of interest plays a crucial role in the system of production in the complex monetary economy. How is the rate of interest determined? The pure rate of interest with which we are now concerned, we have seen, will tend to be equal throughout all stages of all production processes in the economy, and thus will be uniform in the ERE. The level of the pure rate of interest is determined by the market for the exchange of present goods against future goods, a market which we shall see permeates many parts of the economic system. The establishment of money as a general medium of exchange has greatly simplified the present future market as compared to the laborious conditions under barter where there were separate present future markets for every commodity. In the monetary economy, the present future market, or what we may call the time market, is expressed completely in terms of money. Money is clearly the present good par excellence. For aside from the consumption value of the monetary metal itself, the money commodity is the one completely marketable good in the entire society. 
It is the open sesame to exchange for consumption goods at any time that its owner desires. It is, therefore, a present good. Since consumers' goods, once sold, do not ordinarily re-enter the exchange nexus, money is the dominant present good in the market. Furthermore, since money is the medium for all exchanges, it is also the medium for exchanges on the time market. What are the future goods that exchange for money? Future goods are goods that are now expected to become present goods at some future date. They therefore have a present value. Because of the universal fact of time preference, a particular good is worth more at present than is the present prospect of its becoming available as a present good at some time in the future. In other words, a good at present is worth more now than its present value as a future good. Because money is the general medium of exchange, for the time market as well as for other markets, money is the present good, and the future goods are present expectations of the future acquisition of money. It follows from the law of time preference that present money is worth more than present expectations of the same amount of future money. In other words, future money, as we may call present expectations of money in the future, will always exchange at a discount compared to present money. This discount on future goods as compared with present goods, or conversely the premium commanded by present goods over future goods, is the rate of interest. Thus, if on the time market, 100 ounces of gold exchange for the prospect of obtaining 105 ounces of gold one year from now, then the rate of interest is approximately 5% per annum. This is the time discount rate of future to present money. What do we mean specifically by prospects for obtaining money in the future? These prospects must be carefully analyzed in order to explain all the causal factors in the determination of the rate of interest. In the first place, in the real world, these prospects, like any prospects over a period of time, are always more or less uncertain. In the real world, this ever-present uncertainty necessarily causes interest and profit and loss elements to be intertwined and creates complexities that will be analyzed further. In order to separate the time market from the entrepreneurial elements, we must consider the certain world of the evenly rotating economy, where anticipations are all fulfilled, and the pure rate of interest is equal throughout the economy. The pure rate of interest will then be the going rate of time discount, the ratio of the price of present goods to that of future goods. What then are the specific types of future goods that enter the time market? There are two such types. One is a written claim to a certain amount of money at a future date. The exchange on the time market in this case is as follows. A gives money to B in exchange for a claim to future money. The term generally used to refer to A, the purchaser of the future money, is lender. 
or creditor, while B, the seller of the future money, is termed the borrower or debtor. The reason is that this credit transaction, as contrasted to a cash transaction, remains unfinished in the present. When a man buys a suit for cash, he transfers money in exchange for the suit. The transaction is finished. In a credit transaction, he receives simply a written IOU, or note, entitling him to claim a certain amount of money at a future date. The transaction remains to be completed in the future, when B, the borrower, repays the loan by transferring the agreed money to the creditor. Although the loan market is a very conspicuous type of time transaction, it is by no means the only or even the dominant one. There is a much more subtle but more important type of transaction which permeates the entire production system, but which is not often recognized as a time transaction. This is the purchase of producers' goods and services, which are transformed over a period of time, finally to emerge as consumers' goods. When capitalists purchase the services of factors of production, or, as we shall later see, the factors themselves, they are purchasing a certain amount and value of net produce, discounted to the present value of that produce. For the land, labor, and capital services purchased are future goods, to be transformed into final form as present goods. Suppose, for example, that a capitalist entrepreneur hires labor services, and suppose that it can be determined that this amount of labor service will result in a net revenue of 20 gold ounces to the product owner. We shall see that the service will tend to be paid the net value of its product, but it will earn its product discounted by the time interval until sale. For if the labor service will reap 20 ounces five years from now, it is obvious that the owner of the labor cannot expect to receive from the capitalist the full 20 ounces now in advance. He will receive his net earnings discounted by the going agio, the rate of interest, and the interest income will be earned by the capitalist who has assumed the task of advancing present money. The capitalist then waits for five years until the product matures before recouping his money. The pure capitalist, therefore, in performing a capital-advancing function in the productive system, plays a sort of intermediary role. He sells money, a present good, to factor owners in exchange for the services of their factors, prospective future goods. He holds these goods and continues to hire work on them until they have been transformed into consumers' goods, present goods, which are then sold to the public for money, a present good. The premium that he earns from the sale of present goods compared to what he paid for future goods is the rate of interest earned on the exchange. The time market is therefore not restricted to the loan market. It permeates the entire production structure of the complex economy. All productive factors are future goods. 
they provide for their owner the expectation of being advanced toward the final goal of consumption, a goal which provides the raison d'etre for the whole productive enterprise. It is a time market where the future goods sold do not constitute a credit transaction, as in the case of the loan market. The transaction is complete in itself and needs no further payment by either party. In this case, the buyer of the future goods, the capitalist, earns his income through transforming these goods into present goods, rather than through the presentation of an IOU claim on the original seller of a future good. The time market, the market where present goods exchange for future goods, is then an aggregate with several component parts. In one part of the market, capitalists exchange their money savings, present goods, for the services of numerous factors, future goods. This is one part, and the most important part, of the time market. Another is the consumer's loan market, where savers lend their money in a credit transaction in exchange for an IOU of future money. The savers are the suppliers of present money, the borrowers the suppliers of future money in the form of IOUs. Here we are dealing only with those who borrow to spend on consumption goods, and not with producers who borrow savings in order to invest in production. For the borrowers of savings for production loans are not independent forces on the time market, but rather are completely dependent on the interest agio between present and future goods, as determined in the production system, equaling the ratio between the prices of consumers' and producers' goods and between the various stages of producers' goods. 3. Time Preference and Individual Value Scales Before considering the component parts of the time market further, let us go to the very root of the matter, the value scale of the individual. As we have seen in the problem of pricing and demand, the individual's value scale provides the key to the determination of all events on the market. This is no less true in regard to the interest rate. Here, the key is the schedule of time preference valuations of the individual. Let us consider a hypothetical individual, abstracting from any particular role that he may play in the economic system. This individual has, of necessity, a diminishing marginal utility of money, so that each additional unit of money acquired ranks lower on his value scale. This is necessarily true. Conversely, and this also follows from the diminishing marginal utility of money, each successive unit of money given up will rank higher on his value scale. The same law of utility applies to future money, that is, to prospects of future money. To both present money and future money there applies the general rule that more of a good will have greater utility than less of it. We may illustrate these general laws by means of the following hypothetical value scale of an individual. For John Smith, at the top of his value scale, is 19 ounces in the future, 10 years from now. 
followed by the fourth unit of ten ounces, followed by eighteen ounces in the future, followed by seventeen ounces in the future, followed by sixteen ounces in the future, followed by the third unit of ten ounces, followed by fifteen ounces in the future, followed by fourteen ounces in the future, followed by thirteen ounces in the future, followed by the second unit of ten ounces, followed by twelve ounces in the future, followed by the first unit of ten ounces, followed by eleven ounces in the future, followed by the first added unit of ten ounces, followed by the second added unit of ten ounces, followed by ten ounces in the future. We see in this value scale an example of the fact that all possible alternatives for choice are ranged in one scale, and the truths of the law of utility are exemplified. The first unit of ten ounces refers to the rank accorded to the first unit of ten ounces, the unit arbitrarily chosen here, to be given up. The second unit of ten ounces of money to be given up is accorded higher rank, etc. The first added unit of ten ounces refers to the rank accorded to the next unit of ten ounces which the man is considering acquiring. We thus have a schedule of John Smith's value scale with respect to time, that is, his scale of time preferences. Suppose that the market rate of interest, then, is 3%. That is, he can obtain 13 ounces of future money, considered here as 10 years from now, by selling 10 ounces of present money. To see what he will do, we are privileged to be able to consult his time preference scale. We find that 13 ounces of future money is preferred to his first unit of 10 ounces and also to the second unit of 10 ounces, but that the third unit of 10 ounces stands higher in his valuation. Therefore, with a market rate of 3% per year, the individual will save 20 ounces of gold and sell them for future money on the time market. He is a supplier of present goods on the time market to the extent of 20 ounces. This is a highly simplified portrayal of the value scale. For purposes of exposition, we have omitted the fact that the second unit of 13 added future ounces will be worth less than the first, the third unit of 13 less than the second, etc., Thus, in actuality, the demand schedule of future goods will be lower than portrayed. However, the essentials of the analysis are unaffected, since we can assume a demand schedule of any size that we wish. The only significant conclusion is that an individual demands more future goods as the market rate of interest rises, and this conclusion holds for the actual as well as for our simplified version. If the market rate of interest is 2%, so that 12 future ounces would be the price of 10 present ounces, then John Smith would be a supplier of 10 ounces of present money. He is never a supplier of future money because, in his particular case, there are no quantities of future money above 10 ounces that are ranked below first added unit of 10 ounces.
Suppose, for example, that James Robinson has the following time value scale. At the top of the scale, 19 ounces in the future, 10 years from now, followed by a second unit of 10 ounces, followed by 18 ounces in the future, 17 ounces in the future, the first unit of 10 ounces, 16 ounces in the future, 15 ounces in the future, 14 ounces in the future, the first added unit of 10 ounces, 13 ounces in the future, 12 ounces in the future, the second added unit of 10 ounces, 11 ounces in the future, the third added unit of 10 ounces, and 10 ounces in the future. If the market rate of interest is 3%, then Robinson's valuations are such that no savings will be supplied to the time market. On the contrary, 13 ounces in the future is lower than first added unit of 10 ounces, which means that Robinson would be willing to exchange 13 ounces of future money for 10 ounces of present money. Thereby, he becomes, in contrast to Smith, a supplier of future money. If the rate of interest were 1%, then he would supply 22 ounces of future money in exchange for 20 ounces of present money, thus increasing his demand for present money at the lower price. It will be noticed that there is no listing for less than 10 ounces of future goods to be compared with 10 ounces of present goods. The reason is that every man's time preference is positive, that is, one ounce of present money will always be preferred to one ounce or less of future money. Therefore, there will never be any question of a zero or negative pure interest rate. Many economists have made the great mistake of believing that the interest rate determines the time preference schedule and rate of savings, rather than vice versa. This is completely invalid. The interest rates discussed here are simply hypothetical schedules, and they indicate and reveal the time preference schedules of each individual, in the aggregate, as we shall see presently, the interaction of the time preferences and hence the supply-demand schedules of individuals on the time market determine the pure rate of interest on the market. They do so in the same way that individual valuations determine aggregate supply and demand schedules for goods, which in turn determine market prices. And once again, it is utilities and utilities alone, here in the form of time preferences, that determine the market result. The explanation does not lie in some sort of mutually determining process of preferences and market consequences. Continuing with our analysis, let us consider the schedules of John Smith and James Robinson from their time value scales in relation to their position on the time market. For John Smith, at an interest rate of 9%, he will supply 40 ounces of present money. At an interest rate of 8, 7, or 6%, he will supply 30 ounces of present money. At an interest rate of 5% or 4% or 3%, he will supply 20 ounces of present money. 
At an interest rate of 2%, he will supply 10 ounces of present money, and at an interest rate of 1%, he will supply no present money. At no interest rate will John Smith supply any future money. James Robinson, at an interest rate of 9%, will supply 20 ounces of present money. At an interest rate of 8 or 7%, he will supply 10 ounces of present money. At no interest rate lower than 7%, will James Robinson supply any present money. He will supply no future money at any interest rate above 3%. At an interest rate of 3%, he will supply 10 ounces of future money. At an interest rate of 2%, he will supply 10 ounces of future money. And at an interest rate of 1%, he will supply 20 ounces of future money. The Robinson time schedule is of particular interest. Referring to his time value scale, we find that at an interest rate of 9%, 19 ounces of future money is above the second unit of 10 ounces of present money, and therefore also above the first unit. At this interest rate, his supply of present money on the time market, that is, his savings, equals 20 ounces. Because his valuation of the first unit of 10 ounces, an arbitrary size of unit that we have picked for this discussion, is between 16 and 17 ounces of future money, when the market interest rate is 6%, his return of 16 ounces is less valuable to him than his first unit. Therefore, he will not be a saver and supplier of present money at this rate. On the other hand, he will not be a supplier of future goods, that is, a demander of present goods on the time market, either. In order to be a supplier of future goods, his valuation of the future money that he would have to give up at the ruling rate of interest has to be lower than the present money that he would get. In other words, what he gives up in prospective future money will have to be worth less to him than the utility of the first additional unit of 10 ounces on his scale. While the market rate is in the 4% to 6% range, this will not be true. For the 14 to 16 ounces of future money that he would have to supply would be worth more to him than the additional 10 ounces of present money that he would gain from the exchange. In Robinson's case, the critical point takes place when the hypothetical interest rate drops to 3%, for 13 future ounces are worth less than an additional 10 ounces of present money, and he will supply the future ounces on the market. If the interest rate were 1%, he would supply 20 ounces of future goods. It should be evident that an individual at any one time will either be a net saver, that is, a net demander of future goods, a net supplier of future goods, or not be on the time market at all. The three categories are mutually exclusive.
We cannot compare utilities or values between persons, but we certainly may say that Robinson's time preference schedule is higher than Smith's. In other words, it cannot make sense to compare the rankings or utilities that the two men accord to any particular unit of a good, but we can, if we know them, compare their schedules based purely on their demonstrated time preferences. Robinson's time preference schedule is higher than Smith's. That is, at each hypothetical rate of interest, Robinson's values are such that he will part with less of his present goods in exchange for future goods. In the same way, though we cannot compare utilities, we can compare, if we know them, individual demand schedules for goods. Let us explore the typical individual time preference schedule, or time supply and demand schedule, more closely. In the first place, there is no necessity for the unit chosen to be 10 ounces. Since money is perhaps the most divisible of goods, it is possible to break down the units into far smaller sizes. Furthermore, because of the arbitrage of the market, the rate of interest return on investments of present and future goods will be equal for all the various sizes of units. One inevitable characteristic of an individual's time preference schedule is that eventually, after a certain amount of present money has been supplied on the market, no conceivable interest rate could persuade him to purchase more future goods. The reason is that as present money dwindles and future money increases in a man's possession, the marginal utility of the former increases on the man's value scale, and the marginal utility of the latter decreases. In particular, every man must consume in the present, and this drastically limits his savings, regardless of the interest rate. As a result, after a certain point, a man's time preference for the present becomes infinite. At the other end of the scale, the fact of time preference will imply that at some minimum rate of interest, the man will not save at all. A man could not prefer 10 ounces or even less of future money to 10 ounces of present money. It is not valid to object that some might prefer to use the money in the future rather than in the present. That is not the issue here, which is one of availability for use. If a man wants to save money for some future use, he may hoard it rather than spend it on a future good, and thus have it always available. We have abstracted from hoarding, which will be dealt with in the chapter on money. It would have no place anyway in the evenly rotating world of certainty. What happens depends entirely on the time preferences of the individual. In some cases, as in that of John Smith, the person's marginal utility of money falls too fast as compared with that of future money for him to participate as a net demander of present goods at low rates of interest. In other words, Smith's time preference ratio is too low in this area for him to become a demander of present goods and a supplier of future goods. 
On the other hand, Robinson's higher schedule of time preferences is such that, at low rates of interest, he becomes a supplier of future goods for present goods. Every individual on the market has a similar type of time market schedule, reflecting his particular value scale. The schedule of each will be such that at higher rates of interest, there will be a greater tendency toward net saving, and at lower rates of interest, less saving, until the individual becomes a net demander. At each hypothetical rate of interest, there is a possible net saving, net demanding, or abstaining from the market for each individual. For some changes in the rate of interest, there will be no change, but there will never be a situation where the supply will be greater or demand less with lower rates of interest. The time market schedules of all individuals are aggregated on the market to form market supply and market demand schedules for present goods in terms of future goods. The supply schedule will increase with an increase in the rate of interest, and the demand schedule will fall with the higher rates of interest. The equilibrium rate of interest, the rate of interest as it would tend to be in the evenly rotating economy, this pure rate of interest is determined solely by the time preferences of the individuals in the society and by no other factor. Perhaps more fallacies have been committed in discussions concerning the interest rate than in the treatment of any other aspect of economics. It took a long while for the crucial importance of time preference in the determination of the pure rate of interest to be realized in economics. It took even longer for economists to realize that time preference is the only determining factor. Reluctance to accept a monistic causal interpretation has plagued economics to this day. 4. The Time Market and the Production Structure The time market, like other markets, consists of component individuals whose schedules are aggregated to form the market supply and demand schedules. The intricacy of the time market, and of the money market as well, consists in the fact that it is also divided and subdivided into various distinguishable sub-markets. These are aggregable into a total market, but the subsidiary components are interesting and highly significant in their own right, and deserve further analysis. They themselves, of course, are composed of individual supply and demand schedules. We may divide the present-future market into two main subdivisions, the production structure and the consumer loan market. Let us turn first to the production structure. Money moves from consumers' goods back through the various stages of production, while goods flow from the higher through the lower stages of production, finally to be sold as consumers' goods. The pattern of production is not changed by the fact that both specific and nonspecific factors exist. Since the production structure is aggregated, the degree of specificity for a particular product is irrelevant in a discussion of the time market. 
There is no problem in the fact that different production processes for different goods take unequal lengths of time. This is not a difficulty because the flow from one stage to another can be aggregated for any number of processes. There are, however, two more serious problems that seem to be involved in aggregating the production structure for the entire economy. One is the fact that in various processes there will not necessarily be an exchange of capital goods for money at each stage. One firm may vertically integrate within itself one or more stages and thereby advance present goods for a greater period of time. We shall see, however, that this presents no difficulty at all, just as it presented no difficulty in the case of particular processes. A second difficulty is the purchase and use of durable capital goods. We have been assuming and are continuing to assume that no capital goods or land are bought, that they are only hired, that is, rented, from their owners. The purchase of durable goods presents complications, but again, as we shall see, this will lead to no essential change whatever in our analysis. Let us begin with the expenditure of consumers on consumers' goods. The movement of money is from consumers to the sellers of consumers' goods. This is not a time transaction, because it is an exchange of present goods, money, for present goods, consumers' goods. The fact that consumers may physically consume all or part of these goods at a later date does not affect this conclusion, because any further consumption takes place outside the money nexus, and it is the latter that we are analyzing. These producers of consumers' goods are necessarily capitalists who have invested in the services of factors to produce these goods and who then sell their products. Their investment in factors consisted of purchases of the services of land factors and labor factors, the original factors, and first-order capital goods, the produced factors. In both these two large categories of transactions, exchanges that are made a stage earlier than the final sale of consumers' goods, present goods are exchanging for future goods. In both cases, the capitalists are supplying present money in exchange for factor services whose yield will materialize in the future, and which therefore are future goods. So, the capitalists who are producing consumers' goods, whom we might call first-stage capitalists, engage in time transactions in making their investments. The components of this particular subdivision of the time market, then, are supply of present goods, capitalists one, supply of future goods, landowners, laborers, capitalists two. Capitalists one are the first-stage capitalists who produce consumers' goods. They purchase capital goods from the producer-owners, the second-stage capitalists, or Capitalists two. At the next stage, the capitalists too have to purchase services of factors of production. 
They supply present goods and purchase future goods, goods which are even more distantly in the future than the product that they will produce. No important complication arises from the greater degree of futurity of the higher-order factors. As we have indicated, a more distantly future good will simply be discounted by the market by a greater amount, though at the same rate per annum. The interest rate, that is, the discount rate of future goods per unit of time, remains the same regardless of the degree of futurity of the good. This fact serves to resolve one problem mentioned earlier, vertical integration by firms over one or more stages. If the equilibrium rate of interest is 5% per year, then a one-stage producer will earn 5% on his investment, while a producer who advances present goods over three stages for three years will earn 15%, that is, 5% per annum. These future goods are supplied by landowners, laborers, and capitalists. To sum up, at the second stage, supply of present goods is provided by capitalists too. Supply of future goods by landowners, laborers, and capitalists three. This pattern is continued until the very last stage. At this final stage, which is here the sixth, the sixth-stage capitalists supply future goods to the fifth-stage capitalists, but also supply present goods to laborers and landowners in exchange for the extremely distant future services of the latter. The transactions for the two highest stages are, then, as follows, with the last stage designated as N instead of 6, Fifth stage, supply of present goods provided by capitalists five, supply of future goods by landowners, laborers, and capitalists n. At the nth stage of production, supply of present goods is provided by capitalists n, supply of future goods by landowners and laborers. We may now sum up our time market for any production structure of n stages. Suppliers of present goods include capitalists 1, 2, 3, through N. Suppliers of future goods, demanders of present goods, include all landowners, all laborers, and capitalists 2, 3, through N. To illustrate clearly the workings of the production structure, let us summarize the quantities of present goods supplied and received by the various components of the time market. We may use the same figures here to apply to the aggregate production structure, although the listener may wish to consider the units as multiples of gold ounces in this case. Furthermore, the fact that the ERE interest rate will be the same for all stages and all goods in the economy especially permits us to aggregate the comparable stages of all goods. For if the rate is 5%, then we may say that for a certain stage of one good, payments by capitalists to owners of factors are 50 ounces, and receipts from sales of products are 52.5 ounces, 
while we can also assume that the aggregate payments for the whole economy in the same period are 5,000 ounces and receipts 5,250 ounces. The same interest rate connotes the same rate of return on investments, whether considered separately or for all goods lumped together. Suppose, for example, that we stipulate that in a production process of N stages, capitalists invest a total of 318 ounces, 83 ounces of which goes to land and labor owners, and 235 ounces of which goes to purchase factor services of capital goods of a higher order. From this, it is easy to derive the net money income of the various participants, their gross money income minus their money payments, if we include the entire period of time for all of their transactions on the time market. The case of the owners of land and labor is simple. They receive their money in exchange for the future goods to be yielded by their factors. This money is their gross and their net money income from the productive system. The total of net money income to the owners of land and labor is 83 ounces. This is the sum of the money incomes to the various owners of land and labor at each stage of production. The case of the capitalists is far more complicated. They pay out present goods in exchange for future goods and then sell the maturing, less distantly future products for money to lower-stage capitalists. Their net money income is derived by subtracting their money outgo from their gross income over the period of the production stage. In our example, capitalists, too, spend 76 ounces out of a gross income of 80 ounces for a net income of 4 ounces. Capitalists, three, spend 57 ounces out of a gross income of 60 ounces for a net income of 3 ounces. Capitalists, four, spend 43 ounces out of a gross income of 45 ounces for a net income of 2 ounces. Capitalists 5 spend 28 ounces out of a gross income of 30 ounces for a net income of 2 ounces. Capitalists N spend 19 ounces out of a gross income of 20 ounces for a net income of 1 ounce. The total net income of the capitalists producing capital goods, orders 2 through N, is 12 ounces. What then of capitalists 1? who apparently have not only no net income, but a deficit of 95 ounces. They are recouped not from the savings of capitalists, but from the expenditure of consumers, which totals 100 ounces, yielding a net income to capitalists one of 5 ounces. It should be emphasized at this point that the general pattern of the structure of production and of the time market will be the same in the real world of uncertainty as in the ERE. The difference will be in the amounts that go to each sector and in the relations among the various prices. We shall see later what the discrepancies will be. For example, the rate of return by the capitalists in each sector will not be uniform in the real market. 
but the pattern of payments, the composition of suppliers and demanders, will be the same. In analyzing the income expenditure balance sheets of the production structure, writers on economic problems have seen that we may consolidate the various incomes and consider only the net incomes. The temptation has been simply to write off the various intercapitalist transactions as duplications. If that is done here, then the total net income in the market is capitalists 17 ounces, 12 ounces for capital good capitalists, and 5 ounces for consumers good capitalists, land and labor factors 83 ounces. The grand total net income is then 100 ounces. This is exactly equal to the total of consumer spending for the period. Total net income is 100 ounces and consumption is 100 ounces. There is, therefore, no new net saving. We shall deal with savings and their change in detail later. Here the point is that in the endless round of the ERE, zero net savings, as thus defined, would mean that there is just enough gross saving to keep the structure of productive capital intact, to keep the production processes rolling, and to keep a constant amount of consumers' goods produced per given period. It is certainly legitimate and often useful to consider net incomes and net savings, but it is not always illuminating, and its use has been extremely misleading in present-day economics. Use of the net national income figures. It is better to deal with social income, extending throughout the market community using the money, rather than to limit the scope to national boundaries leads one to believe that the really important element maintaining the production structure is consumers' spending. In our ERE example, the various factors and capitalists receive their net income and plow it back into consumption, thus maintaining the productive structure and future standards of living, that is, the output of consumers' goods. The inference from such concepts is clear. Capitalist savings are necessary to increase and deepen the capital structure, but even without any savings, consumption expenditure is alone sufficient to maintain the productive capital structure intact. This conclusion seems deceptively clear-cut. After all, is not consumer spending the bulwark and end product of activity? This thesis, however, is tragically erroneous. There is no simple automatism in capitalist spending, especially when we leave the certain world of the ERE, and it is in this real world that the conceptual error plays havoc. For with production divided into stages, it is not true that consumption spending is sufficient to provide for the maintenance of the capital structure. When we consider the maintenance of the capital structure, we must consider all the decisions to supply present goods on the present future market. These decisions are aggregated. They do not cancel one another out. 
total savings in the economy, then, are not zero, but the aggregation of all the present goods supplied to owners of future goods during the production process. This is the sum of the supplies of Capitalists I through Capitalists N, which totals 318 ounces. This is the total gross savings, the supply of present goods for future goods in production, and also equals total gross investment. Investment is the amount of money spent on future good factors, and necessarily equals savings. Total expenditures on production are 100 consumption plus 318 Investment, or savings, equals 418 ounces. Total gross income from production equals the gross income of capitalists 1, 100 ounces, plus the gross income of other capitalists, 235 ounces, plus the gross income of owners of land and labor, 83 ounces, which also equals 418 ounces. The system depicted in our example of the production structure, then, is of an economy in which 418 gold ounces are earned in gross income, and 100 ounces are spent on consumption, while 318 ounces are saved and invested in a certain order in the production structure. In this evenly rotating economy, 418 ounces are earned and then spent, with no net hoarding or dishoarding, that is, no net additions or subtractions from the cash balance over the period as a whole. Problems of hoarding and dishoarding from the cash balance will be treated in Chapter 11 on money and are prescinded from the present analysis. Thus, instead of no savings being needed to maintain capital and the production structure intact, we see that a very heavy proportion of savings and investment, in our example, three times the amount spent on consumption, is necessary simply to keep the production structure intact. The contrast is clear when we consider who obtains income and who is empowered to decide whether to consume or to invest. The net income theorists implicitly assume that the only important decisions in regard to consuming versus saving investing are made by the factor owners out of their net income. Since the net income of capitalists is admittedly relatively small, this approach attributes little importance to their role in maintaining capital. We see, however, that what maintains capital is gross expenditures and gross investment, and not net investment. The capitalists at each stage of production, therefore, have a vital role in maintaining capital through their savings and investment, through heavy savings from gross income. Concretely, let us take the case of the capitalists' one. According to the net income theorists, their role is relatively small, since their net income is only five ounces. 
But actually, their gross income is 100 ounces, and it is their decision on how much of this to save and how much to consume that is decisive. In the ERE, of course, we simply state that they save and invest 95 ounces. But when we leave the province of the ERE, we must realize that there is nothing automatic about this investment. There is no natural law that they must reinvest this amount. Suppose, for example, that the capitalists, one, decide to break up the smooth flow of the ERE by spending all of the 100 ounces for their own consumption, rather than investing the 95 ounces. It is evident that the entire market-borne production structure would be destroyed. No income at all would accrue to the owners of all the higher-order capital goods, and all the higher-order capital processes, all the production processes longer than the very shortest, would have to be abandoned. We have seen, and shall see in more detail, that civilization advances by virtue of additional capital, which lengthens production processes. Greater quantities of goods are made possible only through the employment of more capital in longer processes. Should capitalists shift from saving investment to consumption, all these processes would be necessarily abandoned and the economy would revert to barbarism with the employment of only the shortest and most primitive production processes. The standard of living, the quantity and variety of goods produced, would fall catastrophically to the primitive level. What could be the reason for such a precipitate withdrawal of savings and investment in favor of consumption? The only reason on the free market would be a sudden and massive increase in the time preference schedules of the capitalists, so that present satisfactions become worth very much more in terms of future satisfactions. Their higher time preferences mean that the existing rate of interest is not enough to induce them to save and invest in their previous proportions. They therefore consume a greater proportion of their gross income and invest less. Each individual, on the basis of his time preference schedule, decides between the amount of his money income to be devoted to saving and the amount to be devoted to consumption. The aggregate time market schedules, determined by time preferences, determine the aggregate social proportions between gross savings and consumption. It is clear that the higher the time preference schedules are, the greater will be the proportion of consumption to savings, while lower time preference schedules will lower this proportion. At the same time, as we have seen, higher time preference schedules in the economy lead to higher rates of interest, and lower schedules lead to lower rates of interest. From this it becomes clear that the time preferences of the individuals on the market determine simultaneously and by themselves both the market equilibrium interest rate and the proportions between consumption and savings, individual and aggregate. Both of the latter are the obverse side of the same coin. 
In our example, the increase in time preference schedules has caused a decline in savings, absolute and proportionate, and a rise in the interest rate. The fallacies of the net product figures have led economists to include some grossness in their product and income figures. At present, the favorite concept is that of the gross national product and its counterpart, gross national expenditures. These concepts were adopted because of the obvious errors encountered with the net income concepts. Current gross figures, however, are the height of illogicality because they are not gross at all but only partly gross. They include only gross purchases by capitalists of durable capital goods and the consumption of their self-owned durable capital, approximated by depreciation allowances set by the owners. We shall consider the problems of durable capital more fully later, but suffice it to say that there is no great difference between durable and less durable capital. Both are consumed in the course of the production process, and both must be paid for out of the gross income and gross savings of lower-order capitalists. In evaluating the payment pattern of the production structure, then, it is inadmissible to leave the consumption of non-durable capital goods out of the investment picture. It is completely illogical to single out durable goods, which are themselves only discounted embodiments of their non-durable services, and therefore no different from non-durable goods. The idea that the capital structure is maintained intact without savings, as it were, automatically, is fostered by the use of the net approach. If even zero savings will suffice to maintain capital, then it seems as if the aggregate value of capital is a permanent entity that cannot be reduced. This notion of the permanence of capital has permeated economic theory, particularly through the writings of J.B. Clark and Frank H. Knight, and through the influence of the latter has molded current neoclassical economic theory in America. To maintain this doctrine, it is necessary to deny the stage analysis of production and, indeed, to deny the very influence of time in production. If permanence is attributed to the mythical entity, the aggregate value of capital, it becomes an independent factor of production, along with labor, and earns interest. The all-pervading influence of time is stressed in the period of production concept and in the determination of the interest rate and of the investment consumption ratio by individual time preference schedules. The Knight Doctrine denies any role to time in production, asserting that production now, in a modern complex economy, is timeless, and that time preference has no influence on the interest rate. This doctrine has been aptly called a mythology of capital. Among other errors, it leads to the belief that there is no economic problem connected with the replacement and maintenance of capital. A common fallacy, fostered directly by the net income approach, holds that the important category of expenditures in the production system is consumers' spending. 
Many writers have gone so far as to relate business prosperity directly to consumers' spending and depressions of business to declines in consumers' spending. Business cycle considerations will be deferred to later chapters, but it is clear that there is little or no relationship between prosperity and consumers' spending. Indeed, almost the reverse is true. For business prosperity, the important consideration is the price spreads between the various stages, that is, the rate of interest return earned. It is this rate of interest that induces capitalists to save and invest present goods in productive factors. The rate of interest, as we have been demonstrating, is set by the configurations of the time preferences of individuals in the society. It is not the total quantity of money spent on consumption that is relevant to capitalists' returns, but the margins, the spreads between the product prices and the sum of factor prices at the various stages. Spreads which tend to be proportionately equal throughout the economy. There is, in fact, never any need to worry about the maintenance of consumer spending. There must always be consumption, as we have seen. After a certain amount of monetary saving, there is always an irreducible minimum of his monetary assets that every man will spend on current consumption. The fact of human action ensures such an irreducible minimum, and as long as there is a monetary economy and money is in use, it will be spent on the purchase of consumers' goods. The proportion spent on capital in its various stages and in toto gives a clue to the important consideration: the real output of consumers' goods in the economy. The total amount of money spent, however, gives no clue at all. Money and its value will be systematically studied in a later chapter. It is obvious, however, that the number of units spent could vary enormously, depending on the quantity of the money commodity in circulation. One hundred or one thousand or ten thousand or one hundred thousand ounces of gold might be spent on consumption without signifying anything except that the quantity of money units available was less or greater. The total amount of money spent on consumption gives no clue to the quantity of goods the economy may purchase. The important consideration, therefore, is time preferences and the resultant proportion between expenditure on consumers and producers' goods. Investment: the lower the proportion of the former, the heavier will be the investment in capital structure. And after a while, the more abundant the supply of consumers' goods and the more productive the economy. The obverse of the coin is the determining effect of time preferences on the price spreads that set the rate of interest, and the income of the capitalist savers investors in the economy. We have already seen the effect of a lowering of investment on the first rank, and later we shall analyze fully the effect on production and interest of a lowering of time preferences and the effects of various changes in the quantity of money on time preferences and the production structure. 
Before continuing with an analysis of time preference and the production structure, however, let us complete our examination of the components of the time market. The pure demanders of present goods on the time market are the various groups of laborers and landowners, the sellers of the services of original productive factors. Their price on the market, as will be seen, will be set equal to the marginal value product of their units, discounted by the prevailing rate of interest. The greater the rate of interest, the less will the price of their service be, or rather, the greater will be the discount from their marginal value product considered as the matured present good. Thus, if the marginal value product of a certain labor or land factor is 10 ounces per unit period, and the rate of interest is 10%, its earning price will be approximately 9 ounces per year if the final product is one year away. A higher rate of interest would lead to a lower price, and a lower rate to a higher price, although the maximum price is one slightly below the full MVP, marginal value product, since the interest rate can never disappear. It seems likely that the demand schedule for present goods by the original productive factors will be highly inelastic in response to changes in the interest rate. With the large base amount, the discounting by various rates of interest will very likely make little difference to the factor owner. The rate of interest, however, will make a great deal of difference insofar as he is an owner and seller of a durable good. Land is, of course, durable almost by definition, in fact, generally permanent. So far, we have been dealing only with the sale of factor services, that is, the hire or rent of the factor, and abstracting from the sale or valuation of durable factors which embody future services. Durable land, as we shall see, is capitalized. That is, the value of the factor as a whole is the discounted sum of its future MVPs, and there the interest rate will make a significant difference. The price of durable land, however, is irrelevant to the supply schedule of land services in demand for present money. Large changes in the interest rate, which would make an enormous difference to capitalists and determine huge differences in interest income and the profitableness of various lengthy productive processes, would have a negligible effect on the earnings of the owners of the original productive factors. On the time market, we are considering all factors in the aggregate, the interest rate of the time market permeates all particular aspects of the present future market, including all purchases of land and labor services. Therefore, when we are considering the supply of a certain factor on the market, we are considering it in general and not its supply schedule for a specific use. A group of homogeneous pieces of land may have three alternative uses – say, for growing wheat, raising sheep, or serving as the site of a steel factory. 
Its supply schedule for each of the three uses will be elastic and will be determined by the amount it can obtain in the next best use, that is, the use in which its discounted MVP is next highest. We are therefore considering the behavior of all owners of a homogeneous factor of land, or of one owner if the land factor is unique, as it often is. Land is very likely to have no reservation price, that is, it will have little subjective use value to the owner. A few landlords may place a valuation on the possibility of contemplating the virgin beauty of the unused land. In practice, however, the importance of such reservation demand for land is likely to be negligible. It will, of course, be greater where the owner can use the land to grow food for himself. Labor services are also likely to be inelastic with respect to the interest discount, but probably less so than land, since labor has a reservation demand, a subjective use value, even in the aggregate labor market. This special reservation demand stems from the value of leisure as a consumer's good. Higher prices for labor services will induce more units of labor to enter the market, while lower prices will increase the relative advantages of leisure. Here again, however, the difference that will be made by relatively large changes in the interest rate will not be at all great so that the aggregate supply of labor will tend to be inelastic with regard to the interest rate. The two categories of independent demanders of present goods for future goods, then, are the landowners and the laborers. The suppliers of present goods on the time market are clearly the capitalists, who save from their possible consumption and invest their savings in future goods. But the question may be raised, do not the capitalists also demand present goods as well as supply them? It is true that capitalists, after investing in a stage of production, demand present goods in exchange for their product. This particular demand is inelastic in relation to interest changes, since these capital goods also can have no subjective use value for their producers. This demand, however, is strictly derivative and dependent. In the first place, the product for which the owner demands present goods is, of course, a future good. But it is also one stage less distantly future than the goods that the owner purchased in order to produce it. In other words, capitalists three will sell their future goods to capitalists two, but they had bought future goods from capitalists for, as well as from landowners and laborers. Every capitalist at every stage, then, demands goods that are more distantly future than the product that he supplies, and he supplies present goods for the duration of the production stage until this product is formed. He is, therefore, a net supplier of present goods and a net demander of future goods. Hence, his activities are guided by his role as a supplier. 
the higher the rate of interest that he will be able to earn, that is, the higher the price spread, the more he will tend to invest in production. If he were not essentially a supplier of present goods, this would not be true. 5. Time Preference, Capitalists, and Individual Money Stock when we state that the time-preference schedules of all individuals in the society determine the interest rate and the proportion of savings to consumption, we mean all individuals, and not some sort of separate class called capitalists. There is a temptation, since the production structure is analyzed in terms of different classes, landowners, laborers, and capitalists, to conclude that there are three definite stratified groups of people in society corresponding to these classifications. Actually, in economic analysis of the market, we are concerned with functions rather than whole persons per se. In reality, there is no special class of capitalists set off from laborers and landowners. This is not simply due to the trite fact that even capitalists must also be consumers. It is also due to the more important fact that all consumers can be capitalists if they wish. They will be capitalists if their time preference schedules so dictate. At the equilibrium rate of interest on the market, some individuals will be suppliers of present goods. Some will be demanders. Others will not be in the time market at all. Those whose time preference schedules at this rate permit them to be suppliers will be the savers. That is, they will be the capitalists. The role of the capitalists will be clarified if we ask the question, where did they get the money that they save and invest? First, they may have obtained it in what we might call current production. That is, they could have received the money in their current capacities as laborers, landowners, and capitalists. After they receive the money, they must then decide how to allocate it among various lines of goods and between consumption and investment. Secondly, the source of funds could have been money earned in past rounds of production and previously hoarded, now being dishoarded. We are, however, leaving out hoarding and dishoarding at this stage in the analysis, the only other source, the third source, is new money, and this too will be discussed later. For the moment, therefore, we shall consider that the money from which savings derive could only have come from recent earnings from production. Some earnings were obtained as capitalists and some as owners of original factors. The listener might here have detected an apparent paradox— how can a laborer or a landowner be a demander of present goods and then turn around and be a supplier of present goods for investment? This seems to be particularly puzzling since we have stated that one cannot be a demander and a supplier of present goods at the same time, that one's time preference schedule may put one in one camp or the other, but not in both. 
The solution to this puzzle is that the two acts are not performed at the same time. Even though both are performed to the same extent in their turn in the endless round of the evenly rotating economy. Given his time preference schedule, he is bound to be in a greater supply position the more money he has, and in more of a demand position the less money he has. Before the laborer or landowner sells his services, he has a certain money stock, a cash balance that he apparently does not reduce below a certain minimum. After he sells his services, he acquires his money income from production, thereby adding to his money stock. He then allocates this income between consumption and savings investment, and we are assuming no hoarding or dishoarding. At this point, then, when he is allocating, he is in a far different position and at a different point in time. For now, he has had a considerable addition to his money stock. Here we see how a laborer or a landowner can be a demander at one time, in one position of his money stock, and a supplier at another time. With very little money stock, he is a demander. Then he acquires money in the productive arena, greatly increases his money stock, and therefore the point of origin of his decision to allocate his money income shifts so that he might well become a supplier out of his income. Of course, in many cases he is still a demander, or is not on the time market at all. To coin a phrase to distinguish these two positions, we may call his original condition a pre-income position, before he has sold his services for money, and the latter a post-income position, his situation when he is allocating his money income. Both points of origin are relevant to his real actions. We have seen that a landowner's pre-income demand for money is likely to be practically inelastic, while a laborer's will probably be more elastic. Some individuals in a post-income position will be suppliers at the market rate of interest. Some will be demanders. Some will be neutral. We conclude that any man can be a capitalist if only he wants to be. He can derive his funds solely from the fruits of previous capitalist investment, or from past hoarded cash balances, or solely from his income as a laborer or a landowner. He can, of course, derive his funds from several of these sources. The only thing that stops a man from being a capitalist is his own high time preference scale. In other words, his stronger desire to consume goods in the present. Marxists and others who postulate a rigid stratification, a virtual caste structure in society, are in grave error. The same person can be at once a laborer, a landowner, and a capitalist in the same period of time. This Marxian error stemmed from a very similar error introduced into economics by Adam Smith. It might be argued that only the rich can afford to be capitalists, that is, those who have a greater amount of money stock. 
This argument has superficial plausibility, since we have seen that for any given individual and a given time preference schedule, a greater money stock will lead to a greater supply of savings and a lesser money stock to a lesser supply of savings. Ceteris paribus, the same applies to changes in money income, which constitute additions to stock. We cannot, however, assume that a man with post-income assets of 10,000 ounces of gold will necessarily save more than a man with 100 ounces of gold. We cannot compare time preferences interpersonally any more than we can formulate interpersonal laws for any other type of utilities. What we can assert as an economic law for one person, we cannot assert in comparing two or more persons. Each person has his own time preference schedule, apart from the specific size of his monetary stock. Each person's time preference schedule, as with any other element in his value scale, is entirely of his own making. All of us have heard of the proverbially thrifty French peasant compared with the rich playboy who is always running into debt. The common-sense observation that it is generally the rich who save more may be an interesting historical judgment, but it furnishes us with no scientific economic law whatever, and the purpose of economic science is to furnish us with such laws. As long as a person has any money at all, and he must have some money if he participates in the market society to any extent, he can be a capitalist. 6. The Post-Income Demanders Up to this point we have analyzed the time market demand for present goods by landowners and laborers, as well as the derived demand by capitalists. This aggregate demand we may call the producer's demand for present goods on the time market. This is the demand by those who are selling their services or the services of their owned property in the advancing of production. This demand is all pre-income demand as we have defined it. That is, it takes place prior to the acquisition of money income from the productive system. It is all in the form of selling factor services, future goods, in exchange for present money. But there is another component of net demand for present goods on the time market. This is the post-income component. It is a demand that takes place even after productive income is acquired. Clearly, this demand cannot be a productive demand, since owners of future goods used in production exercise that demand prior to their sale. It is, on the contrary, a consumer's demand. This subdivision of the time market operates as follows. Jones sells 100 ounces of future money, say one year from now, to Smith in exchange for 95 ounces of present money. This future money is not in the form of an expectation created by a factor of production. Instead, it is an IOU by Jones, promising to pay 100 ounces of money at a point one year in the future. He exchanges this claim on future money for present money, 95 ounces. 
The discount on future money as compared with present money is precisely equivalent to that in the other parts of the time market that we have studied heretofore, except that the present case is more obvious. The rate of interest finally set on the market is determined by the aggregate net supply and net demand schedules throughout the entire time market, and these, as we have seen, are determined by the time preferences of all the individuals on the market. The net borrowers, then, are people who have relatively higher time preference rates than others at the going rate of interest. In fact, so high that they will borrow certain amounts at this rate. It must be emphasized here that we are dealing only with consumption borrowing, borrowing to add to the present use of Jones money stock for consumption. Jones' sale of future money differs from the sales of the landowners and laborers in another respect. Their transactions are completed, while Jones has not yet completed his. His IOU establishes a claim to future money on the part of the buyer, or lender, Smith. And Smith, to complete his transaction and earn his interest payment, must present his note at the later date and claim the money due. In sum, the time market's components are as follows. 1. Supply of present goods for future goods, the savings of all. 2. Demand for present goods by suppliers of future goods. A. Producers' demand. Landowners, laborers. B. Consumers' demand. Borrowing consumers. These demands are aggregated without regard to whether they are post- or pre-income. They both occur within a relatively brief time period, and they recur continually in the ERE. Although the consumption and the productive demands are aggregated to set the market rate of interest, a point of great importance for the productive system is revealed if we separate these demands analytically. It is clear that the gross savings that maintain the production structure are the productive savings, that is, those that go into productive investment, and that these exclude the consumption savings that go into consumer lending. From the point of view of the production system, we may regard borrowing by a consumer as dis-saving, for this is the amount by which a person's consumption expenditures exceed his income, as contrasted to savings, the amount by which a person's income exceeds his consumption. In that case, the savings loaned are cancelled out, so to speak, by the dis-savings of the consumption borrowers. The consumers' and producers' subdivisions of the time market are a good illustration of how the rate of interest is equalized over the market. The connection between the returns on investment and money loans to consumers is not an obvious one, but it is clear from our discussion that both are parts of one time market. It should also be clear that there can be no long-run deviation of the rate of interest on the consumption loan market from the rate of interest return on productive investment. Both are aspects of one-time market.
If the rate of interest on consumers' loans, for example, were higher than the rate of interest return from investment, savings would shift from buying future goods in the form of factors to the more remunerative purchase of IOUs. This shift would cause the price of future factors to fall, that is, the interest rate in investment to rise and the rate of interest on consumers' loans to fall as a result of the competition of more savings in the consumer loan arena. The everyday arbitrage of the market, then, will tend to equalize the rate of interest in both parts of the market. Thus, the rate of interest will tend to be equalized for all areas of the economy, as it were, in three dimensions, horizontally in every process of production, vertically at every stage of production, and in depth in the consumer loan market as well as in the production structure. 7. The Myth of the Importance of the Producer's Loan Market we have completed our analysis of the determination of the pure rate of interest as it would be in the evenly rotating economy, a rate that the market tends to approach in the real world. We have shown how it is determined by time preferences on the time market and have seen the various components of that time market. This statement will undoubtedly be extremely puzzling to many readers. Where is the producer's loan market? This market is always the one that is stressed by writers, often to the exclusion of anything else. In fact, rate of interest generally refers to money loans, including loans to consumers and producers, but particularly stressing the latter, which is usually quantitatively greater and more significant for production. The rate of interest of money loans to the would-be producer is supposed to be the significant rate of interest. In fact, the fashionable neoclassical doctrine holds that the producer's loan market determines the rate of interest. It will be noticed that this sort of approach completely overlooks the gross savings of the producers, and even more, the demand for present goods by owners of the original factors. Instead of being fundamentally suppliers of present goods, capitalists are portrayed as demanders of present goods. This approach misses the point very badly because it looks at the economy with the superficial eye of an average businessman. The businessman borrows on a producer's loan market from individual savers, and he judges how much to borrow on the basis of his expected rate of profit, or rate of return. The writers assume that he has available a shelf of investment projects, some of which would pay him, say, 8%, some 7%, some 3%, etc., and that at each hypothetical interest rate he will borrow in order to invest in those projects where his return will be as high or higher. In other words, if the interest rate is 8%, he will borrow to invest in those projects that will yield him over 8%. If the rate is 4%, he will invest in many more projects, those that will yield him over 4%, etc. Superficially, this approach might seem plausible. 
It usually happens that a businessman foresees such varying rates of return on different investments, that he borrows on the market from different individual savers, and that he is popularly considered the capitalist or entrepreneur, while the lenders are simply savers. And it seems to avoid mysterious complexities and to focus neatly and simply on the rate of interest for producers' loans, the loans from savers to businessmen, in which they and most writers on economics are interested. It is this rate of interest that is generally discussed at great length by economists. Although popular, this approach is wrong through and through, as will be revealed in the course of this analysis. What is the basis for the alleged shelf of available projects, each with different rates of return? Why does a particular investment yield any net monetary return at all? The usual answer is that each dose of new investment has a marginal value productivity, such as 10%, 9%, 4%, etc.,—that naturally the most productive investments will be made first, and that therefore, as savings increase, further investments will be less and less value productive. The cardinal error here is an old one in economics. The attribution of value productivity to monetary investment. There is no question that investment increases the physical productivity of the productive process, as well as the productivity per man-hour. Indeed, that is precisely why investment and the consequent lengthening of the periods of production take place at all. But what has this to do with value productivity or with the monetary return on investment, especially in the long run of the ERE? Suppose, for example, that a certain quantity of physical factors—and we shall set aside the question of how this quantity can be measured—produces ten units of a certain product per period at a selling price of two gold ounces per unit. Now let us postulate that investment is made in higher-order capital goods to such an extent that productivity multiplies fivefold, and that the same original factors can now produce fifty units per period. The selling price of the larger supply of product will be less. Let us assume that it will be cut in half to one ounce per unit. The gross revenue per period is increased from twenty to fifty ounces. Does this mean that value productivity has increased two and a half times, just as physical productivity increased fivefold? Certainly not. For as we have seen, producers benefit not from the gross revenue received, but from the price spread between their selling price and their aggregate factor prices. The increase in physical productivity will certainly increase revenue in the short run, but this refers to the profit and loss situations of the real world of uncertainty. The long run tendency will be nothing of the sort. The long-run tendency, eventuating in the ERE, is toward an equalization of price spreads. 
How can there be any permanent benefit when the cumulative factor prices paid by this producer increase from, say, 18 ounces to 47 ounces? This is precisely what will happen on the market as competitors vie to invest in these profitable situations. The price spread, that is, the interest rate, will again be 5%. Thus, the productivity of production processes has no basic relation to the rate of return on business investment. This rate of return depends on the price spreads between stages, and these price spreads will tend to be equal. The size of the price spread, that is, the size of the interest rate, is determined, as we have seen at length, by the time preference schedules of all the individuals in the economy. In sum, the neoclassical doctrine maintains that the interest rate, by which is largely meant the producer's loan market, is co-determined by time preference, which determines the supply of individual savings, and by marginal value productivity of investment, which determines the demand for savings by businessmen which in turn is determined by the rates of return that can be achieved in investments. But we have seen that these very rates of return are, in fact, the rate of interest, and that their size is determined by time preferences. The neoclassicists are partly right in only one respect— that the rate of interest in the producer's loan market is dependent on the rates of return on investment. They hardly realize the extent of this dependence, however. It is clear that these rates of return, which will be equalized into one uniform rate, constitute the significant rate of interest in the production structure. Discarding the neoclassical analysis, we may ask, What then is the role of the productive loan market and of the rate of interest set therein? This role is one of complete and utter dependence on the rate of interest as determined earlier, and manifesting itself, as we have seen, in the rate of investment return on the one hand and in the consumer's loan market on the other. These latter two markets are the independent and important subdivisions of the general time market, with the former being the important market for the production system. In this picture, the producer's loan market has a purely subsidiary and dependent role. In fact, from the point of view of fundamental analysis, there need not be any producer's loan market at all. To examine this conclusion, let us consider a state of business affairs without a producer's loan market. What is needed to bring this about? Individuals save, consuming less than their income. They then directly invest these savings in the production structure, the incentive for investment being the rate of interest return, the price spread on the investment. This rate is determined, along with the rate on the consumer's loan market, by the various components of the time market that we have portrayed. There is, in that case, no producer's loan market. 
there are no loans from a saving group to another group of investors, and it is clear that the rate of interest in the production structure still exists. It is determined by factors that have nothing to do with the usual discussion by economists of the producer's loan market. 8. The Joint Stock Company it is clear that far from being the centrally important element, the producer's loan market is of minor importance, and it is easy to postulate a going productive system with no such market at all. But, some may reply, this may all be very well for a primitive economy where every firm is owned by just one capitalist investor who invests his own savings. What happens in our modern complex economy, where savings and investment are separated, are processes engaged in by different groups of people, the former by scattered individuals, the latter by relatively few directors of firms. Let us, therefore, now consider a second possible situation. Up to this point, we have not treated in detail the question whether each factor or business was owned by one person or jointly by many persons. Now let us consider an economy in which factors are jointly owned by many people, as largely happens in the modern world, and we shall see what difference this makes in our analyses. Before studying the effect of such jointly owned companies on the producer's loan market, we must digress to analyze the nature of these companies themselves. In a jointly owned firm, instead of each individual capitalist's making his own investments and making all his own investment and production decisions, Various individuals pool their money capital in one organization, or business firm, and jointly make decisions on the investment of their joint savings. The firm then purchases the land, labor, and capital goods factors, and later sells the product to consumers or to lower-order capitalists. Thus, the firm is the joint owner of the factor services, and particularly of the product as it is produced and becomes ready for sale. The firm is the product owner until the product is sold for money. The individuals who contributed their saved capital to the firm are the joint owners successively of a. the initial money capital, the pooled savings, b. the services of the factors, c. the product of the factors, and d. the money obtained from the sale of the product. In the evenly rotating economy, their ownership of assets follows this same step-by-step -step pattern, period after period, without change. In a jointly owned firm, in actual practice, the variety of productive assets owned by the firm is large. Any one firm is usually engaged in various production processes, each one involving a different period of time, and is likely to be engaged in different stages of each process at any one particular time. A firm is likely to be producing so that its output is continuous and so that it makes sales of new units of the product every day.
It is obvious, then, that if the firm keeps continually in business, its operations at any one time will be a mixture of investment and sale of product. Its assets at any one time will be a mixture of cash about to be invested, factors just bought, hardly begun products, and money just received from the sale of products. The result is that to the superficial, it looks as if the firm is an automatically continuing thing, and as if the production is somehow timeless and instantaneous, ensuing immediately after the factor input. Actually, of course, this idea is completely unfounded. There is no automatic continuity of investment and production. Production is continued because the owners are continually making decisions to proceed. If they did not think it profitable to do so, they could and do at any point alter, curtail, or totally cease operations and investments. And production takes time from initial investment to final product. In the light of our discussion, we may classify the types of assets owned by any firm, whether jointly or individually owned, as follows. A. Money. B. Productive assets, a melange of factors, such as land and capital goods embodying future services, various stages of product, and the completed product. On this entire package of assets, a monetary evaluation is placed by the market. How this is done will be examined in detail later. At this point, let us revert to the simple case of a one-shot investment, an investment in factors on one date and the sale of the resulting product a year later. This is the assumption involved in our original analysis of the production structure, and it will be seen that the same analysis can be applied to the more complex case of a melange of assets at different stages of production and even to cases where one firm engages in several different production processes and produces different goods. Let us consider a group of individuals pooling their saved money capital to the extent of 100 ounces, purchasing factors with the 100 gold ounces, obtaining a product, and selling the product for 105 ounces a year later. The rate of interest in this society is 5% per annum, and the rate of interest return on this investment conforms with this condition. The question now arises, on what principle do the individual owners mutually apportion their shares of the assets? It will almost always be the case that every individual is vitally interested in knowing his share of the joint assets, and consequently, firms are established in such a way that the principle of apportionment is known to all the owners. At first, one might be inclined to say that this is simply a case of bargaining, as in the case of the product jointly owned by all the owners of the factors. But the former situation does not apply here, for in the case discussed previously, there was no principle whereby any man's share of ownership could be distinguished from that of anyone else. A whole group of people worked 
contributed their land, etc., to the production process, and there was no way except simple bargaining by which the income from the sale of the product could be apportioned among them. Here, each individual is contributing a certain amount of money capital to begin with. Therefore, the proportions are naturally established from the outset. Let us say that the 100 ounces of capital are contributed by five men as follows. A. 40 ounces. B. 20 ounces. C. 20 ounces. D. 15 ounces. E. 5 ounces. In other words, A contributes 40% of the capital, B 20%, C 20%, D 15%, E 5%. Each individual owner of the firm then owns the same percentage of all the assets that he contributed in the beginning. This holds true at each step of the way, and finally for the money obtained from the sale of the product. The 105 ounces earned from the sale will be either reinvested in or disinvested from the process. At any rate, the ownership of these 105 ounces will be distributed in the same percentages as the capital invested. This natural structure of a firm is essentially the structure of a joint stock company. In the joint stock company, each investor-owner receives a share, a certification of ownership in proportion to the amount he has invested in the total capital of the company. Thus, if A, B, C, D, and E form a company, they may issue 100 shares, each share representing a value or an asset of one ounce. A will receive 40 shares, B 20 shares, C 20 shares, etc. After the sale of the product, each share will be worth 5% more than its original or par value. Suppose that after the sale, or indeed at any time before the sale, another person, F, wishes to invest in this company. Suppose that he wishes to invest 30 ounces of gold. In that case, the investment of money savings in the company increases from 100 if before the sale or 105 if after the sale by 30 ounces. 30 new shares will be issued and turned over to F, and the capital value of the firm increases by 30 ounces. In the vast majority of cases where reinvestment of monetary revenue is going on continuously, at any point in time the capital value of a firm's assets will be the appraised value of all the productive assets, including cash, land, capital goods, and finished products. The capital value of the firm is increased at any given time by new investment and is maintained by the reinvestments of the owners after the finished product is sold. The shares of capital are generally known as stock. The total par value of capital stock is the amount originally paid in on the formation of the company. 
From that point on, the total capital value of assets changes as income is earned, or in the world of uncertainty, as losses are suffered, and as capital is reinvested or withdrawn from the company. The total value of capital stock changes accordingly, and the value of each share will differ from the original value accordingly. How will the group of owners decide on the affairs of the company? Those decisions that must be made jointly will be made by some sort of voting arrangement. The natural voting arrangement, which one would expect to be used, is to have one vote per share of voting stock, with a majority of the votes deciding. This is precisely the arrangement used in the joint stock company and its modern form, the corporation. Of course, some joint stock company arrangements differ from this, according to the desires of the owners. Partnerships can be worked out between two or more people on various principles. Usually, however, if one partner receives more than his proportionate share of invested capital, it is because he is contributing more of his labor or his land to the enterprise and gets paid accordingly. As we shall see, the rate paid to the labor of the working partner will be approximately equal to what he could earn in labor elsewhere, and the same is true for payment to the land or any other originally owned factor contributed by a partner. Since partnerships are almost always limited to a few, the relationships are more or less informal and need not have the formal patterns of the joint stock company. However, partnerships will tend to work quite similarly. They provide more room for idiosyncratic arrangements. Thus, one partner may receive more than his share of capital because he is loved and revered by the others. This is really in the nature of a gift to him from the rest of the partners. Joint stock companies hew more closely to a formal principle. The great advantage of the joint stock company is that it provides a more ready channel for new investments of saved capital. We have seen how easy it is for new capital to be attracted through the issuance of new shares. It is also easier for any owner to withdraw his capital from the firm. This greater ease of withdrawal vastly increases the temptation to invest in the company, Later on, we shall explore the pricing of stock shares in the real world of uncertainty. In this real world, there is room for great differences of opinion concerning the appraised value of a firm's assets, and therefore concerning the monetary appraised value of each share of the firm's stock. In the evenly rotating economy, however, all appraisals of monetary value will agree, and therefore the appraised value of the shares of stock will be agreed upon by all and will remain constant. While the share market of joint stock companies provides a ready channel for accumulating savings, the share market is strictly dependent on the price spreads. The savings or dissavings of capitalists are determined by time preferences, and the latter establish the price spread in the economy. The value of capital invested in the enterprise, that is, its productive assets, will be the sum of future earnings from the capital discounted by the rate of interest. 
If the price spreads are 5%, the rate of interest return yielded on the share market, the ratio of earnings per share to the market price of the share, will tend to equal the rate of interest as determined elsewhere on the time market, in this case, 5%. We still have a situation in which capitalists supply their own saved capital, which is used to purchase factors in expectation of a net monetary return. The only complications that develop from joint stock companies or corporations are that many capitalists contribute and own the firm's assets jointly, and that the price of a certain quantum of ownership will be regulated by the market, so that the rate of interest yield will be the same for each individual share of stock as it is for the enterprise as a whole. If the whole firm buys factors for a total price of 100 and sells the product a year later for 105 for a 5% return, then say one-fifth of the shares of ownership of this firm will sell for an aggregate price of 20 and earn an annual net return of one ounce. Thus, the rates of interest for the partial shares of capital will all tend to be equal to the rate of interest earned on the entire capital. The shares of stock, or the units of property rights, in the words of Hastings Lyon, have the characteristic of fungibility. One unit is exactly the same as another. We have a mathematical division of the one set of rights. This fungible quality makes possible organized commodity and security markets or exchanges. With these fungible units of property rights, we have a possible acceleration of changes of ownership and in membership of the groups. If a course of market dealings arises, the unit of property has a swift cash conversion value. Its owner may readily resume the cash power to command the uses of wealth. Thus, shares of property, as well as total property, have become readily marketable. Majority rule in the joint stock companies with respect to total shares owned does not mean that the minority rights of owners are overridden. In the first place, the entire pooling of resources and the basis on which it is worked out are voluntary for all parties concerned. Secondly, all the stockholders or owners have one single interest in common, an increase in their monetary return and assets, although they may, of course, differ concerning the means to achieve this goal. Thirdly, the members of the minority may sell their stock and withdraw from the company if they so desire. Actually, the partners may arrange their voting rights and ownership rights in any way they please, and there have been many variations of such arrangements. One such form of group ownership, in which each owner has one vote regardless of the number of shares he owns, has absurdly but effectively arrogated to itself the name of cooperative. It is obvious that partnerships, joint stock companies, and corporations are all eminently cooperative institutions. Many people believe that economic analysis, while applicable to individually owned firms, does not hold true for the modern economy of joint stock companies. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. The introduction of corporations has not fundamentally changed our analysis of the interest rate or the savings reinvestment process. What of the separation of management from ownership in a corporation? It is certainly true that in a joint stock firm, the owners hire managerial labor to supervise their workers, whereas individual owners generally perform their own managerial labor. A manager is just as much a hired laborer as any other worker. The president of a company, just like the ditch digger, is hired by the owners, and like the ditch digger, he expends labor in the production process. The price of managerial labor is determined in the same way as that of other labor, as will be seen. On the market, the income to an independent owner will also include the going wage for that type of managerial labor, which joint stock owners, of course, will not receive. Thus, we see that far from rendering economic analysis obsolete, the modern world of the corporation aids analysis by separating and simplifying functions in production, specifically the managerial function. In addition to the capital supplying function, the corporate capitalists also assume the entrepreneurial function, the crucial directing element in guiding the processes of production toward meeting the desires of the consumers. In the real world of uncertainty, it takes sound judgment to decide how the market is operating, so that present investment will lead to future profits and not future losses. We shall deal further with the nature of profit and loss, but suffice it to say here that the active entrepreneurial element in the real world is due to the presence of uncertainty. We have been discussing the determination of the pure rate of interest, the rate of interest as it always tends to be and as it will be in the certain world of the ERE. In the ERE, where all techniques, market demands, and supplies, etc., for the future are known, the investment function becomes purely passive and waiting. There might still be a supervisory or managerial labor function, but this can be analyzed under prices of labor factors. But there will no longer be an entrepreneurial function because future events are known. Some have maintained, finally, that joint stock companies make for a separation of savings and investment. Stockholders save, and the managers do the investing. This is completely fallacious. The managers are hired agents of the stockholders, and subject to the latter's dictation. Any individual stockholder not satisfied with the decisions of the majority of owners can dispose of his ownership share. As a result, it is effectively the stockholders who save and the stockholders who invest the funds. Some people maintain that since most stockholders are not interested in the affairs of their company, they do not effectively control the firm, but permit control to pass into the hands of the hired managers. Yet surely a stockholder's interest is a matter of his own preference and is under his own control. Preferring his lack of interest, he permits the managers to continue their present course. 
The fundamental control, however, is still his, and he has absolute control over his agents. A typical view asserts, the maximizing of dividend income for stockholders as a group is not an objective that is necessarily unique or paramount. Instead, management officials will seek to improve the long-run earnings and competitive position of the firm and their own prestige as managers. But to improve the long-run earnings is identical with maximizing stockholders' income, and what else can develop the prestige of managers? Other theorists lapse into the sheer mysticism of considering the corporation, a conceptual name which we give to an institution owned by real individuals, as really existing and acting by itself. 9. Joint Stock Companies and the Producers' Loan Market we are now ready to embark on an analysis of the effect of joint stock companies on the producer's loan market. Let us take the aforementioned firm with a total capital stock and capital value of 130 ounces and owned by six stockholders. The firm earns a net income of 5% per year for its owners, and this is the interest rate earned by all the firms in the economy. We have already seen how the firm expanded its capital by 30 ounces through the sale of new capital stock to F. Let us see what happens when a productive loan is made. Suppose that the firm borrows 20 ounces from the producer's loan market for a five-year period. What has happened? The firm has exchanged a future good, a promise to pay money in the future, for present money. The present money has been supplied by a saver, G. It is clear that G has done the saving and is the capitalist in this transaction, while the joint stockholders, A through F, are here supplying future goods. And further, it is the stockholders who invest the new capital in the production system. On the surface, this seems to be a positive case of the separation of savings and investment. However, let us look at the transaction further. G has supplied new capital worth 20 ounces to the firm for a five-year period. The owners, A through F, take this new capital and invest it in future goods, that is, factors of production. In other words, to the extent of 20 ounces, A through F are intermediary investors of the savings of the creditors. What will the rate of interest on this loan be? It is obvious that this rate of interest in the ERE will be equal to 5%. That is, it will be purely dependent on the rate of interest return that prevails in the price spreads of the production structure. The reason for this should be clear. We have already seen how the interest rate is determined in the production structure. We have assumed it to be 5% everywhere. Now suppose that the firm offers to pay G 3% on the loan. Clearly, G will not lend the firm 20 ounces for a 3% return when he could get 5% as a stockholder either in the same firm or in any other firm. 
On the other hand, the firm is in no position to pay G any more than 5%, since its net return on the investment will be only 5%. If the maximum that the firm can pay in interest is 5%, and the minimum that the creditor can accept is 5%, it is obvious that the transaction will take place at 5%. It is clear that, in essence, G, the creditor on the prospective loan market, is no different from F, the man who has invested in stock. Both have saved money instead of spending it on consumption, and both wish to sell their saved capital in exchange for future goods and to earn interest. The time preference schedules of both F and G, as well as of everyone else, are aggregated on the time market to arrive at the rate of interest. Both F and G are net savers at the market rate. The interest rate, then, is determined by the various time preference schedules, and the final rate is set by the saving schedules on the one hand, and by the demand for present goods schedules on the other. The demand schedules consist, and consist only, of the productive demand by laborers and landowners, and the consumption demand by borrowing consumers. F and G are both net savers, interested in investing their capital for the highest return. There is no essential difference between F's method of investing his capital and G's method of investing his. The difference between investing in stock and lending money to firms is mainly a technical one. The separation between saving and investment that occurs in the latter case is completely unimportant. The interest return on investment, as set by total savings and total demands by owners of factors, completely determines the rate of interest on the producer's loan market, as well as the rate of earning on stock. The producer's loan market is totally unimportant from the point of view of fundamental analysis. It is even useless to try to construct demand and supply schedules for this market, since its price is determined elsewhere. As Frank Fetter brilliantly stated, contract interest is based on and tends to conform to economic interest, that is, the natural interest price differential between stages. It is economic interest that we seek to explain logically through the economic nature of the goods. Contract interest is a secondary problem, a business and legal problem, as to who shall have the benefit of the income arising with the possession of the goods. It is closely connected with the question of ownership. Whether saved capital is channeled into investments via stocks or via loans is unimportant. The only difference is in the legal technicalities. Indeed, even the legal difference between the creditor and the owner is a negligible one. G's loan has increased the capital value of the assets in the firm from 130 to 150. The invested 150 pays 5%, or 7.5 ounces per year. Let us examine the situation and see who the actual owners of this capital are.
130 ounces of these assets is represented by owner's capital and 20 by liabilities, that is, by IOUs due to creditors. But what does this mean? It means that if, for example, the firm were to liquidate and go out of business, 20 ounces of its assets would be used to pay off the creditors, and 130 would go to the legal owners. It means further that of the 7.5 ounces paid out as net earnings per year, 6.5 ounces go to the legal owners and 1 ounce to the creditors, each being 5% of their saving. In fact, each group gets 5% on its investment, for are not the creditors just as much investors as the stockholders? In fact, are not the creditors the owners of 20 ounces worth of the firm's assets, and do they not own the pro rata earnings of those 20 ounces? What functions of ownership do the creditors not have as compared to the stockholders? Even from the legal point of view, the creditors get first claim on the assets of a corporation, and they get paid before the stockholders. They are, therefore, definitely owners of these assets. It might be stated that since they are not shareholders, they do not vote on the decisions of the corporation, but there are many situations in which joint stock companies issue non-voting shares, the holders of which do not vote on company affairs, even though they receive their pro-rate of value of the earnings. We must conclude that economically, and even in basic law, there is no difference between shareholders and productive creditors. Both are equally suppliers of capital. Both receive interest return as determined on the general time market. Both own their proportionate share of the company's assets. The differences between the two are only technical and semantic. It is true that our discussion has so far applied only to the evenly rotating economy, but we shall see that the real world of uncertainty and entrepreneurship, while complicating matters, does not change the essentials of our analysis. In recent writings, there has been a growing acknowledgement of the essential identity between shareholders and creditors, in contrast to the old tradition that postulated a sharp cleavage between them. But it is curious that the new literature interprets the identity in precisely the wrong way. Instead of treating the creditors like shareholder owners, it treats the shareholders like creditors. In other words, the correct approach is to consider creditors as actually part owners of the firm, but the new literature treats stockholders as merely creditors of the firm, in keeping with the new tradition of picturing the hired managers as its real controllers and owners. Managers are depicted as somehow owning the firm and paying out interest to creditors as well as dividends to stockholders, just as any factor payment is made, as a grudging cost of production. In reality, the managers are only the hired agents of the stockholders, and it is the latter who decide how much of their earnings to reinvest in the firm and how much to take out of the firm in the form of dividends. 
The commonly made distinction between dividends and retained earnings is not a useful one for the purposes of economic analysis. Retained earnings are not necessarily reinvested. They may be held out of investment in a cash balance and later paid out as dividends. Dividends, on the other hand, are not necessarily spent on consumption. They may be invested in some other firm. Therefore, this distinction is a misleading one. Earnings are either reinvested or they are not, and all corporate earnings constitute earnings of the individual owners. Savings may be channeled through intermediaries before entering the actual producer's loan or the consumer's loan market. Finding a productive investment is one of the tasks of entrepreneurs, and it is often far more convenient for all concerned when the individual, instead of making up his mind himself on the proper channels of investment, lends or invests his money in other institutions specially set up to be experts in investment. These institutions may serve as channels, gathering in the small savings of isolated individuals whose investments by themselves are too small to be worth the cost of finding a market for them. The institutions then invest the funds knowledgeably in larger lump sums. A typical example is the investment trust, which sells its own stock to individuals and then uses this capital to buy stock of other companies. In the ERE, the interest that will be earned from individuals' savings via intermediaries will equal the interest earned from direct investments minus the cost of the intermediary's service. This price to be determined on the market, just like other prices. Thus, if the interest rate throughout the market is 5%, and the cost of intermediary service is 1%, then in the ERE, those who channel their savings via the convenient intermediary method will receive a 4% interest return on the investment of their savings. We have thus seen the unimportance of the producer's loan market as an independent determining factor in the establishment of the market rate of interest or in the productive system. In many cases, it is convenient to designate by different terms the rate of interest on contractual loan markets and the rate of interest in the form of earnings on investments as a result of price spreads. The former we may call the contractual rate of interest, where the interest is fixed at the time of making the contract, and the latter the natural rate of interest, that is, the interest comes naturally via investments in production processes, rather than being officially included in an exchange contract. The two interest rates will, of course, coincide in the ERE. Throughout our analysis, we have been making one underlying assumption that might be modified, that individuals will always try to obtain the highest interest return. It is on this basis that we have traced the arbitrage actions and eventual uniformities of the ERE. We have assumed that each investor will try to earn as much as he can from his investment, 
This might not always be true, and critics of economics have never tired of reproaching economists for neglecting other-than-monetary ends. Economics does not neglect such ends, however. In fact, praxeological analysis explicitly includes them. As we have repeatedly pointed out, each individual attempts to maximize his psychic income, and this will translate itself into maximizing his monetary income only if other psychic ends are neutral. The ease with which economics can accommodate non-monetary ends may readily be seen. Suppose that the interest rate in the society is 5%. Suppose, however, that there is a line of production that is distasteful to a large number of people, including investors. In a society, for example, where the making of arms is held in disfavor, simple arbitrage would not work to equate returns in the armament industry with those in other industries. We are not here referring to the displeasure of consumers of arms, which would, of course, reflect itself in a lowered demand for the product. We are referring to the particular displeasure of producers, specifically investors. Because of this psychic dislike, investors will require a higher return in the armament industry than in other industries. It is possible, for example, that they might require an interest return of 10% in the armament industry, even though the general rate of interest is 5%. What factors, then, will have to pay for this increased discount? We are not overly anticipating the results of our subsequent analysis if we state that the owners of non-specific factors, that is, those factors which can be employed elsewhere, or, strictly, the services of which can thus be employed, will certainly not accept a lower monetary return in the armament industry than in the other industries. In the ERE, their prices, as determined in this industry, will then be the same as in the other industries. In fact, they might even be higher. If the owners share the investors' specific antipathy toward engaging in the armament industry, the burden of the lower prices at each stage of production, then, falls on the purely specific factors in the industry, those which must be devoted to this industry if they are to be in the production system at all. In the long run of the ERE, these will not be capital goods, since capital goods always need to be reproduced, and the equivalent resources can gradually or rapidly leave the industry, depending in each case on the durability of the capital good and the length of the process of its production. The specific factor may be labor. But this is not empirically likely, since labor is almost always a non-specific factor that may shift to several occupations. It is therefore likely to be specific land factors that bear the brunt of the lower return. The opposite will occur in the case of an industry that most investors specifically are very eager to engage in for one reason or another. In that case, they will accept a lower interest return in this production process than in others. 
the force of competition on the market will, once again, keep non-specific factors at the same price from industry to industry, although the price might be lower if the factor owners were also particularly eager to work in this industry. The higher prices at the various stages are therefore reaped by the owners of specific factors, generally land factors. The rate of interest, then, always tends toward equality throughout its various sub-markets and in its various forms. In the ERE, the rates will be uniformly equal throughout. This conclusion must be modified, however, to state that the rates of interest will differ in accordance with a psychic component, either positive or negative, depending on whether there is an acute dislike or liking among investors for a particular production process. Similar psychic components may occur in the consumer's loan market. For example, if there is a general strong liking or dislike for a certain borrower. We may say that, in the case of a particular liking, the investors are consuming the enjoyment of investing in the particular process and paying the price of a lower return. In the case of a particular dislike, they are charging more for a particular disutility. It must be emphasized, however, that these differences in return do not occur if merely one person particularly likes or dislikes a certain field, but only if there is a significant aggregate of strong preferences in one direction or another. This type of consumption, positive or negative, is intertwined in the production process and occurs directly with production, and thus differs from ordinary consumption, which occurs at the end of the production process. 10. Forces Affecting Time Preferences Praxeology can never furnish an ultimate explanation for a man's time preferences. These are psychologically determined by each person and must therefore be taken in the final analysis as data by economists. However, praxeological analysis can supply some truths about time preferences using ceteris paribus assumptions. Thus, as we have seen, each person has a time preference schedule relating to his money stock. A lower money stock will cause a higher time preference rate for any unit of money remaining in his possession until finally his time preference rate will rise to infinity when the money stock, or rather the money for consumption, is low enough. Here one element, a man's money stock, is varied and his value scale is otherwise assumed to remain constant. Hence, we can in this way gauge the effects of a change in one determinant, the money stock. Actually, it is not his money stock that is relevant to his time preferences, but the real value of his money stock. In the ERE, of course, where the purchasing power of the money unit remains unchanged, the two are identical. Ceteris paribus, an increase in his real income, real additions to his money stock, will lower the time preference rate on his schedule. Of course, historically, there is no reason why his time preference schedule should remain unchanged. 
It is important to know, however, that, given an unchanged schedule, his relevant time preference rate will fall. There are other elements that enter into the determination of the time preference schedules. Suppose, for example, that people were certain that the world would end on a definite date in the near future. What would happen to time preferences and to the rate of interest? Men would then stop providing for future needs and stop investing in all processes of production longer than the shortest. Future goods would become almost valueless compared to present goods. Time preferences for present goods would zoom, and the pure interest rate would rise almost to infinity. On the other hand, if people all became immortal and healthy as a result of the discovery of some new drug, time preferences would tend to be very much lower. There would be a great increase in investment, and the pure rate of interest would fall sharply. 11. The Time Structure of Interest Rates It is clear that the natural interest rates are highly flexible. They tend toward uniformity and are easily changed as entrepreneurial expectations change. In the real world, the prices of the various factors and intermediate products, as well as of the final products, are subject to continual fluctuation, as are the prices of stock and the interest return on them. It is also clear that the interest rate on short term loans is easily changed with changed conditions. As the natural interest rate changes, the new loans for short periods can easily conform to the change. A difficulty seems to arise, however, in the case of long term producers' loans. Here is an apparently clear cut, rigid element in the system, and one which can conform to the natural rate of interest in investments only after a great lag. After all, a 20 year loan is contracted at an original interest rate that remains fixed for the duration. Is this not a fixed element that cannot conform to changing conditions and valuations? This superficial view is incorrect. Long term IOUs can also be bought and sold in a market. Most of these long term debts are called bonds, and they are traded in a flourishing and flexible bond market. The fixed rate of interest at the beginning is unimportant. Thus, a 100 ounce long term loan is contracted at 5% fixed interest, or 5 ounces per year. If the general interest rate rises, people will tend to sell their bonds, which have been yielding them only 5%, and invest their money elsewhere, either in whole firms, stocks of firms, or short term loans. This increased willingness to sell bonds, an increased supply schedule, depresses the price of the bond until the interest yield to the buyer is the same as the general interest rate elsewhere. Thus, if the general interest rate goes up from 5% to 10%, the price of the bond will fall from 100 to 50%. So that the fixed annual return of 5 will provide an interest yield of 
The important element in bond investment is not the original interest rate, the fixed return on the so-called par value of the bond, but the interest yield on the market price of the bond. A general lowering of the interest rate will, on the other hand, raise the bond prices above par and push yield below 5%. As the day of redemption of the bond draws near, the market price of the bond will, of course, rapidly approach the par value until it finally sells at par, since the amount redeemed will be the original par value, or principal, of the loan. It is clear that in the ERE, the interest rates for all periods of time will be equal. The tendency toward such equality at any one time, however, has been disputed in the case of expected future changes in the interest rate. Although surprisingly little attention has been devoted to this subject, the prevailing theory is that on the loan market there will not be a tendency toward equalization if a change in interest rates is expected in the near future. Suppose that the interest rate is now 5% and it is expected to remain there. Then the interest rate on loans of all maturities will be the same, 5%. Suppose, however, that the interest rate is expected to increase steadily in the near future, say to increase each year by 1% until it will be 9% four years from now. In that case, since the short-run rate, say the rate of interest on loans lasting one year or less, is expected to increase over the next four-year period, then the present long-run rate for that period, for example, the present rate for five-year loans, will be an average of the expected future short-run rates during this period. Thus, the present rate on five-year loans will be 5% plus 6% plus 7% plus 8% plus 9% divided by 5, equaling 7%. The long-run rate will be the average of short-run rates over the relevant period. Consequently, the long-run rates will be proportionately higher than short-run rates when the latter are expected to increase, and lower when the latter are expected to be lower. This, however, is a completely question-begging theory. Suppose that a rise in interest rates is expected. Why should this be simply confined to a rise in the short-term rates? Why should not the expectation be equally applicable to long-term rates so that they rise as well? The theory rests on the quite untenable assumption that it sets out to prove, namely that there is no tendency for short-term and long-term rates to be equal. The assumption that a change in the interest rate will take place only over the short term is completely unproved and goes against our demonstration that the short-run and long-run rates tend to move together. Further, the theory rests on the implicit assumption that individuals will be content to remain lenders in shorts at 5%, while their fellow investors reap 7% on the long market, simply because they expect that eventually, if they stay in the short market, they will earn an average of 7%.
What is there to prevent a present lender in shorts from selling his currently earning 5% loan, purchasing a 7% long, waiting for the presumed rise in shorts above 7% after two years, and then re-entering the short market earning 8% or 9%? If he does this, he will not simply earn 7%, either directly in longs or in an average of 5% to 9% in shorts. He will earn 7% plus 7% plus 7% plus 8% plus 9%, or an annual average of 7.6%. By striving to do so, he will set up an irresistible arbitrage movement from shorts to longs, with the rate of interest in the former thereby rising from the sales of loans on the market and the rate of interest in longs falling until the rate of interest is uniform throughout the time structure. The same thing occurs in the case of an expectation of a future fall. Longs cannot remain in equilibrium below shorts for any length of time, since there will be a present movement from longs to shorts on the market, until the rates of interest for all time structures are equal and the arbitrage movement ceases. The interest rate, then, always tends to be uniform throughout its time structure, What happens if the interest rate is expected to change in the near future? In that case, there will be a similar process as in the case of speculation in commodities. Speculators will bid up the interest rate in the expectation of an imminent rise, or bid down the rate in expectation of a fall. Clearly, the earlier a rise or fall is expected to take place, the greater proportionately will be the effect on the speculators, and the greater impact it will have on current movement in the rate. In the case of a commodity, stocks would be withheld in expectation of a rise in demand and price, and then released thereby effecting a more rapid transition to the price eventually established by underlying supply and demand forces. Similarly, in this case, money will tend to be withheld from investments and held in cash balances until the rate reaches its expected higher level, or dislodged from cash balances and added to investment if the rate of interest is expected to be lower. This action will speed up the transition to the rate determined by the new alignment of basic time preferences. Just as speculative errors in regard to commodity prices cause losses and impel further change to the real underlying price, so speculative errors will be self-correcting here, too, and lead the rate of interest to the height determined by underlying time preferences. The absurdity of separating the long-run and the short-run interest rates becomes evident when we realize that the basic interest rate is the natural rate of interest on investments, not interest on the producer's loan market. We have already seen the essential identity of the rate of earnings on the loan market with that on the stock market. 
If we consider the stock market, it becomes obvious that there is no distinction in rates between short-run and long-run investments. Different firms engage in stages of production of varying lengths. Yet the stock market equates the rate of interest on all investments, obliterating the differences in time structure so thoroughly that it becomes difficult for many writers to grasp the very concept of period of production. But since the operations of the stock market and the loan market are essentially the same, it is obvious that there is no difference in causal explanation between short-run and long-run interest rates. Those writers who postulate an essential difference between the nature of long-run and short-run rates have been misled by a common penchant for considering the time market as confined exclusively to the loan market, when in fact the loan market is only a dependent one. In actual practice, it may well happen that either the short-run loan market or the long-run market may change first, with the other market following. Which market characteristically changes first is the outcome of the concrete conditions. Appendix Schumpeter and the Zero Rate of Interest the late Professor Josef Schumpeter pioneered a theory of interest which holds that the rate of interest will be zero in the evenly rotating economy. It should be clear why the rate of interest, the pure rate of interest in the ERE, could never be zero. It is determined by individual time preferences, which are all positive. To maintain his position, Schumpeter was forced to assert, as does Frank Knight, that capital maintains itself permanently in the ERE. If there is no problem of maintenance, then there appears to be no necessity for the payment of interest in order to maintain the capital structure. This view is apparently derived from the static state of J.B. Clark and seems to follow purely by definition, since the value of capital is maintained by definition in the ERE. But this, of course, is no answer whatever. The important question is, how is this constancy maintained? And the only answer can be that it is maintained by the decisions of capitalists induced by a rate of interest return. If the rate of interest paid were zero, complete capital consumption would ensue. The conclusive Mises-Robbins critique of Schumpeter's theory of the zero rate of interest, which we have tried to present, has been attacked by two of Schumpeter's disciples. First, they deny that constancy of capital is assumed by definition in Schumpeter's ERE. Instead, it is deduced from the conditions of the system. What are these conditions? There is, first, the absence of uncertainty concerning the future. This, indeed, would seem to be the condition for any ERE. But Clements and Duty add, Neither is there time preference unless we introduce it as a special assumption, in which case it may be either positive or negative as we prefer, and there is nothing further to discuss. With such a view of time preference, there is indeed nothing to discuss. 
The whole basis for pure interest, requiring interest payments, is time preference, and if we casually assume that time preference is either non-existent or has no discernible influence, then it follows very easily that the pure rate of interest is zero. The author's proof simply consists of ignoring the powerful universal fact of time preference. As has been the case with all theorists who have attempted to deny time preference, Clements and Duty hastily brush consumers' loans aside. As Frank A. Fetter pointed out years ago, only time preference can integrate interest on consumers as well as on producers' loans into a single unified explanation— Consumers' loans are clearly unrelated to productivity explanations of interest and are obviously due to time preference. Chapter 7. Production, General Pricing of the Factors 1. Imputation of the Discounted Marginal Value Product up to this point, we have been investigating the rate of interest as it would be determined in the evenly rotating economy, that is, as it always tends to be determined in the real world. Now we shall investigate the pricing of the various factors of production in the same terms, that is, as they tend to be in the real world and as they would be in the evenly rotating economy. Whenever we have touched on the pricing of productive factors, we have signified the prices of their unit services, that is, their rents. In order to set aside consideration of the pricing of the factors as wholes, as embodiments of a series of future unit services, we have been assuming that no businessmen purchase factors, whether land, labor, or capital goods, outright, but only unit services of these factors. This assumption will be continued for the time being. Later on, we shall drop this restrictive assumption and consider the pricing of whole factors. In Chapter 5, we saw that when all factors are specific, there is no principle of pricing that we can offer. Practically, the only thing that economic analysis can say about the pricing of the productive factors in such a case is that voluntary bargaining among the factor owners will settle the issue. As long as the factors are all purely specific, economic analysis can say little more about the determinants of their pricing. What conditions must apply, then, to enable us to be more definite about the pricing of factors? The currently fashionable account of this subject hinges on the fixity or variability in the proportions of the combined factors used per unit of product. If the factors can be combined only in certain fixed proportions to produce a given quantity of product, it is alleged, then there can be no determinate price. If the proportions of the factors can be varied to produce a given result, then the pricing of each factor can be isolated and determined. Let us examine this contention. Suppose that a product worth 20 gold ounces is produced by three factors, each one purely specific to this production. Suppose that the proportions are variable, 
so that a product worth 20 gold ounces can be produced either by 4 units of factor A, 5 units of factor B, and 3 units of factor C, or by 6 units of A, 4 units of B, and 2 units of C. How will this help the economist to say anything more about the pricing of these factors than that it will be determined by bargaining? The prices will still be determined by bargaining, and it is obvious that the variability in the proportions of the factors does not aid us in any determination of the specific value or share of each particular product. Since each factor is purely specific, there is no way we can analytically ascertain how a price for a factor is obtained. The fallacious emphasis on variability of proportion as the basis for factor pricing in the current literature is a result of the prevailing method of analysis. A typical single firm is considered, with its selling prices and prices of factors given. Then the proportions of the factors are assumed to be variable. It can be shown accordingly that if the price of factor A increases compared to B, the firm will use less of A and more of B in producing its product. From this, demand for each factor is deduced and the pricing of each factor established. The fallacies of this approach are numerous. The chief error is that of basing a causal explanation of factor pricing on the assumption of given factor prices. On the contrary, we cannot explain factor prices while assuming them as given from the very beginning of the analysis. The mathematical bent toward replacing the concepts of cause and effect by mutual determination has contributed to the willingness to engage in circular reasoning. It is then assumed that the price of a factor changes. But how can such a change take place? In the market, there are no uncaused changes. It is true that this is the way the market looks to a typical firm. But concentration on a single firm and the reaction of its owner is not the appropriate route to the theory of production. On the contrary, it is likely to be misleading, as in this case. In the current literature, this preoccupation with the single firm, rather than with the interrelatedness of firms in the economy, has led to the erection of a vastly complicated and largely valueless edifice of production theory. The entire discussion of variable and fixed proportions is really technological rather than economic, and this fact should have alerted those writers who rely on variability as the key to their explanation of pricing. Clearly, the longer the period of time, the more variable will factor proportions tend to be. Technologically, varying amounts of time are needed to rearrange the various factors. The one technological conclusion that we know purely from praxeology is the law of returns, derived at the beginning of Chapter 1. According to the law of returns, there is an optimum of proportions of factors, given other factors, in the production of any given product. 
This optimum may be the only proportion at which the good can be produced, or it may be one of many proportions. The former is the case of fixed proportions, the latter of variable proportions. Both cases are subsumed under the more general law of returns, and we shall see that our analysis of factor pricing is based only on this praxeological law and not on more restrictive technological assumptions. The key question, in fact, is not variability, but specificity of factors. Mises adds the important proviso that if the factors have the same fixed proportions in all the processes for which they are nonspecific, then here, too, only bargaining can determine their prices. For determinate factor pricing to take place, there must be nonspecific factors, factors that are useful in several production processes. It is the prices of these nonspecific factors that are determinate. If, in any particular case, only one factor is specific, then its price is also determined. It is the residual difference between the sum of the prices of the nonspecific factors and the price of the common product. When there is more than one specific factor in each process, however, only the cumulative residual price is determined, and the price of each specific factor singly can be determined solely by bargaining. To arrive at the principles of pricing, let us first leap to the conclusion and then trace the process of arriving at this conclusion. Every capitalist will attempt to employ a factor, or rather the service of a factor, at the price that will be at least less than its discounted marginal value product. The marginal value product is the monetary revenue that may be attributed or imputed to one service unit of the factor. It is the marginal value product because the supply of the factor is in discrete units. This MVP, marginal value product, is discounted by the social rate of time preference, that is, by the going rate of interest. Suppose, for example, that a unit of a factor, say a day's worth of a certain acre of land, or a day's worth of the effort of a certain laborer, will imputably produce for the firm a product one year from now that will be sold for twenty gold ounces. The MVP of this factor is twenty ounces. But this is a future good. The present value of the future good, and it is this present value that is now being purchased, will be equal to the MVP discounted by the going rate of interest. If the rate of interest is 5%, then the discounted MVP will be equal to 19 ounces. To the employer, the capitalist, then, the maximum amount that the factor unit is now worth is 19 ounces. The capitalist will be willing to buy this factor at any price up to 19 ounces. Now suppose that the capitalist owner or owners of one firm pay for this factor 15 ounces per unit, 
As we shall see in greater detail later on, this means that the capitalist earns a pure profit of four ounces per unit, since he reaps nineteen ounces from the final sale. He obtains twenty ounces on final sale, but one ounce is the result of his time preference and waiting, and is not pure profit. Nineteen ounces is the present value of his final sale. But seeing this happen, other entrepreneurs will leap into the breach to reap these profits. These capitalists will have to bid the factor away from the first capitalist and thus pay more than 15 ounces, say 17 ounces. This process continues until the factor earns its full DMVP, discounted marginal value product, and no pure profits remain. The result is that in the ERE, every isolable factor will earn its DMVP, and this will be its price. As a result, each factor will earn its DMVP, and the capitalist will earn the going rate of interest for purchasing future goods with his savings. In the ERE, as we have seen, all capitalists will earn the same going rate of interest, and no pure profit will then be reaped. The sale price of a good will be necessarily equal to the sum of the DMVPs of its factors, plus the rate of interest return on the investment. It is clear that if the marginal value of a specific unit of factor service can be isolated and determined, then the forces of competition on the market will result in making its price equal to its DMVP in the ERE. Any price higher than the discounted marginal value product of a factor service will not long be paid by a capitalist. Any price lower will be raised by the competitive actions of entrepreneurs bidding away these factors through offers of higher prices. These actions will lead, in the former case, to the disappearance of losses, in the latter to the disappearance of pure profit, at which time the ERE is reached. When a factor is isolable, that is, if its service can be separated out in appraised value from other factors, then its price will always tend to be set equal to its DMVP. The factor is clearly not isolable if it must always be combined with some other particular factor in fixed proportions. If this happens, then a price can be given only to the cumulative product of the factors, and the individual price can be determined only through bargaining. Also, as we have stated, if the factors are all purely specific to the product, then regardless of any variability in the proportions of their combination, the factors will not be isolable. It is, then, the non-specific factors that are directly isolable. A specific factor is isolable if it is the only specific factor in the combination, in which case its price is the difference between the price of the product and the sum of the prices of the non-specific factors. But by what process does the market isolate and determine the share, the MVP of a certain unit of a factor, of income yielded from production?
Let us refer back to the basic law of utility. What will be the marginal value of a unit of any good? It will be equal to the individual's valuation of the end that must remain unattained should this unit be removed. If a man possesses twenty units of a good, and the uses served by the good are ranked one to twenty on his value scale, one being the ordinal highest, then his loss of a unit, regardless of which end the unit is supplying at present, will mean a loss of the use ranked twentieth in his scale. Therefore, the marginal utility of a unit of the good is ranked at twenty on the person's value scale. Any further unit to be acquired will satisfy the next highest of the ends not yet being served, that is, at twenty-one, a rank which will necessarily be lower than the ends already being served. The greater the supply of a good, then, the lower the value of its marginal utility. A similar analysis is applicable to a producer's good as well. A unit of a producer's good will be valued in terms of the revenue that will be lost should one unit of the good be lost. This can be determined by an entrepreneur's knowledge of his production function, that is, the various ways in which factors can technologically be combined to yield certain products, and his estimate of the demand of the buyers of his product, that is, the prices that they would be willing to pay for his product. Suppose now that a firm is combining factors in the following way. Four units of X plus ten units of Y plus two units of Z produce a product that can be sold for one hundred gold ounces. Now suppose that the entrepreneur estimates that the following would happen if one unit of X were eliminated. The loss of one unit of X, other factors remaining constant, would result in the loss of twenty gold ounces of gross revenue. This then is the marginal value product of the unit at this position and with this use. Strictly, we should be dealing with discounted MVPs here, but treating just MVPs at this stage merely simplifies matters. This process is reversible as well. Thus, suppose the firm is at present producing in the latter proportions and reaping eighty gold ounces. If it adds a fourth unit of X to its combination, keeping other quantities constant, it earns twenty more gold ounces. So that here as well, the MVP of this unit is twenty gold ounces. This example has implicitly assumed a case of variable proportions. What if the proportions are necessarily fixed? In that case, the loss of a unit of X would require that proportionate quantities of Y, Z, etc., be disposed of. The combination of factors would then be as follows, assuming no price change in the final product. The marginal value product of the varying factor would be greater. In this case, twenty-five gold ounces. We are here postulating that equal quantities of factors produce equal quantities of results. 
The famous question whether this condition actually holds, sometimes phrased in pretentious mathematical language as whether the production function is linear and homogeneous, is easily resolved if we realize that the proposition equal causes produce equal results is the major technological axiom in nature. Any cases that appear to confute this rule only do so in appearance. In reality, supposed exceptions always involve some indivisibility, where one factor, in effect, cannot change proportionately with other factors. Let us for the moment ignore the variations in MVP within each production process and consider only variations in MVP among different processes. This is basic, since, after all, it is necessary to have a factor usable in more than one production process before its MVP can be isolated. Inevitably, then, the MVP will differ from process to process, since the various production combinations of factors and prices of products will differ. For every factor, then, there is available a sheaf of possible investments in different production processes, each differing in MVP. The MVPs, or strictly the discounted MVPs, can be arrayed in descending order. For example, for factor X, 25 ounces, 24 ounces, 22 ounces, 21 ounces, 20 ounces, 19 ounces, 18 ounces, etc., Suppose that we begin in the economy with a zero supply of the factor, and then add one unit. Where will this one unit be employed? It is obvious that it will be employed in the use with the highest DMVP. The reason is that capitalists in the various production processes will compete with one another for the use of the factor— but the use in which the DMVP is 25 can bid away the unit of the factor from the other competitors, and it can do this, finally, only by paying 25 gold ounces for the unit. When the second unit of supply arrives in society, it goes to the second highest use, and it receives a price of 24 ounces, and a similar process occurs as new units of supply are added. As new supply is added, the marginal value product of a unit declines. Conversely, if the supply of a factor decreases, that is, the total supply in the economy, the marginal value product of a unit increases. The same laws apply, of course, to the DMVP, since this is just the MVP discounted by a common factor, the market's pure rate of interest. As supply increases, then, more and more of the sheaf of available employments for the factor are used, and lower and lower MVPs are tapped. Let us say that there are 30 units of factor X available in the economy, and that the MVP corresponding to such a supply is 10 ounces. The price of the 30th unit, then, will tend to be 10 ounces, and will be 10 ounces in the ERE. 
This follows from the tendency of the price of a factor to be equal to its MVP. But now we must recall that there takes place the inexorable tendency in the market for the price of all units of any good to be uniform throughout its market. This must apply to a productive factor just as to any other good. Indeed, this result follows from the very basic law of utility that we have been considering. For since factor units by definition are interchangeable, the value of one unit will be equal to the value of every other unit at any one time. The value of every unit of a good will be equal to the value of the lowest ranking use now served by a unit. In the present case, every unit of the factor will be priced at 10 gold ounces. Suppose, for example, that the owner of the factor unit serving the top-ranking use in our array should demand that he receive 24 ounces instead of 10 ounces as his price. In that case, the capitalist in that line of production can refuse to hire this factor and instead bid away the unit employed in the lowest-ranking use, say by paying for the latter 10.5 ounces. The only alternative left to the owner of the factor who had demanded 24 ounces is to replace the other factor in the lowest-ranking spot at 10 ounces. Effectively, all factors will shift until the prices that they can attain will be uniform throughout the market for their services. The price of X, then, is determined at 10 ounces. It is determined by the MVP, or rather, the DMVP, of the supply, which decreases as the supply increases, and vice versa. Let us assume that Y is also a non-specific factor, and that Z is a factor specific to the particular process considered. Let us further assume that by a similar process, the DMVP, and therefore the price of Y, is determined at 2 ounces. At this point, we must reintroduce the concept of production within each line. We have been discussing MVPs of factors shifted from one use to another. In our example, a unit of X may have an MVP or DMVP of 20 ounces in a particular use. Yet its price, as determined by the MVP of the lowest ranking use for which it is employed, is 10 ounces. This means that, in this use, the capitalist is hiring a factor for 10 ounces, which earns for him 20 ounces. Spurred on by this profit, he will hire more units of the factor until the MVP in this use will equal the MVP in the lowest ranking use, that is, the factor price, 10 ounces. The same process will occur in regard to each of the other uses. The tendency will always be then, and this will always obtain in the ERE, for the DMVP of any factor to be equal in each line of production. We will see shortly why increased purchase of a factor, even within each line, will lower the MVP in that line.
Suppose, then, that the prices of X and Y are ten and two ounces, respectively, and that all the capitalists have so arranged their production as to equate the DMVP of each factor in each line with this price. Suppose, further, that the equilibrium point in this particular use is the combination 3x plus 10y plus 2z yields 80 ounces. Substituting the given prices of x and y, 30 plus 20 plus 2z yields 80 ounces. This means 2z yields 30 ounces and therefore Z equals 15 ounces. The price of the specific factor Z, residual to the other factors, is thereby determined at 15 ounces. It is obvious that the impact of a change in consumer demand on a specific factor will be far greater in either direction than it will be on the price of employment of a non-specific factor. It is now clear why the temptation in factor price analysis is for the firm to consider that factor prices are given externally to itself and that it simply varies its production in accordance with these prices. However, from an analytic standpoint, it should be evident that the array of MVPs as a whole is the determining factor and the lowest-ranking process in terms of MVP will, through the medium of factor prices, transmit its message, so to speak, to the various firms, each of which will use the factor to such an extent that its DMVP will be brought into alignment with its price. But the ultimate determining factor is the DMVP schedule, not the factor price. To make the distinction, we may term the full array of all MVPs for a factor the general DMVP schedule of a factor, while the special array of DMVPs within any particular production process or stage we may term the particular DMVP schedule of the factor. It is the general DMVP schedule that determines the price of the supply of the factor, and then the particular DMVP schedules within each production process are brought into alignment so that the DMVPs of the factor equal its price. The particular MVPs are sub-arrays within the widest array of all the possible alternatives, the general MVP schedule. In short, the prices of productive factors are determined as follows. Where a factor is isolable, its price will tend toward its discounted marginal value product and will equal its DMVP in the ERE. A factor will be isolable where it is non-specific, that is, is useful in more than one productive process, or where it is the only specific factor in a process. The non-specific factor's price will be set equal to its DMVP as determined by its general DMVP schedule, the full possible array of DMVPs given various units of supply of the factor in the economy. 
since the most value-productive uses will be chosen first and the least abandoned first, the general MVP declines as the supply increases. The various particular MVPs in the various processes will be arranged so as to equal the factor price set by the general DMVP schedule. The specific factor's imputed DMVP is the residual difference between the price of the product and the sum of the prices of the nonspecific factors. The marginal utility of a unit of a good is determined by a man's diminishing marginal utility schedule evaluating a certain supply or stock of that good. Similarly, the market's establishment of the price of a consumer's good is determined by the aggregate consumer demand schedules, diminishing, and the given supply or stock of a good. We are now engaged in pursuing the problem still further and in finding the answer to two general questions. What determines the prices of factors of production on the market and what determines the quantity of goods that will be produced. We have seen in this section that the price of a factor is determined by its diminishing general discounted marginal value productivity and the given supply, stock, of the factor in the economy. 2. Determination of the Discounted Marginal Value Product A. Discounting if the DMVP schedules determine the prices of non-specific factor services, what determines the shape and position of the DMVP schedules? In the first place, by definition it is clear that the DMVP schedule is the MVP schedule for that factor, discounted. There is no mystery about the discounting. As we have stated, the MVP of the factor is discounted in accordance with the going pure rate of interest on the market. One of the determinants of the DMVP schedule is the rate of discount, and we have seen that the rate of discount is determined by individual time preferences. The higher the rate of discount, the lower will tend to be the DMVP, and therefore the lower the price of the factor. The lower the interest rate, the higher the DMVP and the price of the factor. B. The Marginal Physical Product What then determines the position and shape of the MVP schedule? What is the marginal value product? It is the amount of revenue intake attributable to a unit of a factor. And this revenue depends on two elements. One, the physical product produced, and two, the price of that product. If one hour of factor X is estimated by the market to produce a value of 20 gold ounces, this might be because one hour produces 20 units of the physical product, which are sold at a price of one gold ounce per unit. Or the same MVP might result from the production of 10 units of the product, sold at two gold ounces per unit, etc., in short, the marginal value product of a factor service unit is equal to its marginal physical product times the price of that product. 
This is not strictly true, but the technical error in the statement does not affect the causal analysis in the text. In fact, this argument is strengthened, for MVP actually equals MPP times marginal revenue, and marginal revenue is always less than or equal to price. Let us then investigate the determinants of the marginal physical product, MPP. In the first place, there can be no general schedule for the MPP as there is for the MVP, for the simple reason that physical units of various goods are not comparable. How can a dozen eggs, a pound of butter, and a house be compared in physical terms? Yet the same factor might be useful in the production of any of these goods. There can be an MPP schedule, therefore, only in particular terms, that is, in terms of each particular production process in which the factor can be engaged. For each production process, there will be, for the factor, a marginal physical production schedule of a certain shape. The MPP for a supply in that process is the amount of the physical product imputable to one unit of that factor. That is, the amount of the product that will be lost if one unit of the factor is removed. If the supply of the factor in the process is increased by one unit, other factors remaining the same, then the MPP of the supply becomes the additional physical product that can be gained from the addition of the unit. The supply of the factor that is relevant for the MPP schedules is not the total supply in the society, but the supply in each process, since the MPP schedules are established for each process separately. 1. The Law of Returns In order to investigate the MPP schedule further, let us recall the Law of Returns, set forth in Chapter 1. According to the Law of Returns, an eternal truth of human action, if the quantity of one factor varies and the quantities of other factors remain constant, there is a point at which the physical product per factor is at a maximum. Physical product per factor may be termed the average physical product, APP. The law further states that with either a lesser or a greater supply of the factor, the APP must be lower. 2. Marginal physical product and average physical product. What is the relationship between the APP and MPP? The MPP is the amount of physical product that will be produced with the addition of one unit of a factor, other factors being given. The APP is the ratio of the total product to the total quantity of the variable factor, other factors being given. To illustrate the meanings of APP and MPP, let us consider a hypothetical case in which all units of other factors are constant and the number of units of one factor is variable. With zero units of the variable factor, the total product is zero, the average physical product is zero, and the marginal physical product is zero. 
With one unit of the variable factor, the total product is 3, the average physical product is 3, and the marginal physical product is 3. With two units of the variable factor, the total product is 8, the average physical product is 4, and the marginal physical product is 5. With three units of the variable factor, the total product is 15, the average physical product is 5, and the marginal physical product is 7. With four units of the variable factor, the total product is 22, the average physical product is 5.2, and the marginal physical product is 7. With 5 units of the variable factor, the total product is 27.5, the average physical product is 5.5, and the marginal physical product is 5.5. With 6 units of the variable factor, the total product is 30, the average physical product is 5, and the marginal physical product is 2.5. And with 7 units of the variable factor, the total product is 28, the average physical product is 4, and the marginal physical product is minus 2. In the first place, it is quite clear that no factor will ever be employed in the region where the MPP is negative. In our example, this occurs where 7 units of the factor are being employed. Six units of the factor, combined with given other factors, produced 30 units of the product. An addition of another unit results in a loss of two units of the product. The MPP of the factor when seven units are employed is minus two. Obviously, no factor will ever be employed in this region, and this holds true whether the factor owner is also owner of the product or a capitalist hires the factor to work on the product. It would be senseless and contrary to the principles of human action to expend either effort or money on added factors only to have the quantity of the total product decline. We follow here the law of returns, in that the APP, beginning, of course, at zero, with zero units of the factor, rises to a peak and then falls. We also observe the following. 1. When the APP is rising, with the exception of the very first step, where TP, APP, and MPP are all equal, MPP is higher than APP. 2. When the APP is falling, MPP is lower than APP. 3. At the point of maximum APP, MPP is equal to APP. In other words, if APP is increasing, then the marginal physical product is greater than the average physical product in this region. And where APP is decreasing, the marginal physical product is lower than the average physical product. But if MPP is greater than APP when the latter is rising, and is lower than APP when the latter is falling, then it follows that when APP is at its maximum, MPP must be neither lower nor higher than, but equal to. APP.
Now let us explore further the area of increasing APP. Let us take another hypothetical, in which two units of the variable factor yield a total product of 10 and an average physical product of 5, while three units of the variable factor yield a total product of 18 and an average physical product of 6. Let us stipulate further that four units of the variable factor yield a total product of 25 and an average physical product of 6.2. This is a segment of the increasing section of the average physical product schedule, with the peak being reached at 4 units and 6.2 APP. The question is, what is the likelihood that this region will be settled upon by a firm as the right input-output combination? Two units of the variable factor plus a bundle of all the other factors yield 10 units of the product. On the other hand, at the maximum APP for the factor, four units of it plus other factors yield 25 units of the product. We have seen that it is a fundamental truth in nature that the same quantitative causes produce the same quantitative effects. Therefore, if we have the quantities of all the factors, we shall get half the product. In other words, two units of the factor combined with the other factors will yield 12.5 units of the product. Consider this situation. We see that two units of the variable factor plus given factors yield 10 units of the product. But we see that two units of the variable factor plus given factors yield 12.5 units of the product. Obviously, no one would want to spend more in effort or money on factors, the other factors, and obtain less total output, or for that matter, the same total output. It is evident that such a producer is in an area of negative marginal physical productivity of the other factors. He would obtain a greater total product by throwing away some of the other factors. A region of increasing APP for one factor, then, signifies a region of negative MPP for other factors, and vice versa. Thus, the variable factor will be set so that it has zero marginal productivity only if it is a free good. There is, however, no such thing as a free good. There is only a condition of human welfare not subject to action, and therefore not an element in productivity schedules. Conversely, the APP is at its maximum for the variable factor only when the other factors are free goods and therefore have zero marginal productivity at this point. Only if all the other factors were free and could be left out of account could the producer simply concentrate on maximizing the productivity of one factor alone, However, there can be no production with only one factor, as we saw in Chapter 1. The conclusion, therefore, is inescapable. A factor will always be employed in a production process in such a way that it is in a region of declining APP and declining but positive MPP. In every production process, therefore, 
every factor will be employed in a region of diminishing MPP and diminishing APP, so that additional units of the factor employed in the process will lower the MPP, and decreased units will raise it. C. Marginal Value Product As we have seen, the MVP for any factor is its MPP multiplied by the selling price of its product. We have just concluded that every factor will be employed in its region of diminishing marginal physical product in each process of production. What will be the shape of the marginal value product schedule? As the supply of a factor increases and other factors remain the same, it follows that the total physical output of the product is greater. A greater stock, given the consumer's demand, will lead to a lowering of the market price. The price of the product will then fall as the MPP diminishes and rise as the latter increases. For each specific production process, any factor will be employed in the region of diminishing MVP. This law applies to all factors, specific and nonspecific. This correlates with the previous conclusion based on the law of utility that the factor in general, among various production processes, will be employed in such a way that its MVP is diminishing. Therefore, its general MVP, between various uses and within each use, is diminishing, and its various particular MVPs are diminishing within each use. Its DMVP is therefore diminishing as well. The price of a unit of any factor will, as we have seen, be established in the market as equal to its discounted marginal value product. This will be the DMVP as determined by the general schedule, including all the various uses to which it can be put. Now the producers will employ the factor in such a way that its DMVP will be equalized among all the uses. If the DMVP in one use is greater than in another, then employers in the former line of production will be in a position to bid more for the factor and will use more of it until, according to the principle of diminishing MVP, the DMVP of the expanding use diminishes to the point at which it equals the increasing DMVP in the contracting use. The price of the factor will be set as equal to the general DMVP, which in the ERE will be uniform throughout all the particular uses. Thus, by looking at a factor in all of its interrelations, we have been able to explain the pricing of its unit service without previously assuming the existence of the price itself. To focus the analysis on the situation as it looks from the vantage point of the firm is to succumb to such an error, for the individual firm obviously finds a certain factor price given on the market. 
The price of a factor unit will be established by the market as equal to its marginal value product, discounted by the rate of interest for the length of time until the product is produced, provided that this valuation of the share of the factor is isolable. It is isolable if the factor is non-specific, or is a single residual specific factor in a process. The MVP in question is determined by the general MVP schedule covering the various uses of the factor, and the supply of the factor available in the economy. The general MVP schedule of a factor diminishes as the supply of the factor increases. It is made up of particular MVP schedules for the various uses of the factor, which in turn are compounded of diminishing marginal physical product schedules and declining product prices. Therefore, if the supply of the factor increases, the MVP schedule in the economy remaining the same, the MVP, and hence the price of the factor, will drop. And as the supply of the factor dwindles, ceteris paribus, the price of the factor will rise. To the individual firm, the price of a factor established on the market is the signal of its discounted marginal value product elsewhere. This is the opportunity cost of the firms using the product, since it equals the value product that is foregone through failure to use the factor unit elsewhere. In the ERE, where all factor prices equal discounted marginal value products, it follows that factor prices and opportunity costs will be equal. Critics of the marginal productivity analysis have contended that in the modern complex world, all factors cooperate in producing a product, and therefore it is impossible to establish any sort of imputation of part of the product to various cooperating factors. Hence, they assert, distribution of product to factors is separable from production and takes place arbitrarily according to bargaining theory. To be sure, no one denies that many factors do cooperate in producing goods, but the fact that most factors and all labor factors are nonspecific and that there is very rarely more than one purely specific factor in a production process enables the market to isolate value productivity and to tend to pay each factor in accordance with this marginal product. On the free market, therefore, the price of each factor is not determined by arbitrary bargaining, but tends to be set strictly in accordance with its discounted marginal value product. The importance of this market process becomes greater as the economy becomes more specialized and complex, and the adjustments more delicate. The more uses develop for a factor, and the more types of factors arise, the more important is this market imputation process as compared to simple bargaining. For it is this process that causes the effective allocation of factors and the flow of production in accordance with the most urgent demands of the consumers, including the non-monetary desires of the producers themselves. 
In the free market process, therefore, there is no separation between production and distribution. There is no heap somewhere on which products are arbitrarily thrown and from which someone does or can arbitrarily distribute them among various people. On the contrary, individuals produce goods and sell them to consumers for money, which they in turn spend on consumption or on investment in order to increase future consumption. There is no separate distribution. There is only production and its corollary exchange. It should always be understood, even where it is not explicitly stated in the text for reasons of exposition, that the MVP schedules used to set prices are discounted MVP schedules discounting the final MVP by the length of time remaining until the final consumer's product is produced. It is the DMVPs that are equalized throughout the various uses of the factor. The importance of this fact is that it explains the market allocation of non-specific factors among various productive stages of the same or of different goods. Thus, if the DMVP of a factor is six gold ounces, and if the factor is employed on a process practically instantaneous with consumption, its MVP will be six. Suppose that the pure rate of interest is five percent. If the factor is at work on a process that will mature in final consumption five years from now, a DMVP of 6 signifies an MVP of 7.5. If it is at work on a 10-year process, a DMVP of 6 signifies an MVP of 10, etc., The more remote the time of operation is from the time when the final product is completed, the greater must be the difference allowed for the annual interest income earned by the capitalists who advance present goods and thereby make possible the entire length of the production process. The amount of the discount from the MVP is greater here because the higher stage is more remote than the others from final consumption. Therefore, in order for investment to take place in the higher stages, their MVP has to be far higher than the MVP in the shorter processes. 3. The Source of Factor Incomes Our analysis permits us now to resolve that time-honored controversy in economics. Which is the source of wages, capital or consumption? Or, as we should rephrase it, which is the source of original factor incomes for labor and land factors? It is clear that the ultimate goal of the investment of capital is future consumption, In that sense, consumption is the necessary requisite without which there would be no capital. Furthermore, for each particular good, consumption dictates, through market demands, the prices of the various products and the shifting of non-specific factors from one process to another. However, consumption by itself provides nothing. Savings and investment are needed in order to permit any consumption at all, 
since very little consumption could be obtained with no production processes or capital structure at all, perhaps only the direct picking of berries. Insofar as labor or land factors produce and sell consumers' goods immediately, no capital is required for their payment. They are paid directly by consumption. This was true for Crusoe's berry picking. It is also true in a highly capitalistic economy for labor and land in the final stages of the production process. In these final stages, which include pure labor incomes earned in the sale of personal services, of doctors, artists, lawyers, etc., to consumers, the factors earn MVP directly without being discounted in advance. All the other labor and land factors participating in the production process are paid by saved capital in advance of the produced and consumed product. We must conclude that in the dispute between the classical theory that wages are paid out of capital and the theory of Henry George, J.B. Clark, and others that wages are paid out of the annual product consumed, the former theory is correct in the overwhelming majority of cases, and that this majority becomes more preponderant the greater the stock of capital in the society. 4. Land and Capital Goods The price of the unit service of every factor, then, is equal to its discounted marginal value product. This is true of all factors, whether they be original, land and labor, or produced, capital goods. However, as we have seen, there is no net income to the owners of capital goods, since their prices contain the prices of the various factors that cooperate in their production. Essentially, then, net income accrues only to owners of land and labor factors, and to capitalists for their time services. It is still true, however, that the pricing principle, equality to discounted MVP, applies whatever the factor, whether capital good or any other. Let us assume for simplicity that we are dealing with one unit of one consumer's good, which sells for 100 ounces, and that one unit of each particular factor enters into its production. Capitalists 1 purchase one capital good for 80 ounces, and, we assume, one labor factor for 8 ounces and one land factor for 7 ounces. The joint MVP for the three factors is 100, yet their total price is 95 ounces. The remainder is the discount accruing to the capitalists because of the time element. The sum of the discounted MVPs, then, is 95 ounces, and this is precisely what the owners of three factors received in total. The discounted MVP of the labor factor's service was 8, the DMVP of the land service was 7, the DMVP of the capital goods service was 80. Thus, each factor obtains its DMVP as its received price. But what happens in the case of the capital good? 
It has been sold for eighty, but it has had to be produced, and this production cost money to pay the income of the various factors. The price of the capital good then is reduced to, say, another land factor paid eight ounces, another labor factor paid eight ounces, and a capital goods factor paid sixty ounces. The prices and therefore the incomes of all these factors are discounted again to account for the time, and this discount is earned by capitalists too. The sum of these factor incomes is seventy-six, and once again each factor service earns its DMVP. Each capital goods factor must be produced and must continue to be produced in the ERE. Since this is so, we see that the capital goods factor, though obtaining its DMVP, does not earn it net. For its owner, in turn, must pay money to the factors that produce it. Ultimately, only land, labor, and time factors earn net incomes. This type of analysis has been severely criticized on the following grounds: this Austrian method of tracing everything back to land and labor and time may be an interesting historical exercise, and we may grant that if we trace back production and investment far enough, we shall ultimately reach the world of primitive men who began to produce capital with their bare hands. But of what relevance is this for the modern complex world around us, a world in which a huge amount of capital already exists and can be worked with? In the modern world, there is no production without the aid of capital, and therefore the whole Austrian capital analysis is valueless for the modern economy. There is no question about the fact that we are not interested in historical analysis, but rather in an economic analysis of the complex economy. In particular, acting man has no interest in the historical origin of his resources. He is acting in the present on behalf of a goal to be achieved in the future. Praxeological analysis recognizes this and deals with the individual acting at present to satisfy ends of varying degrees of futurity, from instantaneous to remote. It is true too that the presentation by the master of capital and production theory, Bermbaverk, sowed confusion by giving an historical interpretation to the structure of production. This is particularly true of his concept of the average period of production, which attempted to establish an average length of production processes operating at present, but stretching back to the beginning of time. In one of the weakest parts of his theory, Bermbaverk conceded that the boy who cuts a stick with his knife is, strictly speaking, only continuing the work of the miner who, centuries ago, thrust the first spade into the ground to sink the shaft from which the ore was brought to make the blade. 
He then tried to salvage the relevance of the production structure by averaging periods of production and maintaining that the effect in the present product of the early century's work is so small, being so remote, as to be negligible. Mises has succeeded, however, in refining the Austrian production theory so as to eliminate reliance on an almost infinitely high production structure and on the mythical concept of an average period of production. As Mises states, acting man does not look at his condition with the eyes of an historian. He is not concerned with how the present situation originated. His only concern is to make the best use of the means available today for the best possible removal of future uneasiness. He has at his disposal a definite quantity of material factors of production. He does not ask whether these factors are nature-given or the product of production processes accomplished in the past. It does not matter for him how great a quantity of nature-given, that is, original material factors of production and labor, was expended in their production, and how much time these processes of production have absorbed. He values the available means exclusively from the aspect of the services they can render him in his endeavors to make future conditions more satisfactory. The period of production and the duration of serviceableness are for him categories in planning future action, not concepts of academic retrospection. They play a role insofar as the actor has to choose between periods of production of different length. Bermbaverk was not fully aware of the fact that the period of production is a praxeological category and that the role it plays in action consists entirely in the choices acting man makes between periods of production of different length. The length of time expended in the past for the production of capital goods available today does not count at all. But if the past is not taken into account, how can we use the production structure analysis? How can it apply to an ERE if the structure would have to go back almost endlessly in time? If we base our approach on the present, must we not follow the Knightians in scrapping the production structure analysis? A particular point of contention is the dividing line between land and capital goods. The Knightians, in scoffing at the idea of tracing periods of production back through the centuries, scrap the land concept altogether and include land as simply a part of capital goods. This change, of course, completely alters production theory. The Knightians point correctly, for example, to the fact that present-day land has many varieties and amounts of past labor mixed with it. Canals have been dug, forests cleared, basic improvements have been made in the soil, etc. They assert that practically nothing is pure land anymore, and therefore that the concept has become an empty one. As Mises has shown, however, we can revise Bumbaverk's theory and still retain the vital distinction between land and capital goods. 
we do not have to throw out, as do the Knightians, the land baby with the average period of production bathwater. We can instead reformulate the concept of land. Up to this point, we have simply assumed land to be the original nature-given factors. Now we must modify this, in keeping with our focus on the present and the future rather than the past, whether or not a piece of land is originally pure land is in fact economically immaterial, so long as whatever alterations have been made are permanent, or rather, so long as these alterations do not have to be reproduced or replaced. Non-replaceable as a criterion for land, in contrast to capital goods, is not equivalent to permanent. Permanent is a subdivision of non-replaceable. It is clear that permanent improvements do not have to be replaced. However, depletable natural resources, such as coal, ores, etc., are not permanent, but are also non-replaceable. The key question is whether a resource has to be produced, in which case it earns only gross rents. If it does not or cannot, it earns net rents as well. Resources that are being depleted obviously cannot be replaced, and are therefore land, not capital goods. Land that has been irrigated by canals or altered through the chopping down of forests has become a present, permanent given because it is a present given, not worn out in the process of production and not needing to be replaced, it becomes a land factor under our definition. In the ERE, this factor will continue to give forth its natural powers unstinted and without further investment. It is, therefore, land in our analysis. Once this occurs, and the permanent are separated from the non-permanent alterations, we see that the structure of production no longer stretches back infinitely in time, but comes to a close within a relatively brief span of time. We may use permanent and non-permanent in this section because resources that are being depleted obviously cannot be included in any evenly rotating equilibrium. With depletable resources left aside, permanent becomes identical with non-reproducible. The capital goods are those which are continually wearing out in the process of production, and which labor and land factors must work to replace. When we consider physical wearing out and replacement, then it becomes evident that it would not take many years for the whole capital goods structure to collapse if no work were done on maintenance and replacement, and this is true even in the modern, highly capitalistic economy. Of course, the higher the degree of capitalist development and the more stages in production, the longer will it take for all the capital goods to wear out. The permanence with which we are dealing refers, of course, to the physical permanence of the goods, and not to the permanence of their value. The latter depends on the shifting desires of consumers, and never could be called permanent. 
Thus, there might be a land factor uniquely and permanently suitable as a vineyard. It is land, and remains so, therefore, indefinitely. If at some time the consumers should completely lose their taste for wine, and the land becomes valueless and no longer used, it is still a permanent factor, and therefore is land, although now submarginal. It should be noted that the permanence is relevant to present considerations of human action. A piece of land might give forth a permanent marginal physical product without necessity of maintenance, and suddenly a volcano might erupt or a hurricane strike in the area, and the permanence could be destroyed. Such conceivable natural events, however, are not ex-ante relevant to human action, and therefore, from the point of view of action, this land is rightly considered as permanent until the natural changes occur. Neither is there any relation between the present issue of permanence or non-permanence and the cosmological question of the permanence of matter and energy, George Stigler charges that the various distinctions between land and capital goods based on permanence or origin, such as are discussed herein, are physical rather than economic. These strictures miss the point. No one denies that these homogeneous factors can change greatly in value over time, but whether or not a given factor is original or improved, or permanent or needing to be maintained, is a physical question, and one that is very relevant to economic analysis. Certainly the Knightian argument that all land is capital goods because no land is original is also an argument in the physical realm. The concept of land as used throughout this book, then, is entirely different from the popular concept of land. Let us in this section distinguish between the two by calling the former economic land and the latter geographic land. The economic concept includes all nature-given sources of value, what is usually known as natural resources, land, water, and air, insofar as they are not free goods. On the other hand, a large part of the value of what is generally considered land, that is, that part that has to be maintained with the use of labor, is really a capital good. That agricultural land is an example of the latter may surprise the reader, who is likely to think of it as permanently productive. This is completely wrong. The marginal physical productivity of geographic land varies greatly in accordance with the amount of labor that is devoted to maintaining or improving the soil, as against such use or non-use of the soil as leads to erosion and a lower MPP. The basic soil, and here we are referring to the soil that would remain now if maintenance were suspended, not to the soil as it was in the dim past before cultivation, is the land element, while the final product, which is popularly known as agricultural land, is usually a capital good containing this land element. As Van Sickle and Rogie say about the soil, 
land as the top 12 to 18 inches from which grains, vegetables, grasses, and trees draw almost their entire nourishment, is highly destructible. Topsoil can be washed or blown away, eroded, or its organic and mineral content can be dissolved and drawn down out of reach of plant life, leached in a relatively few years, unless great care is exercised in its use. It can also be rebuilt by careful husbandry. Hence, it can be said of all soils that their maintenance requires saving. The indestructibility of land is much more clearly exemplified in what is commonly called urban land. For land in urban areas, and this includes suburban land, land for factories, etc., clearly evinces one of its most fundamentally indestructible features, its physical space, its part of the surface of the earth. For the surface area of the earth is, except in rare cases, eternally fixed, as is the geographic position of each piece of geographic land on the surface. This eternally fixed, permanent, positional aspect of geographic land is called the site aspect of the land, or, as Mises aptly puts it, the land as standing room. Since it is permanent and non-reproducible, it very clearly comes under the category of economic land. The permanence, once again, refers to its physical spatial aspect. Its site values, of course, are always subject to change. But while the position is permanent, even the land itself was necessarily altered by man to prepare it for urban use. Midtown Manhattan is on the same site, the same geographical location now as it was in the 1600s, although the monetary values accruing to it have changed. Suppose that a piece of currently unused land can be used for various agricultural purposes or for urban purposes. In that case, a choice will be made according to its alternative values as non-replaceable economic land, between its discounted MVP as a result of the fertility of its basic soil and its discounted MVP as an urban site. And if a decision must be made whether land now used in agriculture and being maintained for that purpose should remain in agriculture or be used as a site for building, the principles of choice are the same. The marginal value return to the agricultural or urban land is broken down by the owner of the land the landlord, into the interest return on the capital maintenance and improvement and the discounted marginal value return to the basic economic land. Basic land, or ground land in this treatise, refers to the soil without maintenance in the case of agriculture, or the pure site without depreciating superstructure in the case of urban land. The basic land, therefore, whether it be soil or site, earns for its owner an ultimate unit price or rent, equaling its DMVP. Working on this basic land, labor and investment create a finished capital good. 
This capital good, like all capital goods, also earns unit rents equal to its DMVP. However, this earning is broken down, and relevantly so in the current market, not as an historical exercise, into basic land rent and interest return on the capital invested, as well, of course, as returns to labor that works on the basic land, that is, labor's wage or rent price equaling its DMVP. This capital good land we have variously termed geographic land, land in the popular sense, final land, finished land. When we speak simply of land, on the other hand, we shall always be referring to the true economic land, the currently nature-given factor. 5. Capitalization and Rent The subject of rent is one of the most confused in the entire economic literature. We must, therefore, reiterate the meaning of rent as set forth earlier. We are using rent to mean the unit price of the services of any good. It is important to banish any preconceptions that apply the concept of rent to land only, Perhaps the best guide is to keep in mind the well-known practice of renting out. Rent, then, is the same as hire. It is the sale and purchase of the unit services of any good. This concept of rent is based on the original contribution of Frank A. Fetter. Fetter's conception has, unfortunately, had little influence on economic thought, it is not only in accord with common usage, it provides a unifying principle, enabling a coherent explanation of the price determination of unit services and of the whole goods that embody them. Without the rental price concept, it is difficult to distinguish between the pricing of unit services and of whole goods. Fetter used the rental concept to apply only to the services of durable goods, but it is clear that it can be extended to cover cases of non-durable goods where the unit service is the whole good. It therefore applies as well to prices of labor services, called wages, as it does to land or to any other factor. The rent concept applies to all goods, whether durable or non-durable. In the case of a completely non-durable good, which vanishes fully when first used, its unit of service is simply identical in size with the whole good itself. In regard to a durable good, of course, the rent concept is more interesting, since the price of the unit service is distinguishable from the price of the good as a whole. So far in this work we have been assuming that no durable producer's goods are ever bought outright, that only their unit services are exchanged on the market. Therefore, our entire discussion of pricing has dealt with rental pricing. It is obvious that the rents are the fundamental prices. The marginal utility analysis has taught us that men value goods in units and not as wholes. The unit price, or rent, is then the fundamental price on the market.
In Chapter 4, we analyzed rental pricing and the price of the good as a whole for durable consumers' goods. The principle is precisely the same for producers' goods. The rental value of the unit service is the basic one, the one ultimately determined on the market by individual utility scales. The price of the whole good, also known as the capital value of the good, is equal to the sum of the expected future rents discounted by what we then vaguely called a time preference factor, and which we now know is the rate of interest. The capital value, or price of the good as a whole, then, is completely dependent on the rental prices of the good, its physical durability, and the rate of interest. Obviously, the concept of capital value of a good has meaning only when that good is durable and does not vanish instantly upon use. If it did vanish, then there would only be pure rent, without separate valuations for the good as a whole. When we use the term good as a whole, we are not referring to the aggregate supply of the whole good in the economy. We are referring, for example, not to the total supply of housing of a certain type, but to one house, which can be rented out over a period of time. We are dealing with units of whole goods, and these units, being durable, are necessarily larger than their constituent unit services, which can be rented out over a period of time. The principle of the determination of capital values, that is, prices of whole goods, is known as capitalization, or the capitalizing of rents. This principle applies to all goods, not simply capital goods, and we must not be misled by similarity of terminology. Thus, capitalization applies to durable consumers' goods, such as houses, TV sets, etc. It also applies to all factors of production, including basic land. The rental price, or rent, of a factor of production is equal, as we have seen, to its discounted marginal value product. The capital value of a whole factor will be equal to the sum of its future rents, or the sum of its DMVPs. It is often more convenient to define rent as equal to the MVP rather than the DMVP. In that case, the capital value of the whole factor is equal to the discounted sum of its future rents. This capital value will be the price for which the whole good will exchange on the market. It is at this capital value that a unit of a whole good, such as a house, a piano, a machine, an acre of land, etc., will sell on the market. There is clearly no sense to capitalization if there is no market, or price, for the whole good. The capital value is the appraised value set by the market on the basis of rents, durability, and the interest rate. The process of capitalization can encompass many units of a whole good, as well as one unit. 
Let us consider the example of chapter 4, section 7, and generalize from it to apply not only to houses, but to all durable producers' goods. The good is a ten-year good. Expected future rents are ten gold ounces per year, determined by consumer utilities for consumers' goods, or by MVPs for producers' goods. The rate of interest is 10% per annum. The present capital value of this good is 59.4 gold ounces. But this whole good is itself a unit of a larger supply, one of many houses, machines, plants, etc. At any rate, since all units of a good have equal value, the capital value of two such houses, or two such machines, etc., added together, equals precisely twice the amount of one, or 118.8 ounces. Since we are adding rents or DMVPs in money terms, we may keep adding them to determine capital values of larger aggregates of durable goods, As a matter of fact, in adding capital values, we do not need to confine ourselves to the same good. All we need do is to add the capital values in whatever bundle of durable goods we are interested in appraising. Thus, suppose a firm, Jones Construction Company, wishes to sell all its assets on the market. These assets, necessarily durable, consist of the following— three machines. Each machine has a capital value based on the sum of the DMVPs of 10 ounces, therefore total capital value is 30 ounces. One building with a capital value of 40 ounces. Four acres of land. Each acre has a capital value of 10 ounces, total is 40 ounces. Total capital value of these assets 110 ounces. But we must always remember in adding capital values that these are relevant only insofar as they are expressed in market price or potential market price. Many writers have fallen into the trap of assuming that they can, in a similar way, add up the entire capital value of the nation or world and arrive at a meaningful figure. Estimates of national capital or world capital, however, are completely meaningless. The world, or country, cannot sell all its capital on the market. Therefore, such statistical exercises are pointless. They are without possible reference to the very goal of capitalization, correct estimation of potential market price. As we have indicated, capitalization applies to all factors of production, or rather, to all factors where there are markets for the whole goods that embody them. We may call these markets capital markets. They are the markets for exchange of ownership, total or partial, of durable producers' goods. Let us take the case of capital goods. The rent of a capital good is equal to its DMVP. The capitalized value of the capital good is the sum of the future DMVPs, or the discounted sum of the future MVPs. This is the present 
value of the good, and this is what the good will sell for on the capital market. The process of capitalization, because it permeates all sectors of the economy and because it is flexible enough to include different types of assets, such as the total capital assets of a firm, is a very important one in the economy. Prices of shares of the ownership of this capital will be set at their proportionate fraction of the total capital value of the assets. In this way, given the MVPs, durability, and the rate of interest, all the prices on the capital market are determined, and these will be the prices in the ERE. This is the way in which the prices of individual capital goods, machines, buildings, etc., will be set on the market. And this is the way in which these values will be summed up to set the price of a bundle of capital assets, similar and dissimilar. Share prices on the stock market will be set according to the proportion that they bear to the capitalized value of the firm's total assets. We have stated that all factors that can be bought and sold as whole goods on the market are capitalized. This includes capital goods, ground land, and durable consumers' goods. It is clear that capital goods and durable consumers' goods can be and are capitalized. But what of ground land? How can this be capitalized? We have seen in detail that the ultimate earnings of factors go to the owners of labor and of ground land, and as interest to capitalists. If land can be capitalized, does this not mean that land and capital goods are really the same thing after all? The answer to the latter question is no. Frank Fetter's main error in capital theory was his belief that capitalization meant the scrapping of any distinction between capital goods and land. It is still emphatically true that the earnings of basic land factors are ultimate and irreducible, as are labor earnings, while capital goods have to be constantly produced and reproduced, and therefore their earnings are always reducible to the earnings of ground land, labor, and time. Basic land can be capitalized for one simple reason. It can be bought and sold as a whole on the market. This cannot be done for labor except under a system of slavery, which of course cannot occur on the purely free market. Since this can be and is being done, the problem arises how the prices in these exchanges are determined. These prices are the capital values of ground land. A major characteristic of land as compared to capital goods is that its series of future rents is generally infinite, since, whether as basic soil or site, it is physically indestructible. In the ERE, the series of future rents will, of course, always be the same. The very fact that any land is ever bought and sold, by the way, is a demonstration of the universality of time preference. 
If there were no time preference for the present, then an infinite series of future rents could never be capitalized. A piece of land would have to have an infinite present price, and therefore could never be sold. The fact that lands do have prices is an indication that there is always a time preference, and that future rents are discounted to reduce to a present value. As in the case of any other good, the capital value of land is equal to the sum of its discounted future rents. For example, it can be demonstrated mathematically that if we have a constant rent expected to be earned in perpetuity, the capital value of the asset will equal the annual rent divided by the rate of interest. Now it is obvious that on such land, the investor annually obtains the market rate of interest. If, in other words, annual rents will be 50 and the rate of interest is 5%, the asset will sell for 50 divided by 0.05, or 1,000. The investor who purchases the asset for 1,000 ounces will earn 50 ounces a year from it, or 5%, the market rate of interest. Ground land, then, is capitalized just as are capital goods, shares in capital-owning firms, and durable consumers' goods. All these owners will tend to receive the same rate of interest return, and all will receive the same rate of return in the ERE. In short, all owned assets will be capitalized. In the ERE, of course, the capital values of all assets will remain constant. They will also be equal to the discounted sum of the MVPs of their unit rents. We have seen that a key distinction between land and capital goods is that the owners of the former sell future goods for present money, whereas the owners of the latter advance present money, buy future goods, and later sell their product when it is less distantly future. This is still true, but then we must ask the question, how does the landowner come to own this land? The answer is, accepting his or his ancestors finding unused land and putting it to use, that he must have bought it from someone else. If he did so, then, in the ERE, he must have bought it at its capitalized value. If he buys the piece of land at a price of 1,000 ounces and receives 50 ounces per annum in rent, then he earns interest, and only interest. He sells future goods, land service, in the production process. But he, too, first bought the whole land with money. Therefore, he, too, is a capitalist investor earning interest. Pure rent, that is, rent that is not simply a return on previous investment and is therefore not capitalized, seems, therefore, to be earned only by those who have found unused land themselves or inherited it from the finders. But even they do not earn pure rent. 
Suppose that a man finds land, unowned and worth zero, and then fences it, etc., until it is now able to yield a perpetual rental of fifty ounces per annum. Could we not say that he earns pure rent, since he did not buy the land, capitalized from someone else? But this would overlook one of the most important features of economic life, implicit earnings. Even if this man did not buy the land, the land is now worth a certain capital value, the one it could obtain on the market. This capital value is, say, one thousand. Therefore, the man could sell the land for one thousand at any time. His foregone opportunity cost of owning the land and renting out its services is sale of the land for one thousand ounces. It is true that he earns fifty ounces per year, but this is only at the sacrifice of not selling the whole land for one thousand ounces. His land, therefore, is really as much capitalized as land that has been bought on the market. We must therefore conclude that no one receives pure rent except laborers in the form of wages. That the only incomes in the productive ERE economy are wages, the term for the prices and incomes of labor factors, and interest. But there is still a crucial distinction between land and capital goods, for we see that a fundamental, irreducible element is the capital value of land. The capital value of capital goods still reduces to wages, and the capital value of land. In a changing economy, there is another source of income: increases in the capital value of ground land. Typical was the man who found unused land and then sold its services. Originally, the capital value of the land was zero; it was worthless. Now the land has become valuable because it earns rents. As a result, the capital value has risen to one thousand ounces. His income or gain consisted of the rise of one thousand ounces in capital value. This, of course, cannot take place in the ERE. In the ERE, all capital values must remain constant. Here we see that a source of monetary gain is a rise in the capital value of land, a rise resulting from increases in expected rental yields of land. In the long run, increases in the capital value of capital goods are unimportant, since they resolve into increases in wages and increases in the capital value of ground land. If the economy becomes an ERE after this particular change from zero to one thousand, then this income was a one-shot affair rather than a continuing and recurring item. The capital value of the land rose from zero to one thousand, and the owner can reap this income at any time. However, after this has been reaped once, it is never reaped again. If he sells the land for one thousand, the next buyer receives no gain from the increase in capital value. He receives only market interest. Only interest and wages accrue continuously.
As long as the ERE continues, there will be no further gains or losses in capital value. 6. The Depletion of Natural Resources One category has been purposely omitted so far from the discussion of land factors. At first, we defined land as the original nature-given factor. Then we said that land which had been improved by human hands, but which is now permanently given, must also be considered as land. Land, then, became the catalactically permanent, non-reproducible resource, while capital goods are those that are non-permanent and therefore must be produced again in order to be replaced. But there is one type of resource that is non-replaceable but also non-permanent, the natural resource that is being depleted, such as a copper or a diamond mine. Here the factor is definitely original and nature-given. It cannot be produced by man. On the other hand, it is not permanent, but subject to depletion, because any use of it leaves an absolutely smaller amount for use in the future. It is original, but non-permanent. Shall it be classed as land, or as a capital good? The crucial test of our classificatory procedure is to ask, must labor and land factors work in order to reproduce the good? In the case of permanent factors, this is not necessary, since they do not wear out. But in this case, we must answer in the negative also. For these goods, though non-permanent, cannot be reproduced by man despite their depletion. Therefore, the natural resource comes as a special division under the land category. Professor Hayek criticizes the criterion of reproducibility for classifying a capital good. He declares, The point that is relevant is not that certain existing resources can be replaced by others, which are in some technological sense similar to them, but that they have to be replaced by something, whether similar or not, if the income stream is not to decline. But this is confusing value with physical considerations. We are attempting to classify physical goods here, not to discuss their possible values, which will fluctuate continually. The point is that the resources subject to depletion cannot be replaced, much as the owner would like to do so. They therefore earn a net rent. Hayek also raises the question whether a stream is land if a new stream can be created by collecting rainwater. Here again, Hayek misconceives the issue as one of maintaining a constant income stream instead of classifying a physical concrete good. The stream is land because it does not need to be physically replaced. It is obvious that Hayek's criticism is valid against Kaldor's definition. Kaldor defined capital as a reproducible resource which it is economically profitable to produce. In that case, obsolete machines would no longer be capital goods. Would they be land? The definition should be physically reproducible resources. 
Hayek's criticism that then the possibility of growing artificial fruit, etc., would make all land capital, again misconceives the problem, which is one of the physical need and possibility of reproducing the agent. Since the basic land, not its fruit, needs no reproduction, it is excluded from the capital good category. The fact that the natural resources cannot be reproduced means that they earn a net rent, and that their rent is not absorbed by land and labor factors that go into their production. Of course, from the net rents they earn the usual interest rate of the society for their owners, interest earnings being related to their capital value. Increases in capital values of natural resources go ultimately to the resource owner himself and are not absorbed in gains by other land and labor factors. There is no problem in capitalizing a resource that is subject to depletion, since, as we have seen, capitalization can take place for either a finite or an infinite series of future rental incomes. There is, however, one striking problem that pervades any analysis of the resource subject to depletion, and that distinguishes it from all other types of goods. This is the fact that there can be no use for such a resource in an evenly rotating economy. For the basis of the ERE is that all economic quantities continue indefinitely in an endless round. But this cannot happen in the case of a resource that is subject to depletion. For whenever it is used, the total stock of that good in the economy decreases. The situation at the next moment, then, cannot be the same as before. This is but one example of the insuperable difficulties encountered whenever the ERE is used, not as an auxiliary construction in analysis, but as some sort of ideal that the free economy must be forced to emulate. There can be a reserve demand for a depletable resource, just as there is speculative reserve demand for any other stock of goods on the market. This speculation is not simple wickedness, however. It has a definite function, namely that of allocating the scarce depletable resource to those uses at those times when consumer demand for them will be greatest. The speculator, waiting to use the resources until a future date, benefits consumers by shifting their use to a time when they will be more in demand than at present. As in the case of ground land, the permanent resource belongs to the first finder and first user, and often some of these initial capital gains are absorbed by interest on the capital originally invested in the business of resource finding. The absorption can take place only insofar as the finding of new resources is a regular continuing business. But this business, which by definition could not exist in the ERE, can never be completely regularized. Minerals such as coal and oil are clearly prime examples of depletable resources. What about such natural resources as forests? 
A forest, although growing by natural processes, can be produced by man if measures are taken to maintain and grow more trees, etc. Therefore, forests would have to be classified as capital goods rather than depletable resources. One of the frequent attacks on the behavior of the free market is based on the Georgist bugbear of natural resources held off the market for speculative purposes. We have dealt with this alleged problem earlier. Another and diametrically opposite attack is the common one that the free market wastes resources, especially depletable resources. Future generations are allegedly robbed by the greed of the present. Such reasoning would lead to the paradoxical conclusion that none of the resource be consumed at all. For whenever, at any time, a man consumes a depletable resource, here we use consumes in a broader sense to include uses up in production, he is leaving less of a stock for himself or his descendants to draw upon. It is a fact of life that whenever any amount of a depletable resource is used up, less is left for the future, and therefore any such consumption could just as well be called robbery of the future if one chooses to define robbery in such unusual terms— unusual terms because robbery has been distinctively defined as seizure of someone else's property without his consent, not the use of one's own property. Once we grant any amount of use to the depletable resource, we have to discard the robbery of the future argument and accept the individual preferences of the market. There is, then, no more reason to assume that the market will use the resources too fast than to assume the opposite. The market will tend to use resources at precisely the rate that the consumers desire. Having developed in Volume 1 our basic analysis of the economics of the isolated individual, barter, and indirect exchange, we shall now proceed in Volume 2 to develop the analysis further by dealing with dynamic problems of a changing economy, particular types of factors, money and its value, and monopoly and competition, and discussing in necessarily more summary fashion the consequences of violent intervention in the free market. Appendix Professor Rolfe and the Discounted Marginal Productivity Theory Of current schools of economic thought, the most fashionable have been the econometric, the Keynesian, the institutionalist, and the neoclassic. The neoclassic refers to the pattern set by the major economists of the late 19th century, the dominant neoclassical strain at present is to be found in the system of Professor Frank Knight, of which the most characteristic feature is an attack on the whole concept of time preference. Denying time preference and basing interest return solely on an alleged productivity of capital, the Knightians attack the doctrine of the discounted MVP and instead advocate a pure MVP theory. The clearest exposition of this approach is to be found in an article by a follower of Knight's, Professor Earl Rolfe.
Rolf defines product as any immediate results of present valuable activities. These include work on goods that will be consumed only in the future. Thus, workmen and equipment beginning the construction of a building may have only a few stakes in the ground to show for their work the first day, but this, and not the completed structure, is their immediate product. Thus, the doctrine that a factor receives the value of its marginal product refers to this immediate product. The simultaneity of production and product does not require any simplifying assumptions. It is a direct appeal to the obvious. Every activity has its immediate results. Obviously, no one denies that people work on goods and move capital a little further along. But is the immediate result of this a product in any meaningful sense? It should be clear that the product is the end product, the goods sold to the consumer. The whole purpose of the production system is to lead to final consumption. All the intermediate purchases are based on the expectation of final purchase by the consumer and would not take place otherwise. Every activity may have its immediate results, but they are not results that would command any monetary income from anyone if the owners of the factors themselves were joint owners of all they produced until the final consumption stage. In that case, it would be obvious that they do not get paid immediately. Hence, their product is not immediate. The only reason that they are paid immediately, and even here there is not strict immediacy on the market, is that capitalists advance present goods in exchange for those future goods for which they expect a premium or interest return. Thus, the owners of the factors are paid the discounted value of their marginal product. The Knight-Rolf approach, in addition, is a retreat to a real-cost theory of value. It assumes that present efforts will somehow always bring present results. But when? In present valuable activities. But how do these activities become valuable? Only if their future product is sold as expected to consumers. Suppose, however, that people work for years on a certain good and are paid by capitalists, and then the final product is not bought by consumers. The capitalists absorb monetary losses. Where was the immediate payment according to marginal product? The payment was only an investment in future goods by capitalists. Rolf then turns to another allegedly heinous error of the discount approach, namely the doctrine of non-coordination of factors. This means that some factors in their payment receive the discounted value of their product, and some do not. Rolf, however, is laboring under a misapprehension. There is no assumption of non-coordination in any sound discounting theory. As we have stated, all factors, labor, land, and capital goods, receive their discounted marginal value product. 
The difference in regard to the owners of capital goods is that in the ultimate analysis they do not receive any independent payment, since capital goods are resolved into the factors that produce them, ultimately land and labor factors, and to interest for the time involved in the advance of payment by the capitalists. Rolf ascribes this error to Newt Wicksell, but such a confusion is not attributable to Wicksell, who engages in a brilliant discussion of capital and the production structure and the role of time in production. Wicksell demonstrates correctly that labor and land are the only ultimate factors, and that therefore the marginal productivity of capital goods is reducible to the marginal productivity of labor and land factors, so that money capital earns the interest or discount differential. Wicksell's discussion of these and related issues is of basic importance. He recognized, for example, that capital goods are fully and basically coordinate with land and labor factors only from the point of view of the individual firm, but not when we consider the total market in all of its interrelations. Current economic theorizing is, to its detriment, even more preoccupied than writers of his day with the study of an isolated firm instead of the interrelated market. Rolf believes that non-coordination is involved because owners of land and labor factors receive a discounted share and capital receives an undiscounted share. But this is a faulty way of stating the conclusion. Owners of land and labor factors receive a discounted share, but owners of capital, money capital, receive the discount. The remainder of Rolf's article is largely devoted to an attempt to prove that no time lag is involved in payments to owners of factors. Rolf assumes the existence of production centers within every firm, which, broken down into virtually instantaneous steps, produce and then implicitly receive payment instantaneously. This tortured and unreal construction misses the entire point. Even if there were atomized production centers, the point is that some person or persons will have to make advances of present money along the route, in whatever order, until the final product is sold to the consumers. Let Rolf picture a production system, atomized or integrated as the case may be, with no one making the advances of present goods, money capital, that he denies exist. And as the laborers and landowners work on the intermediate products for years without pay, until the finished product is ready for the consumer, let Rolf exhort them not to worry, since they have been implicitly paid simultaneously as they worked. For this is the logical implication of the Knight Rolf position. Rolf ends his article consistently with a dismissal of any time-preference influences on interest, which he explains in Knightian vein by the cost of producing new capital goods.